It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show to get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Well, welcome to the mop up for January 18th, 2021. I'm David Feldman in Manhattan. We're joined by Henry Huckamacki in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And joining us from Great Britain is Grace Jackson coming up in the next hour. We're going to be talking with Christian Smalls. He is a labor organizer who tried to unionize and stand up for the workers in Amazon, not the Amazon, working over at Amazon in Staten Island. And he's fighting Amazon as well uh, as as everybody should be. And they're trying to unionize down south. We'll talk about that with Ricky, who runs our Marxist study group. Hello, Grace. Hello, Henry. Everybody unmute yourself. Let's quickly plow through the headlines. Just I know that here in America, people are taking the day off to honor Martin Luther King. So let's look at can you see January 18th, 2020? We'll just plow through the headlines mm-hmm. to keep everybody up to speed here. This is the Sacramento Bee. Apparently, Joe Biden will appeal to unity in his inaugural address come Wednesday. Not sure we need unity. They say it was quiet at the California Capitol, but tight security remains in place. That's the capital of California. That's the Sacramento Bee. And they do have Martin Luther King Jr. on the front page. The Los Angeles Times is not leading with Martin Luther King at the bottom of the fold. They talk about Phil Spector, who died. Headline music producer who killed actress. The Chicago Tribune is leading with the Democrats building their case against Trump. They're talking about impeachment. They have a new speaker in the House. Well, she's an African-American. We'll ask Mary Ann Cummings about that. And on the front page, they do have a story 
about Martin Luther King. There's a picture of Martin Luther King, and it says, after the U.S. Capitol attack, a renewed look at MLK's legacy. The Washington Post is leading with a new poll that says America is split on whether or not they trust Biden. There's also a story about the rallies that led to the insurrection, new evidence coming out that they were funded by the GOP. We'll talk about that later. Here in Manhattan, the Daily News is leading with the naked homeless man who tried to shove a a passenger onto the third rail, and uh, they have an interview with the man who saved that person's life. I think the naked homeless man died. The New York Times is leading with 400,000 deaths in one year and failure at every level. They're talking about the one-year anniversary of the virus. And the other headlines in the New York Times are the Republicans spin capital attack with barrage of misinformation. Gee, you think? The Staten Island advance leads with Martin and Coretta King meeting uh, where they first met and a memorial will be rising in the Boston Commons. That's an AP story. Staten Island advances a more liberal newspaper than Staten Island is. The Gettysburg Times, you would think the Gettysburg Times from Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, would lead with a story about Martin Luther King, wouldn't you? But no, their headline is free virus testing available this week and uh, bo- uh, police body cameras closer in Gettysburg. They're, they're coming closer to uh, getting the police in Gettysburg to wear body cameras. You would think Gettysburg would have some something about Martin Luther King. Uh, the Kentucky Inquirer leads with how close are we to MLK's dream? The Oregonian leads with MLK's message reverberates today. The Ottawa Sun has a story about uh, delays in administering the vaccines. The Globe and Mail, we can ask Grace about this, is leading the, the uh, Ontario edition of the Globe and Mail in Canada leads with Canadian firm operates in Xinjiang region. Did I pronounce that properly, Grace? You have to unmute yourself. But No, uh, you didn't. It's Xinjiang. Uh, Xinjiang. Like S-H-I-N, you can think of it as. Right. And that's where the Uyghurs are being interned. And they also yes. have a smaller headline about Joe Biden promising to block the Keystone XL pipeline once he takes office. And big picture of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny returning to Moscow. Anger building, and according to the Toronto Sun, thousands of people are complaining about Canadians not wearing masks in their apartments. The Guardian is leading... Well, they have a big picture of Phil Spector, dead, pop pioneer and convicted murderer, dies in jail at age 81. And the Daily Mail, hope in the post for five million. We'll ask you about that, Grace. The Irish Times, two headlines, hospital gave vaccine to staff relatives. Hmm. How American of them. Almost 6,400 healthcare staff unable to work due to coronavirus. The Irish Examiner says a, uh, has a uh, headline about the AstraZeneca virus. And there's a minister accusing of, quote unquote, kite flying over early AstraZeneca delivery. 
The Washington Post is reporting in her farewell address. First Lady Melania Trump says violence is never the answer. Meanwhile, she has refused to give Jill Biden. This is a historic snub. She's refused to give Jill Biden a tour of the White House. Twitter shut down QAnon supporting Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. She wrote, Dear Twitter, you are not the judge of humanity. She's the woman who is uh, carrying guns or wants to carry guns in the Capitol and refuses to go through a metal detector. President-elect Biden has ended the Keystone XL pipeline. That's what he's promising to do. And the Washington Post has a story how the Proud Boys were funded by Christian fundraising groups. They also have a story about how Trump has galvanized a nationwide extremist movement. Country star Garth Brooks will play Wednesday at Biden's swearing in. He will sing a song of unity. That's what we need, unity. No, I don't. I think we need to start arresting people. Trump, in one of his last executive orders, established a garden of American heroes and expanded access to concealed weapons. He effectively has limited uh, potential criminal liability for anyone who commits unintentional violations of regulations, as well as removing restrictions on carrying concealed weapons for current and retired federal law enforcement officers, prosecutors, judges and heads of certain agencies. And that's going to be a problem for the inauguration because the FBI is conducting an Uh, an investigation into insider threat of National Guard troops ahead of the inauguration. There are about 25,000 National Guard troops who will be protecting Joe Biden, and the Defense Department now is going to examine them for extremist ties because we saw dozens of ex-cops and former members of the military partaking in the insurrection. The question is, can we trust all 25,000 National Guard troops to protect our new president? Governor Cuomo will stay in New York for the inauguration just in case. Giuliani says he won't be part of Trump's defense, uh, probably because he's going to need his own defense attorney. And I think uh, the last story I thought was interesting is a Pennsylvania woman has been charged uh for trying to sell Nancy Pelosi's computer to the Russians, which begs the question, who who funded all this? How bad? I see. I see. Is it Astra? Astrid. Astrid. She got bigger. She did. She doubled in size. She doubled in size. Well, welcome, Grace Jackson. Let me ask you about Trump. When he got when he was elected, did you think it would be this bad or worse? Um, when Trump got elected, I was full throttle Trump derangement syndrome, um, a hundred percent. And I think oh, it's hard to say whether I thought it would be worse than it has been because it has been really, really dismal. Um. But I I guess at the time, my imagination was so kind of inflamed by all of the things that people were afraid of, you know, happening that I could visualize, you know, um, America kind of falling into 
some kind of um, some version of authoritarianism, you know, like you've mentioned on this show before that it probably would look more like a Latin American dictatorship from the Cold War than than, uh, you know, Nazi Germany. But I was certainly um, going along with all of that. And about halfway through his presidency, I I kind of became a little bit more critical, um, I suppose. But yeah, it's it's been rough, I think, um, just because we haven't gone, uh, we haven't turned into Nazi Germany. I don't think that that means uh, that we can celebrate at all. When you look at these militia people with all these guns, something you don't have in Great Britain, what does it make you think? Does it make you think that... Well, I don't know. What what does it make you think? I, I um, have... It makes me just uh, double down on on my interpretation of American exceptionalism. You know, um, I think... America has has had this kind of pathology about it from its very beginning, and it's not that <laughs> it's not that only America has American exceptionalism. The UK, Britain has British exceptionalism. I think Chinese exceptionalism is a really interesting thing to ponder as well. But it, I see um, in those militias and all of the guns this idea that that the American constitution somehow confers, you know, it, it gives people license to act with impunity. <laughs> and that's not something that we have here. You know, maybe it's right. because we don't have a written constitution. Maybe it's an, another reason. The oh, Something just fell. People are going to learn the lessons they want to from this insurrection. You know, we've talked to Professor Ben Burgess about accelerationism and the idea that once things get really bad, people learn their lesson and they say, ah, you know what? I was wrong. I know in this country that people are going to take whatever lessons they want from that insurrection. I, I've been watching as many videos as I possibly can. The New Yorker has just an ama- amazing coverage, both video and writing on this insurrection and the lesson that the right wing is going to take from this about guns is only five people died because the mob was heavily armed. The police knew not to shoot back and it could have been a lot worse. It was the guns. It was the mutual assured destruction that prevented this from being the bloodbath that would have taken place had they not been allowed to carry concealed weapons. That's the lesson the right is going to take from it. Henry, I see you smiling. Yeah, I mean, you're pretty much describing nuclear deterrence right there. Every time that we have a nation that is working on having a nuclear arsenal, shortly thereafter, either the U.S. or Russia... uh, it does something to, to um, you know, either covertly or overtly meddle in their affairs. We saw that in Iraq. Uh, Saddam dismantled the, the weapons of mass destruction program that they had around 1990. What happened immediately after that? The uh, first Gulf War, and then, of course, there was the second Gulf War. We had Libya 
was working on a nu- uh, nuclear weapons program. They dispensed of their nuclear weapons program, I want to say in 2005-ish or so. Uh, what happened then in 2011? Hey, overthrew the government there. Ukraine also had nuclear weapons uh, within their borders. And in, I want to say... 2004 also around that time. But those were Soviet-era nuclear weapons. Yeah, they were Soviet-era nuclear weapons, but they were nuclear weapons nonetheless. And what happened in, I believe, again, 2004, uh, they voluntarily gave the nuclear arsenal up. And, of course, then after, let's look at the events that have happened in Ukraine. So what you're describing is nuclear deterrence on an individual basis with firearms. You're saying that... I just find an interesting... Uh, comparison. You're saying once the Ukrainians relinquished their their nuclear weapons, then America was able to meddle in their politics. Well, we meddled in their politics, and then of course Crimea was annexed. Right. Uh, I mean, it 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 came from both sides. It, it wasn't just one or the other. But we've seen this when countries give up their nuclear weapons. Um, this is what happens all the time. This is why North Korea is trying so hard to build up a nuclear arsenal because it's really their only sort of way of preventing the U.S. from going in and doing a regime change operation there immediately. Right. You know, I, I mean, if you if you think of it from the security dilemma perspective, which we've talked about or I talked about in office hours a few weeks ago, basically, it's when you look at foreign policy decisions things that may appear overtly offensive from one perspective. If you look at it from the other perspective, they oftentimes appear defensive. So take North Korea, for example, you'd say, Hey, they're building up a nuclear arsenal. That, that seems like a pretty offensive thing, but from the North Koreans perspective, if they dispense of their nuclear arsenal, they're going to have the same fate that Libya did in 2011, that Iraq had in 2003, that, you know, parts of their country may be annexed by other powers. So, you, you do have to think about this from both sides of the equation. You really can't take, a, you know, just the, the look that it's an offensive maneuver. Let's go back to the story about the 25,000 National Guard's troops who have to be vetted now for their political ties. Do, do they have loyalty to the outgoing commander in chief? They are going to be armed. Their job is to protect the incoming commander-in-chief. Did you ever, I mean, you guys are, you're young. I I can't imagine reading a story like this where, where they have to now vet all the National Guard's troops to make sure that they're not loyal to Donald Trump. David, I'll hop in there first, Grace, if you don't mind, and I'll just say something briefly before I let you uh, pick that up. That is a very American exceptionalist viewpoint to take that, hey, we could never have this in the U.S. This is what we've seen many, many times through history, including recent history, particularly when there's all over the place. Uh, Burkina Faso, 1983. I mean, we have many, many uh, instances. Remember our story about Thomas Sankara. we have many instances of where there's a change in regime. And this usually happens when we have a, a big split in politics or in terms of the trajectory of the politics, let's say going from a very, very right wing military led uh, dictatorship to a socialist Republic or something like that. It usually doesn't happen with, 
you know, Democrat, Republican. How different was George W. Bush from Barack Obama? Really? I mean, yes, there was differences. Obama wasn't as bad, but you take my point. The system hasn't changed. Um, We've seen this many times when you don't go through the armed forces, the military, the police, and determine that these people are loyal to the country or loyal to the rule of law. If you don't replace the people who are loyal to a previous regime, those people pretty frequently turn around and overthrow the incoming regime. We see it all the time. And to say, you know, I never expected to see this news story in America. I never expected to see this news story in America. We've seen it many times through history and we need to take the lessons from history and not take such an American exceptionalist viewpoint. Grace, well, Grace I, I think Henry raises an interesting point. However, we only really, and I'm being serious, have one party. So isn't that how we avoid these things from happening? That there really is no difference between the Democrats and the Republicans? And that's what makes for such smooth transitions in the past? You mean the the continuity of capital is just... (laughs) Yes, the continuity. Yeah, uh, quite possibly. I was just going to respond by saying that I would question the extent to which, um, you know, vetting them for being a Trump supporter is an effective way to deal with this problem. I mean, before Trump, I'm sure that, you know, the National Guard, law enforcement more broadly, it's, it's uh, you know, it's a fact that people tend to lean to the right in those professions. And I think America has a particularly vibrant and vivid uh, far right, a kind of fringe right, bolstered by this, um, by guns and so on, and the national mythology, the mythology of the frontier. Uh, And so I think this is like a very old problem. This isn't a Trump problem. It's just that Trump has sharpened it. It's um, has made it more out in the open, you know, exposed it for for what it is. What do you think he wanted that day, January 6th? What do you think Trump wanted? How did he want that day to end? What what do you Uh, think Giuliani wanted? Can you get in their tiny little heads and stretch? I I can't get in Rudy's head. Um, But I think Trump wanted just a massive... PR effort, which is what he's always wanted and what his president presidency has been. Um, I think he wanted a lot of of uh, cameras, a lot of social media, people streaming on their phones, exactly what happened. And then more division. Um, and I, I think it was a warm up for something. I don't know what exactly part two will be, but um, I don't think it's it's done by any means. And what do you do? May, may I throw my two cents in there, sure. David? Yeah. So uh, from my perspective, I don't think that Trump was ever under any illusions that he was going to be able to stay in office. I don't think that even with how weak our institutions are, I don't think that he was under any illusions that they were so weak that that would have been a possibility. What I think that he was hoping for on January 6th was a show of force that would basically uh, equate to, okay, well, now it's January 20th. I'm going to step down from office. Then, then what happens? Well, if the government or 
the judicial branch specifically is looking into him to try to hold him accountable for some of his crimes that he committed both during his presidency and even before that all he has to do is call on his his little militia and say hey are you sure you want to prosecute me you know that 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 show of force just the threat that there could be violence if you try to hold him accountable you might have a lot of people in the judiciary say, well, you know, he's in his seventies. Now he's not going to be around forever. He's out of the presidency. He's not going to get back in there. Is it really worth instigating an armed conflict to try to, you know, extract some money from this guy or get him a little bit of jail time? You know, it's going to be stuck in the courts forever. So I think that on January 6th, the goal was simply to rile up his base, get them to look very strong so that when he does leave office, there's always that lingering thought in the back of people's minds, in the judiciary particularly, that says, hey, you sure you really want to do this? Are you sure you really want to hold him accountable? What would you do if you were President Biden, Grace? How would you, would you go in and root them out? Would you go door to door like Ariel Sharon did in the West Bank and just, you know, suspend think, you know, habeas corpus and... Find them all and... No, I don't think purging is the way to go. Uh, I saw some some comment online somewhere about, um, you know, Biden needing to commit a thorough debathification of the government. That worked very well in Iraq. Exactly. Like, how did that go? Um, So I I would not purge. I would simply, well, simply, I say, it's not simple, but attempt to just um, solve some of the massive problems that are in front of Biden right now, get money into people's pockets, um, get people vaccinated. Just, you know, I. I no, yeah. historic, you know, historically, I agree with you, but historically we've placated these people these insurrectionists we placated them after the civil war malice towards none and all they had to do was take an oath and promise never to overthrow the government again and they could vote again and and an argument could be made that we've we teach i don't but people here teach peace here in the cycle of violence and that violence begets violence except when it's total war. You know, Germany bent to our will and Japan bent to our will. And the South did not because Sherman stopped with Atlanta. So, uh, you having law and order fantasy? No, no, I'm just, I don't know what the answer is. There, there is this argument that I, I don't know who somebody I think it was Dr. Hershenfeld or somebody was talking about Henry Kissinger. I know saying that Legend. the the yes, the the great Dr. Henry Kissinger saying that the secret to diplomacy is that everybody should feel that they won. And yet it was his guy who debathified. Uh, so. Uh, I don't know. I, I, sometimes total. And what do you do with these people? It, you 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 feed them. You you can't take their guns away. You can't go in and get their guns. 
You can't educate them. They want to homeschool. They want to secede. What do you do with them? Just tamp it down? Just live with it? Say this is like a, a cancer that we just have to keep an eye on? I, I think that's the answer. I think the answer is that they are a cancer and you'll never get rid of them. You All you can do is give them health care, try to educate them and hope their children will escape their clutches. That's the best you can hope for. The give yeah. them health part point is, the, sorry, Grace, you go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think, I think you're partially right, David, in that this, uh, there will always be, a, you know, a section, there will always be a subculture in America of, you know, right-wing militia, uh, super libertarian, um, who have kind of bought into a national mythology that goes all the way back to, you know, being a frontiersman and uh, displacing Native Americans in order to settle their land. And that's that's a part of the American psyche that America has to kind of work out. Um, but I don't, at the same time, I think that it's, it's far from irredeemable. And I think that the absence of a, of a large kind of national program like the New Deal um, that we're always talking about on this show with with Professor Kay um, is making it so much harder to kind of bring more people in. Um, and maybe it is their children, like you say. Maybe there are people who have who have bought so far into this mythology that they're, they're difficult to reach. But um, I think there's just so much more that politics can do uh, to solve this problem, I think. David, do you mind if I just yes, get please. a quick plug in for an unrelated news story? I just want to make sure that we get this in there today. Um, I was reading the LA Times earlier today and, and part of the article jumped out at me and I posted the screenshot on my Twitter. So if you're not following me on Twitter, do it at Huck1995. Here's, here's a quote from the article. So many people have died in Los Angeles County that officials have temporarily suspended air quality regulations that limit the number of cremations. Health officials in the L.A. County coroner requested the change because the current death rate is, quote, more than double that of pre-pandemic years, leading to hospitals, funeral homes and crematoriums exceeding capacity without the ability to process the backlog the South Coast Air Quality Management District said Sunday. So it sounds like LA County is doing pretty well. So I looked a little bit more into the numbers there. Up until, uh, until the beginning of November, LA County had only recorded 400, I say only, they had recorded 400,000 cases of COVID up until November. Then between November 30th and January 2nd, so just a smidge over a month, they recorded another 400,000 cases. So 10 times faster to get to the 400,000 as the first time around. And since uh, then, between January 2nd and January 16th, they've recorded a further 200,000 cases of COVID. They also have just recorded the uh, B117 variant from the UK in LA County, there's another variant that's accounting for a fairly high proportion of cases in LA that is 
Uh, it's been there for a while. That was first recorded in the middle of last year. But uh, originally, it was only accounting for a very small percentage of the cases that were taking place. But now it's really uh, increasing in terms of its prevalence. So, yeah, L.A. County, if you're in L.A. County, uh, I do commiserate with you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Henry Huckamacki. You'll be back later. And Grace, you're going to stick. Well, I just, I just want to ask one question to Professor Harvey J.K. later. And Grace, you're going to stick around. We're going to go to another portion of your island. Oh, we're we're... Get to talk about China. Um, okay. I'm a bit, I'm just a bit trumped out. I don't feel like I was able to speak. Well, to we'll, we'll have more time. We have a, a special guest. Stick around. C- can you? If you have time, I know it's late in Great Britain, but another Brit is standing by where Ricky Hutchinson, who runs the Marxist study group on our discord. Well, 6000 Amazon warehouse workers in Bessemer, Alabama, will be voting on whether or not to unionize. This would be the first first union ever in Amazon's history. The voting is scheduled to take place starting February 8th and continues until March 29th. Will Amazon go union? Let's go to Great Britain where where Ricky Hutchinson is standing by. Hello, Ricky. Before you introduce your special guest, tell tell us uh, a little bit about yourself. This is the first time you've interviewed anybody on our show. Yeah, it is, David. Uh, and happy um, Martin Luther King Day. Thank you. I think it's uh, probably probably one of uh, my favorite, well, my only favorite American holiday uh, for obvious reasons. Um, and, yeah, we, we're very fortunate. I mean, I think, David, you've given uh, your community a great opportunity to not only uh, participate in your show, but to actually become involved in various forms of activism. So part of that activism for me has been to, um, you know, sort of open the the books of Karl Marx to, to our community. We have between 20 and 30 people each week um, reading Capital at the moment. With, with you uh, and Professor, Professor Adnan, Adnan Hussein and, and Dr. Harriet Fraud popped in and a couple of other guests. You're actually reading Capital, which is... The dirty, it's dark amazing. secret is even yeah. Karl Marx didn't read it. But go ahead. <laughs> no, I know it's a hard read. <laughs> well, he, he he was he was pretty he was pretty much not a Marxist. Well, let's let's itself. bring in our so, let's know, bring yeah. in on, at office hours Friday night. You brought in Chris Smalls, and he is a, a, a hero. So why don't you tell us who he is and why we're well, not going to leave him alone? Well, we're not going to leave him alone. And and I would uh, preface that to say he's not a hero. He's a champion, um, a champion right. of the working person. And I think that's a really important distinction because the thing about Christian is he has a moral fiber and a, um, and a character which informs what the way he acts. And I think that's a great way for us to approach Christian's activism. And I think um, for me, from the from uh, the end of March, early April, when I first heard of his struggle, he was um, exactly what um, I envisaged to be the future of, uh, you know, a socialist movement, a, a working class movement inside. He stood up to Amazon. He, he, 
he stood up to Amazon at the beginning of the pandemic. Why don't we uh, introduce him? Yeah, I'm going to introduce Christian. He's um, the founder of the Congress of Essential Workers, which you can find on t.c.o.e.w.org online. And uh, you can find him at, at shut underscore down Amazon. Now, Christian, um, I'm going to just let you speak as you did on Friday night because you've got a story to tell and I want to hear your story. And I, I think David's uh, interested for his people to hear your story. So um, you tell us about Jeff Bezos. You tell us about the, the, the terrible conditions at Amazon and you tell us what you're doing and how we can help you. Absolutely. Uh, for, before I get started, I want to say thank you, David, and thank you, Rorke, for uh, bringing me back and um, inviting me to this platform, to this community. And, um, you know, welcome uh, to all the listeners that haven't heard me on Friday. You know, um, I'm glad to be back and share this space again. Um, so, yeah, I'll take you back to uh, the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, New York City was the epic center. Um, people were dying every 15 minutes. Um, and it was business as usual at Amazon. Amazon was deemed one of these essential businesses. Um, it was pretty much the only thing open at the time where you can get your cleaning products and uh, hand sanitizers, according to the media. Uh, allegedly, that's that's what they deemed us as. Essential workers, we were the closest thing to the Red Cross. Um, you know, all these things they deemed us to. We were like you know, heroes without capes, so to speak. And um, it wasn't the reality of the situation. We were workers, that's it. Um, my job description said to have a GED or equivalent or lift 50 pounds. It didn't say to work in the middle of a pandemic during a deadly virus. And that's what I saw every day. I seen the fact that the media and the public were thinking that, you know, essential workers mean that we're being protected, um, and it wasn't the case. And as a supervisor at Amazon for four and a half years, I started off with the company in, in 2015. I got promoted up in less than a year. I was stuck in that same position for four years, um, but I didn't let it discourage me. As I was still uh, pro-Amazon at the time, I was connecting with people. That's who I am. I'm a people's person, and um, I always build a relationship with my employees spend 40, 50, 60 hours a week with them, 10, 11, 12, sometimes 14 hour days with them. These people were my extended family. And what I saw back in March were my extended family getting sick. Uh, one by one, every single day, I'm sending workers home. Um, there's different symptoms with different people. And I seen it hand in hand, face to face. And uh, the company ignored it. The company, I tried to go through the proper channels going to my local HR building and, and letting them know like, hey, what are we doing to protect workers? And not only that, what about parents like myself uh, who have to stay home now because schools are closed? What are we doing for these people? How are we gonna pay uh, these people to stay home and be safe? And the company had no answer. Uh, it was pretty much, uh, we're following CDC guidelines which were changing every week and we still didn't know what we were dealing with when it came to COVID-19. And um, 
yeah, we had 5,000 people in Staten Island, the facility in Staten Island where I work, that came from five different boroughs, uh, including New Jersey as well. And uh, this virus spread to two and a half people at a rapid rate and it's airborne. So we were unprotected. We had no PPE, no cleaning supplies within the warehouse, no guidelines, no enforcement. Um, and, and really it was just the same as if it was pre-COVID, business as usual. So I took my stance on March 24th. Um, that day I returned back to work after fighting behind the scenes, sending out emails to the CDC department, to the health department, to Governor Cuomo's office, Mayor de Blasio's office. Well, um, what was your title at, at Amazon? What, what was your... It was a process assistant, which is... What does that mean? <laughs> well, in layman's terms, it's assistant manager. You know, they, they, they title it process assistant, meaning I'm assistant, pretty much assistant to the manager, the actual manager. So I have one superior above me that runs the department with me, and I'm his assistant. So... I, I, I like to say it's an assistant manager, but ma- but Amazon doesn't like to use that term. They like to, only reason why they do that is because we're still hourly associates, technically. We're, we're, we're supposed to do the job of management, but we're being paid less than management. So, um, you know, that's just another issue by itself. But uh, that's what I was, a process assistant, um, assistant manager. And are you overseeing all 5,000 or, or just do they give you a squadron to oversee? So I ran the, the pick department in Outbound and um, on average, I would see over oversee about on a normal day. My team by itself was 60 people, but uh, they rotate every single day is a different shift coming in. So on average, about a week, when a week go by, I probably see about 600 people. Um, and they're yes. picking the items and packing them to be shipped. Yeah, we don't do the packing part. We just do the picking part. So right. uh, we uh, we pick the customer's orders, the direct customer order. As soon as you order your your small item, because we only as fulfillment centers we only sell small items, um, not the larger ones. Those are other facilities. Um, so at these facilities, we pick about four hundred customer items an hour. Um, that's the quota to meet at least. And if, and if you're not able to meet that, uh, yeah, it's 400 reason. each individual. Do you mind? we Ricky. This is interesting. I don't oh, mean- go to town. Yeah. Go to town. That's yeah, I'll, I'll definitely tell you, uh, with the job title. Uh, yeah. I, I, you're in, you're in this warehouse windowless, correct? Uh, it's window. No, it's windows there. I mean, it, it's, it is like solitary confinement. I, I will get to that point. It, it, it definitely, um, I, I know my days for sure. I, I would go to work in the, at night or when the sky, the sky is dark and I would come out when the sun is down as well. Or Are you allowed I, to talk to other coworkers? Because at Walmart, you're not allowed to talk to your coworkers. Are you allowed to talk to them? You can talk, but it, it will, it will, it will definitely uh, count against you. You know, um, you're on production as soon as you clock in. Um, once you're on, once you're on the clock, the time is running. You have to, uh, you have a certain amount of time to get to your station. Um, you have a certain amount of time to take a bathroom break, a, a you know, a restroom break, and be. Back. How many ba- how many bathroom breaks do you get? In the there day? is no number actually. There it, it, it's so gray that area because you can go to the bathroom as much as you want, but if you do not make your 
uh, productivity, you will get reprimanded for it. So they are measuring every movement, including your bathroom. Absolutely. Every Amazon is completely, for those who don't know, Amazon is completely ran on metrics. Um, everything they do is ran on metrics. They, even the amount of money that they generate, they know, they knew that they were going to make a killing during this pandemic. That's why um, they continue to do what they did. They continue to exploit the workers, continue to uh, call mandatory overtime. You know, when, when they put it out in the media that they're hiring 175,000 people, it sounds good because they're giving people job opportunities. But no, they're aligned in the pockets of Jeff Bezos. Um, I, 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 I hate to interrupt you. No, I'm just curious. Every movement while you're working there is monetized and measured. Absolutely. I, I, I was a part of that system. So you know, like, and you're supposed to pick 400 items in an hour. What, what does that mean? So uh, as a picker, you're at your station. Um, there's a robot with, let's say, a bookshelf full of items, small items. And you have to pick these items in less than seven seconds. That's how we calculate it. You have seven seconds for the item to show up in front of you. You pick it. You put it into a yellow tote that you may have seen on the news. Uh, you press your confirm button, confirming that that's the item, and you move on to the next. And you're doing this same motion up and down the ladder, up and down steps for 10 hours a day. You don't move. You don't talk to other people because it will slow you down. Are you and listening then, to podcasts? You're not listening to anything. Why not? No, no music allowed in the, in the uh, FC, no type of devices because we sell you know, electronics, uh, no phone at the time, you know, pre COVID, there was no phone. So there's no way you're just literally in solitary confinement. That's how it felt. You're not yeah. allowed to listen to music. You're not allowed. Absolutely. You're just allowed to think. Absolutely. That's, that's the, that's the biggest thing. Is there, is there music playing? What do they have? What is the sound you hear? You hear a conveyor belt. And if you heard a conveyor belt in any warehouse, it is the most annoying sound ever, especially when it's 16 miles long. Uh, Ricky, you're studying Marx. What would what would he say about this? He would say that you're uh, part of the machine. You're part of the capitalist system. You're part of um, a, a thing that alienates you, that uh, breaks down every part of your action during the day and everything that they get um, a percentage out of as far as your labor value, everything's determined by your labor. They're exploiting every portion of your labor because their objective is to give you enough to survive and they want to take out all the surplus value. That 10 hours that you're doing without an hour uh, lunch break is all about exploiting and taking free labor from you so that someone can accumulate that. And Jeff Bezos, I believe you can tell that story, has shown that, hasn't he? And $13 billion in a day. So yeah. it's the way the system's supposed to work. Unfortunately, and the question is for you is, you know, like how does that make you as a human feel? You know, it's uh, for me, it, it's just distressing to hear that, um, you know, 600,000 people around the world are treated like that. How many people? Well, actually, now, 
600,000 is just in the, in the States. It's, a, it's actually over a million plus workers worldwide. And, um, yeah, you know, it, when I think about Amazon now that I'm no longer employed there, you know, it, it's definitely the new day slavery. That's what it is. You know, it's even the title as a picker, you know. Right. Might actually be less expensive than slavery. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, compared to what we're being paid now and the productivity rate that uh, these companies are generating off of revenue, off of our backs, it absolutely is. You were able and to last how many years there? Almost five. Almost five. Uh, it would have been my fifth year. It would have been my fifth year this past November. What 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 was good about it? If you were if you lasted five years, what was good about it? The people. Um, that's what kept me going to work every day. The fact that I, I built a very good relationship with people there. I, some of them are still my closest friends to this day. And um that's what it was about. You know, for me. Uh, being in a position of leadership, coming from the areas, the urban area, and majority of the workforce is from the urban area, I related to them. And So you would go to work and the picking was tolerable because you would be able to see other people and kid with them and have some interaction with them. And well, take I was a, when I was hired, I was a picker. And are the pickers allowed to... Have, I mean, is it fun for a picker? Or do you have to wait until you're higher up? No, to- not. So that was that's exactly what kept me going to work. The fact that when I went to work, people they were they were excited to see me because I was sort of like the breath of fresh air when working there and in such an environment where you're told to do this. I was the one supervisor. I'm like the cool dad of the building. You know, everybody yeah. knew who I was. I was really popular um, just because of the way I dress. I dress <laughs> the same way I dress now as the way I dress at Amazon. I never, I always was the one that was like the black sheep of the, of the supervisor or uh, leadership because I, I never wore my vest. I was always the one going against the green. Like everybody's like, oh, Chris, if the management say we're going to go left. Chris is going to go right. You know, that was me. Um, so I stood out like a sore thumb and, and everybody uh, in my department loved the fact that I was different and I treated them differently. I didn't treat them like machinery. I, if somebody had a bad, you know, personal experience at home, I made sure that I made it. It was my responsibility to make sure that I made their job easier. I made them at least get through the next day. What were that the benefits? Like, Did you get health insurance? I, yeah, I paid into health insurance. You paid uh, it. What, what do you mean you paid into health insurance? Well, yeah, you have to, pay for health insurance. Um, they offer, they offer a decent health, health insurance, uh, with the company as far as benefits. Um, but it's not free. Oh no, definitely not. But what definitely was it? Free. Do you mind if I ask you what it was a month? Um, I believe I paid, I had a family plan, so I was paying about, I want to say uh, at least a hundred and something dollars. I can't remember the exact number, but, um, out of every other check, it would come out like $75 out of every other check. So maybe $150 a month uh, going to. And how was that. the deductible? Um, Probably terrible. It was, <laughs> well, I, I think the deductible was a few thousand, like 3000 for the year. And that's it. And paid vacations? Paid vacation. But the way they do their vacation time is just so wonky because um, it's not by, 
Um, you don't get like a week off. You get like hours. So you accumulate hours over time. Um, and then you get vacation time the day one. They give you like 10 hours of vacation time, which is literally one day, uh, one shift. But you don't so get like a week off so you can you take accumulate. But you do people who work at Amazon say, all right, I'm taking a week off. I'm taking my family to. Uh, it was rare. You know, even me, um, it was rare for because, you know, to accumulate all those hours to take off a week, you got to be there for quite a while. And if you're able to last. Uh, is there a, a pension? High turnover company. Um, Pension for uh, hourly associates. You know, you pay, you pay into your 401k. Um, do they match it? it? They pay two. I think they, I think they match 2% or 4%. One of the, that's it. You know, it was, it's, they give you pennies, you know, this company gives an inch, well, give you an inch, then take a mile. You know, that's, that's how it goes. They took away our stocks when they, um, when they offered us the $15 minimum wage, uh, they took away our stocks. When they when they uh, gave us the bonuses for, I guess you could say for the pandemic, they took away our hazard pay. So they don't they don't allow you to you know. In other words, they were giving you stocks, and now they stopped giving you. They they stopped that three years ago. Mm -hmm. They were giving me stocks when I first got hired in 2015. So I was able to receive two years worth of stocks, um, and I loved it. I loved the fact that I was a shareholder. I was getting stocks just for a lasting one year, even if it was a few stocks, it was something. Right. Um, it took that, they took that away. Um, back when Bernie Sanders was making a campaign for $15 an hour against Amazon, they listened, they did give the 15, but they took away the stocks and everybody that was a veteran understood that we just lost thousands of dollars. Uh, but all the new hires coming in, they're excited because now you're getting paid fifteen dollars an hour, opposed to you know ten, eleven, twelve, um, which I was when I first got started. I got paid twelve seventy five. Um, but at the time, it was twelve seventy five plus month. Mo- we were getting monthly bonuses, and we were getting stocks. So um, to me, uh, that was that was okay. But they took all of that away. They took that away, and now, as you see, for example, in the middle of the pandemic. These workers till till this day don't have any hazard pay. They're just getting paid their base salary. So, uh, yeah. Uh, Ricky, you want to? We're first of all, uh, you have to come back with Ricky. We only have five minutes left. And, oh yeah, and I and I couldn't hold my tongue. I, I jumped <laughs> in. I apologize, Ricky. But uh, at oh, office, it's, I, it's brilliant, David. Uh, we're boycotting Amazon here. We, we just Absolutely. shut down. Uh, at, uh, I had an affiliate link, and uh, we we just canceled it. Uh, so we, we're going to work on uh, boycotting Amazon. But what, what in our limited time, well, Ricky, why don't you ask your questions? I apologize for. No, it's absolutely fine, David. I, I, I love the passion because the, the reality is that um, the, the story is told by Christian best yes. of all. So I didn't want to interrupt him, but what you were asking were the specificities of you know, ha- how life is as a Amazon worker and four and a half years, five years of your life to, to be treated like, um, like this is terrible. And um, the reality is that 
um, Jeff Bezos is the model um, employer of the future. So, you know, how can we as a um, as a community here help you, Christian, to um, get your word out to help you do what you do? I mean, um, yeah. Before you do that, uh, before he answers that, the lawyers went after you, didn't they? Yeah, uh, David Sapolsky, the general counsel of Amazon, uh, and Jeff Bezos, uh, they had a meeting in April to smear me, pretty much. Uh, run a smear campaign, uh, calling me not smart or articulate. Um, pretty racist stigma in the black community. And Jeff Bezos signed off on this. And they were actually going to go through with it had it not leaked. Somebody in that room uh, leaked the memo out to the public and the media. And um, that's what really uh, pretty much catapulted me into fighting back. You know, I, at the time, I didn't know which way I was going to go, uh, you know, fighting legally. But uh, I felt like, no, this is something that can't be done to somebody else. You know, if I, if I fade the black, um, what's going to happen afterwards? So I don't want this to go. I don't want anybody to go through what I went through. And um, I want workers to have more power than what they have now. So this is what my fight is still to this day nine months later what what uh so i am urging everybody to honor chris and by not using amazon it's gotten to the point where it's like asking people not to use tap water it's so pervasive ricky how, how do we stop using amazon Well, the first thing is to ensure that um, people like Christian have the opportunity to be given solidarity and support. So find the mechanisms to support the workers that are there currently. Find ways of buying from, um, you know, independent uh, uh, ownerships from worker co-ops. And also, you know, question yourself, why do I need this product, you know, as as a um, more general thing, the consume, consumerism is part of our overall ecological problems. Um, and don't give your money to someone who you know is exploiting others. You know, these are the key things. But primarily, solidarity with people like Christian and find ways to help Christian organize to drive solidarity because, you know, we take back a proportion of our own. Um, surplus value we take back our own agency and the only way we do that is with solidarity with other workers with other um, people in our community so that's the key Um, Christian have had a question from Lane and Sam and he wanted to know if if this type of thing is generalizable the things that have been done at Staten Island and across the US is that generalizably happening across the world internationally yeah, you've seen um, over the course of the pandemic, there's been um, a rebellion against Amazon all across the world, you know, and it's still taking place, especially overseas. Overseas are doing a better job than actually the states. Um, they, you know, the, they have unions over there. They've been on strike for several days over there, several different times and occasions. They stand in solidarity with us every time, um, you know, they see that I'm doing a demonstration. They try to pretty much mirror it or match it or, or do something of their own. So it's been great solidarity worldwide against Amazon, but uh, what we need is the decision makers to 
um, break up this company, demobilize it. We need the Congress. Um, this administration now that's in the office to hear us, hear the working class voices, hear the workers of Amazon, let them know that we need to, we need some protections. We need to be unionized over here. We need some protections so that this can't happen to workers. You know, you've seen companies similar to Amazon lay, a, lay hundreds of workers off for no reason. Um, and Jeff Bezos can do the same thing, and he does in different ways, you know, exploiting workers, uh, firing activists like myself, um, and, and just continue to crush the bottom, you know, crush the people at the bottom. We, it's, it's no longer going to be acceptable, you know. So I hope that everybody that hear my story, they find the courage to do what David is saying. Cancel your, your Amazon Prime. That's step number one. You know, boycott the Good company. luck trying to, by the way. Uh, uh, here, here's a project that I'd ask my listeners to engage in. According to, I think, the Norwegian Consumer Council, it's impossible to cancel your Amazon Prime. Consumer watchdogs have issued a series of reports saying that people who try to cancel their Amazon Prime run into one stumbling block after another. Cancel your Amazon Prime if you can. And if you can't, call Bernie. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and I'll tell people this, you know, one last thing before we go. Um, you know, I work for the company and I can literally count on my two hands how many times I ordered from them. You know, and I didn't I don't think twice about it. I, I found that my life didn't change drastically when I'm no longer using Amazon. So it's possible, you know, people it is a drug, it, it is an addiction. And we're so we have a luxury, you know, now in the twenty first century, we have a luxury of hitting one click buy on your smartphone or a smart device and, and having things delivered to you, which is fine, but at the same time you don't want to support a company that's not stick, taking care of their workers. So, you know, if you get used to it slowly but surely, it will happen, you know. So start off, you know, wherever you can. Uh, can you come back next Monday? I can, you know, and I actually actually I could have stayed, you know, I could stay longer tonight because uh, my meeting got pushed back. So, you know, I'm here. You know, I'm here. Uh, Mondays is fine. Well, yeah, we're kind of. I would love to have you come back as much as possible. Ricky, can you come back next Monday? Absolutely. Very Absolutely. quickly, plug your Marxist study group, please. Yeah, sure. Uh, come and join us. We uh, meet on Sundays at uh, 4.30 Eastern Standard Time on our Discord. So come to our office hours on Friday, and Andy Brown will give you a, a entry into our uh, Discord. Um, we're on Twitter, at Morning Marks and at... Uh, weekly marks and we have um, four pages of uh, marks every day so 28 pages a week you'll learn all about the things that uh, capital does uh, to enslave us um, and Christian I'm just going to ask one thing of you I believe you do something at the end of each uh, of each um, meeting would you give us that uh, symbol of power brother absolutely solidarity and um, Solidarity. take care, be safe, and it was a pleasure to be here. It's, thank you. Shut down Amazon. It's shut underscore down Amazon. That's your Twitter handle. Yeah, I'm <laughs> I'm everything speaking of plugging, I'm sorry, what? I didn't do it last time, but I'm going to put everything in the chat this time. Yeah, but know. for our listeners and the people watching on YouTube, what is the name of your website, please? 
Yes, tcoew.org. Uh, at shut underscore down Amazon. No surprise. Um, on Twitter, at tcoew. On Twitter as well, and Instagram and Facebook. The Congress of Essential Workers. Thank you. You you will. Uh, thank you, Ricky. I will see you next you. week. Great. Great. Thank you, Christian. Thank you. Thank you, Christian. Thank you, Ricky. Before we go to uh, Kenny Bunk to talk to the first lady who's hiding from Donald. It's interesting. You know, Bert Ross, who's on the show a lot, stood up to the mafia. And I once called him a hero. And Bert said to me, it's not amazing that I stood up to the mafia. It's amazing that people consider me a hero, that it just came so natural to Bert. And I think Chris, Chris reminds me in many ways of Bert Ross, where it, there's, you know, it, it was almost simple for him to do what he did. And uh, we'll hear more about it next week. When we come back, we will talk to the first lady of our United States. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy, too. To tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way so much professor mike steinell he is absolutely incredible and he taught us jazz at office hours last friday night if you would like to attend office hours go to davidfeldmanshow.com and hit the office hours menu you'll get a link and you can come join us friday night i'm now calling it the unlearning annex where people like ricky are teaching me to unlearn everything I was taught. Well, let us now go to Kenny Bunk, where the First Lady of the United States is standing by Melania Trump. Hello, baby. Uh, Melania, Melania, Melania. We're going to yes, miss you. Baby. How are you? I am fine. Very fine. Thank you. Are, are you looking forward to your, your hiding out in Kenny Bunk? But then you have to fly to Mar-a-Lago with toenail? Yes, that is correct. Okay. All right. Well, you were such a great first lady. You were the best. You told us the to- The best. You were the best. Uh, 
I was DD best, B best. You were double B best. You double were. B best. Yes. And, yes. and one of the things you've done, and I hope you'll continue, is you've shown up for Diabetic Fury to support this important cause where we're spreading awareness about diabetes. And one of the tears. Diabetes be best. Diabetes. No, no. Diabetes is not the best. Diabetes best. No, no. It's, no. Be bad. Diabetes be bad. And, and you've been helping us. There are certain tiers when people buy a certain level, they, they get what we call shout outs. On there the, are many tiers with diabetes. Yes. Yes. Mostly crying. Crying. Sad, yes. Tears of sadness. Tears of sadness. And your uncle Slobodan often told you about ah, tears of sadness. Yes. And he, wouldn't, wouldn't he My show dear you? Uncle Slobodan, every year we go and we burn down the children's hospitals. You would burn down a children's hospital. That is correct. And, and the tears of, of happiness on Uncle Slobodan's face still bring you joy today, don't they? They are the best tears. The best. Yes, Uncle Slobodan. Well, you were generous enough to do some shout outs for the generous people who, who gave a little extra something for Diabetic Fury. And why don't we give uh, some shout outs, shall we? They give the chart. Shout. This is a shout out. Shout out. Shout. It's a shout out. Shout out. Okay. This first one, our first shout out goes to Landrew. What is the name? His name is Landrew, and he was very generous. So we're hoping you get this shout Aunt out. Aunt Pooh. No, no, Landrew. Hello, Aunt Pooh. This is your Manania shout out to you. Aunt Pooh, wherever you are. No. Ah, you no. make me sick with a name like Aunt Pooh. It's not, what it's, is wrong with you already? It's it's Landrew, not Aunt Pooh, First Lady. I, I don't know how you could even get Aunt Pooh from that. Okay, you are right, Davey. Let's shart over, all right? Yes, please. Okay. Hello, Pants Poo. It's not Pants Poo, it's Landrew. Did you poo in your pants? <laughs> it's what is this about, anybody? It's, 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 this is Manania, first lady. Soon to be former lady. With your shirt out, you ordered. Like all of you, I have infected upon the past year and how the indivisible enema, Corolla 99, <laughs> has slept its way to the top across the country, especially the ugly parts. Oh, this is not going well. As me, your first lady of our great country, the unified stakes of dystopia. A Sears and Roebuck company. Oh. It has been perspiring of me to witness <laughs> the first hand, feast hand. First hand fist and hand. fist hand. Yeah. I meant feast hand. Yeah. Fist hand. <laughs> what the people of our great nation will do to one another, especially when there is profit to be made. <laughs> 
I am particularly disappointed and disheartened with what has happened last week while I was hurriedly packing the vital silver. <laughs> the part of my heart not completely numbed by Botox <laughs> goes out to Air Force veterinarian Ashley Babbitt. She's a veteran. She's a veteran. Was a veteran. Veterinarian. That veteran. is what I said, David. Veteran. Okay. Please do not interrupt me. I apologize, firstly. Thank you. Air Force veterinarian Ashley Babbitt, who tragically lost her life attempting to open a defective door <laughs> on her way to buy a two-year pass to the natural hysterectomy museum. That's not what happened. That, that, that is not what happened. Yes, it is, David. No, she was storming the Capitol. It was, she was, no. She was not no. trying to buy a pass to the natural hysterectomy museum. She lost her life attempting to open a defective door on her way to buy a two-year pass to the nat natural hysterectomy museum. All right, I... Uh, we'll have to agree to disagree. My shards and pears <laughs> go out to all, also to the other victims. I will now name individually. Okay, with please care. do. You're gonna what? You're gonna do what? I am going to name the other victims. Okay. Individually. Thank you for that. Care. Thank you. Person one, person two, person three, and whatever. Next. That was very, very nice. Very nice of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, this next shout out from Melania, First Lady, goes to Jennifer Pelkey. Okay, shout out. <laughs> shout out. It's a shout out. Hello, Raymond Burr. <laughs> it's Jennifer Pelkey. Pelkey. Hello, Raymond Burr. Shout out. This is Melania First Lady, not so much in the future anymore, with your agreed-upon shout-out. It's shout-out, and it's Jennifer Pelkey, not Raymond Burr. I don't know how you could possibly mispronounce a name like Jennifer Pelkey as Raymond Burr. Debbie, do not disrespect Melania. Sorry. You are beneath me and should show proper references in relation to my situation stations. I apologize. Also, I am not porn hooker. Ask my pimp. I apologize. Hello, Raymond Bear. It's Jennifer Pelkey. This is Melania's personal shout out to you and those who know you regarding that big misunderstanding at our nation's capistol. <laughs> Misunderstanding? Last week's, yes. A misunderstanding. A, a misunderstanding at our nation's cap pistol the last capital. week's. The capital, not cap pistol. Cap pistol, crapital, whatever. A misunderstanding. Last week, anyway. Firstly, I thoroughly condom any allegations that Tonel and I had anything to do with the violence caused by the disagreement over parking space. <laughs> Wait, wait, are you are you saying that that whole brouhaha was over a parking spot? 
No, I am saying there wasn't enough good parking and it caused a riot. I, I, I see. Okay. All right. Secondly, I find it shameful that the surrounding these events, there has been sebaceous gossip and false misleading accusations on me. It's salacious, not sebaceous. You're wrong, David. There has been herbaceous gossips on me. It's not herbaceous. It's salacious. Okay, maybe herbaceous too, all right? What the fuck is your agenda? It's just... These should be a day solely about healing our country and its citizens. For tomorrow will be the time for shredding documents, <laughs> packing Barton's belongings, and burying all of his mutilated pets in the White House garden. <laughs> your son... Your son Barton is mutilating pets in the. Well, it's nice you're it's nice you're planning ahead and moving on with your lives. Shut the fucks up already. Oh, okay, I will. Every day, let us remember that we are one nation under a pale, gaunt, Charlie Manson-looking guy nailed to two railroad ties. You're, you're talking about Jesus. Yes. You're, you're comparing he... him to Charlie Manson? Yes, right. David. Right. A Charlie Manson-looking guy nailed to two railroad ties. Okay. May he bless Mike Lindell and my pillows. <laughs> may he bless this United States of America. And may God bless our courageous poops. Troops. Yes. God bless my pillows and our sebaceous poops. This next shout out. And now I show you my pillows? <laughs> no, no, no. Would you no. like to see my pillows? No, thank you. No, thank no? You. no, not now? No. I show you my pillows. No, thank you, First Lady. This next shout out comes to us from Ian Faluna. His name is Ian Faluna, First Lady Melania Trump. Hello, I'm in Fallujah. No. I, Melania, thank you for your servicing of our godly, blessed country. No, it's Ian Faluna, not I'm in Fallujah. David, I do not have time for this viscous personal attacks. Vicious. Viscous. Vicious. I am so over it now. For today, <laughs> we... We memorize the tragic skiing deaths of Dr. Morton Lothar Kings Jr. No. and his baby brother, Bobby Kennedy King Jr. No, no, no. Davey, as you know, Tornell is the least racist white man who has ever given me money not to write a book about it. <laughs> Did you know he knew Malcolm X when he was just Malcolm W? No, I didn't. No. no Did I didn't. you know? I didn't. No, and and I bet you also didn't know that Tonell marched with Martin Luther Kings Jr.? Well, I didn't know. Wait a second. You're telling me that Donald Trump marched with Martin Luther King Jr.? Yes. He, he helped carry the fire hose while everybody was walking. Oh, so he was on the side of the cops. 
No, he was stealing from the fire department. Oh, so he was on the side of the marchers. No, the fire department was putting out a fire at the black church. Oh, so he was on the side of the racists. No, he thought the church was full of Mormons. And now I would like to talk about the potato. Children, the potato is high in glycemic factors. Be best. Thank you, First Lady Melania Trump. Thank you, Daddy. And God bless uh, hang on, I, I can't hear you. The, the, the audience was applauding you. Oh, uh, I understand. This happens all the time. Thank you, Debbie. And God bless our Cretaceous poops in this great land of repatriated Nazi war criminals. Seek to the Heil. Thank you, Melania. Well, wow. Joining us in Kenny Bunk, Maine, is Jim Earl. That will be the last shout out. I'm pretty sure when we do Diabetic Fury, nobody will chip in, want to buy a shout out, shout out ever again from the first. I am not going anywhere, David. I I will be here for all eternity to shout out (laughs) on you. I, I. Don't you forget (laughs) it. Jim, I, I think we had a nice thing going for Diabetic Fury. The first lady would show up, Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. I can't imagine anybody wanting to pay for a a shard out. I don't know. I think they want to hear from the perspective of uh, Floridian. She's been (laughs) living in Florida now. I mean, there's all kinds of things going on in Florida. That was the best one. That was the best one. That was the best shard outs ever. We'll put them up. There's a playlist now on YouTube where you can see all the shard outs. I think that might have been the best one so far. And don't forget, you can go on Marta Previtt's uh, uh, YouTube page and listen to them because she will have them there also. Good. Good. You can Very be, good. A, be offended on multiple platforms. <laughs> Speaking of offensive, as long be as... Be best. Be best. That was amazing. And Heil Hitler. Thank you. Of course. Oh, goes, oh my God. goes without saying. That is Martha Previtt, everybody. So, Jim Earl, I'm not making this up. I got this as an email from Carmel last oh, night. Oh, you, you appear to be uh, freezing. Am I freezing? Frozen in the. Uh, I'm at. Uh, am I still frozen? Stratosphere right now. Am I still frozen? No, now you're, you're unfrozen. This is from Carmel. They have a picture of Dr. Martin Luther King, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day, their day of service. Carmel's great service is there for you in over 300 cities around the world. Let Carmel handle all your transportation needs. It's their big... Oh, Carmel. I remember, I always used to take Carmel to and from the airport. Six, 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 six. Yeah. Wow. And it's their Martin Luther King junior day sale their day of service that could be the most offensive thing i've seen well in the past hour you haven't seen martin luther king cream soda (laughs) so jim earl buy buy, buy two and 
My no. two for one. Free at last. No, no, don't don't do that. Uh let me ask you now. How are you? You took a week off. Martin Luther King had a dream. Yes, We've got did. the cream. Cream soda, that is. Okay. Martin Luther King cream soda. That was very offensive when they did that. Yes, it was. Let me let me ask you about uh, you took a week off. You were relaxing and we're, we're doing another diabetic fury in a couple of weeks, right? Uh, a few weeks, more, more than a couple of weeks, I think. We don't right. we don't have a schedule yet. Yeah, we're, we're taking two weeks off. No more pay-per-views. Uh, no more benefits until we figure out the postcard situation, which seems to have. Uh... Well, people need their postcards. They they expect and they 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 look forward to the things, yes. the little things in life and getting a postcard, a reassuring postcard from an old friend. So let me ask you a question, Jim. Sure, go ahead. You're highly critical, and we need people like you. But here I am. Think of me as Joe Biden. My heart's in the right place. No, it isn't. (laughs) And the postcards. I'm trying. (laughs) I'm trying to, to, to get organized and get these postcards out. Do you have any sympathy for Joe Biden? If I can't get the postcards out on time... Do you think it might be difficult to to take over a country and and get the the system? Difficult. He doesn't want to do anything. What are you talking about? He doesn't want to do anything. He doesn't want to give us free health care at point of service, blah, blah, blah. During a killer pandemic, approaching 400,000 people. Fuck him. (laughs) I agree with you. I agree with you. And fuck Joe Biden. There's a great uh, rap song on video on YouTube somewhere going around. It's, it's just fuck Joe Biden. And, and I feel that way, basically. And he's he's a liar. He's a congenital liar. Mm-hmm. But do you have faith in Washington that he can get anything done? I have, I don't believe in faith. Faith is a belief in something for which there is no proof, as Bertrand Russell famously famously said many times. I, I trust but verify. That's, that's the way I'll go. I'll go the Ronald Reagan route. You've got to verify. And so far, nobody's ver- been verified. Even the, the squad, which is just, you know, utterly feckless in in the shadow of Mama Bear right now. It's, it's offensive. So that's why we need a third party. Can't work within a corrupt party. Can't can't work within a cancerous cell. You gotta leave it. Mm-hmm. Cut it out. Okay. I I. What's your view on this? You're gonna say go along with it. Wait and see. I. Uh, I'm trying to. Part of me is thinking of secretly moving to Canada and telling people I live in New York. Like, how do I? I'm looking like, you know, you drive up to Maine. Maine, you can just get over the border with Maine and you're in Canada. There's no just. uh, Nova Scotia. That's what my ancestors did during the Revolutionary War. They escaped, went to Nova Scotia. 
came back after everything was okay. But then why should you let the bad people win? But they've won, haven't they? But they won. They won 50 years ago. Yeah. The coup, the real coup took place decades ago. Yeah. This, this fake. They stormed the Capitol 50 years ago and bought it. Bought it. Yeah. Bought Congress. So I, when you look at the videos of the insurrection, what do you see now? It's been coming up on two weeks. What do I see? I see uh, I see all sorts of things. I see a bunch of uh, morons. And, uh, all right, forget Congress. Let's talk about the people who stormed. <laughs> and that's kind of, uh, yeah, I see all kinds of uh, right-wing, radicalized right-wing idiots, racists, and black people were there, too. A lot of women. I see a lot of people. Whoa, who, whoa, 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 whoa. There were no black people there. Yeah. I, see, I, saw, it, no. it, there, I saw a couple of black people. Sorry. You're talking about the police officers? No. <laughs> no. I saw a couple of black people dressed up in Trump. There was Ali Alexander, I think, is a person of color, but... I didn't see that many black people. Well, I didn't see that many either, but there were some. I mean, I, are you there was also gonna, there were some Jews. There, there was a there yes. was a there was a person holding the Israeli flag. Yes, that doesn't mean there that these were uh, Jew loving, black loving. No, but children of the of, Enlightenment. What kind of person who is black will take part in a Trump rally? I mean. Stupid person, mentally stupid. ill person, a stupid, yes. self-hating, naive. But I, I am of the sort who will, you know, you you can ridicule, you can uh, ghost these people all you want, but uh, and you can censor them, you can deplatform them all you want, but uh, that's not going to make them disappear. And just like with the so nine eleven. Uh, it's better to dig deeper than the surface as to what happened and to, and to understand what was the rationale in their minds and the conditions that brought all this shit on than to just dismiss it Ooh. and say, we're going to put them elsewhere and pretend everything's gone. Well, do you worry that you're being dismissive of racism? By no. What do you mean? I'm not dismissing racism. I'm not dismissing. The well, I mean, a lot of people who dismiss what happened uh, on January 6th, who, who say it's, you know, wasn't that bad. And there are some people who say that are betraying some hidden racism. I'm not saying that it wasn't that bad, but I'm not uh, I'm not I'm, I'm not. Ignoring racism any more than Martin Luther King did when he said that the economy and exploitation and racism go hand in hand mm -hmm. and that it's all races that's, that suffer under it. And you know, he, he died the year he uh uh, talked about his war on poverty as, a, as opposed to the fake one LBJ was uh, was uh, so was who, crazy. who what are you I'm fascinated by the invasion of our capital on many levels because I can't figure out what it 
exactly it was. Um, what was it? I don't know yet. You know, every day something new comes out about it, some new footage, some new information as to who took part in it, what kind of people they were, professionals. Somebody flew in a private jet. Uh, do, do you think that there are people who, regardless of their financial status, are inveterate racists who want their country back? Yes, but I think uh, racists can be radicalized. And I think, you know, when conditions, economic conditions, radicalize people or, or make it so that they can be easily radicalized into right-wing extremism. But when, that's, when... That's the whole point of this, the whole point. When John L. Lewis was marching on the Pettus Bridge, the Edmund Pettus Bridge, we still had a manufacturing base. White people were doing okay. Those people were not as stripped of their economic dignity as they are now. Sometimes racism just exists. And I'm not arguing without any relation to the economy. I'm not, I'm not disputing that at all. A lot of people who voted for Donald Trump, it turns out, were middle to upper middle class and not poor. Uh, and what does that suggest? Likewise, uh, uh, Joe Biden. But what does that suggest had, had, about had the greatest increase in, in uh, upper class and rich uh, suburbs? What if that insurrection? What, what if during this last election? You what, know that too, don't you? Yeah, but what what if? He what? had the most. He had the. You're he, you're you're doing what aboutism? No, I'm doing. You're not answering my question. Look, look at things. Look at the complete picture. No, no, that's what aboutism. Who funded it? Who funded uh, Joe Biden? Who funded the, who funded this insurrection? It's looking like the Proud Boys, right wing Christians, and white nationalists, and they may be deeper, more entrenched in our society then we know and it might have nothing to do with uh, not having health care really it's nothing to do with okay. it might have something to do with racism it might have something to do with hating black NAF, people nafta it might have something to you, you destruction, your destruction destruction of uh, the worker class that's and, uh, the, the Rust Belt. It, that's part of it. Country, but, that, the but, last 40, 50 years. But racism played a major part in the past four years, five years of Trump's ascendancy. Well, he appealed to that. And he when you see the when you see when you see the Confederate flag, when you see blue lives matter or all lives matter, that isn't about socioeconomic status. That's about racism. So I think I think at, at your peril, you don't think xenophobia has anything to do with the fear of losing your job and, and, and having the an industry, you know, lose. You, you don't think you know, the whole thing about keeping foreigners out of this country is, is the so-called the myth that they're going to be taking all the replacement theory. Yes. Yeah. So 
if if people were paid a decent wage for once, well, maybe we wouldn't have so many people turning to that that racist theme so often as an excuse. Uh, that's one. That's that is a tool to tamp down. What do you think Martin Luther King is talking about? He talked, he talked about, about it, about but it. there's also just racism. White. Okay. We and, have, we have, and black people okay. being exploited by. I think we're, we're going to wrap it up, but let me, let me, let me just caution you that everything oh, you're saying. That's not patronizing, but go ahead anyway. That's a big word for somebody like you patronizing. Let me just caution you. Yeah. I think what you're saying contributes to the inflammation of racism. But racism exists in and of itself. And and what we saw I'm not arguing that against and I'm not, I'm not disputing that. Right, right. And the insurrection, the attack on the Capitol, uh I don't think free tuition at public universities, free health care or renegotiating NAFTA is going to move those people towards us. Those are inveterate anti-Semites, bigots, rapists, sexists, anti-LGBTQ, white nationalists. Yes, that you would dial back. A lot of their rage if they had jobs and secure financial security. You'd also give if you gave them higher paying jobs, they would be donating more money to the Proud Boys. So uh, sometimes sometimes jobs and education can't cure bigotry and chauvinism. Those men are rapists. Ask a woman or a member of the LGBTQ okay, you know, you, what, what they see in those eyes. Me, Dave. Don't do this to me, Dave. This is intellectually dishonest of you. And and if you, you're you're taking you're taking how many were people at the Capitol a week ago? As opposed five, to five seventy thousand, 10, how many million people voted for Donald Trump this last election? Seventy five million assholes. Right. Okay. So there every one of those seventy five million people is a racist, a rapist. Yes. Yes. Okay. Thank well, you, you see, Jim. You see, you see, that's pure idiocy. And that's gonna be the doom of the Democratic Party and this country and our democracy if you can't figure out dig a, just dig a little deeper than than that thought press process as to why people Mark Breslin say do. And as a, also if the same mistake we made with nine 11, you know, you, you think people think it, why do people hate us in, in Muslim countries? I don't understand why this happened to us. We're innocent really sitting here in the towers. And suddenly we get attacked by, by, by these, these barbarians. Why do they hate us so much? Well, you know, maybe if you dug a little deeper, you'd find out. So you're saying there's an excuse for domestic violence. Okay, so you support beating women. Thank you. Thank you, Jim Earl. There's an excuse for for domestic violence is basically what you're saying. Mark Breslin joins us. We'll continue this. Thank you, uh, Jim geez. Earl. Follow Jim well, on Twitter. Gotta we got to keep come back later. Poop off your forehead. Okay. All <laughs> come right. back later. Thank you, Jim Earl. 
Mark Breslin joins us. He is the founder and president of, of Yuck Yucks. They don't need my credits. They don't need my credits. I just want to say it's now 640, and you have cut into 10 minutes of my precious time talking about these irrelevant concepts like class, race, economic disparity, when I have a lot of things to say about these new peanuts that I found. <laughs> they are fantastic. And you know what? If Jim Earl were here yes. and you were here in my house right now, I could get both of you to agree, not on what you were talking about, but on the incredible quality of these peanuts, which are from all places, Scotland. Scotland? When I was in Scotland, I discovered this amazing brand of peanuts. Seriously, KP salted peanuts. I don't know where they get their peanuts from because obviously Scotland doesn't have the climate to produce Peanuts, they must get them from Spain. Um, but they are the most delicious peanuts imaginable. And um, I, they're really expensive to bring in, except we found a place in Canada that actually um, distributes them. So I've got four big tins of these to get through. I shouldn't have too much salt, but they are delicious. So if you're listening and you're into peanuts, <laughs> KE peanuts, never mind this issue of Democrats. You know, the lack of democracy, peanuts, <laughs> peanuts, peanuts. How well, you, David, how am I? I, 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 I never asked you how you are. You always have to ask how we are, but I'm asking you how you are. Uh, you want me to be honest? No, okay. I hate honesty. You know what? I like diplomacy. I'll be diplomatic. I'm exhausted from uh, just life in general. I find the the. Uh, I don't know how much of the the news has worn me down. I don't know how much of COVID around me has exhausted me. I can't tell where the exhaustion comes from, but there's a little bit of exhaustion. Are you no, exhausted? I felt it yesterday. I didn't even want to get out of bed. I was so depressed yesterday, and I don't mean depressed, unhappy. I mean literally depressed. My my vital signs were depressed. Yeah. I, I swear to you, mine too. I could not. I, yep. I got up and then I went. What? But today's a better day. Yes, it is because you you're know, here. In, <laughs> thank you. But today's a better day, and you have to treat this like alcoholics. Um, you know, treat their um, uh, getting off alcohol. They keep saying one day at a time, one day at a time, and that's what I've been doing one day at a time. Except every day seems like Groundhog Day. Except this isn't Groundhog Day. This is Groundhog Year. <laughs> It just drives you crazy. My clubs are closed. Um, they in, in a, a region known as the Maritimes in Canada. Um, they were really good. They w went into complete lockdown, you know, six months ago. And you know what? It, it worked. Um, they were starting to lift restrictions. They're, the caseload has really become low. And because of that, they're allowing clubs and restaurants to reopen on a limited basis. And today I had a nice conversation with a guy who, um, wants to open up a club, uh, Yuck Yucks in Halifax, which we used to have, but it closed because of COVID and they're not going to open again. But he has a he has another space. And it, it was so exciting to be just part of the conversation. Right. Even if nothing happens, it didn't matter. I felt relevant. I felt that I was doing something. Right, right. The, the, That's what I miss. I yeah. miss the action. I right. miss the action. The action. Yeah. Some people may not understand that. 
then they're not in show business, right, David? And they should get into show business. As I've said to so many incels that I've had, <laughs> what are you doing? Get into show business. You'll get they'll, these girls will throw themselves at you. What are you nuts? You could even have a bad haircut. It won't matter. It's the action, and the, the I have had day jobs as a comedy writer, and then I yeah. get a call that they they're offering me very little money to drive to a casino for one night. And all of a sudden I, I, I have light in my step. They want me and I'm driving to the palms to 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 uh, to play to five people. But it's the action. It's the action of putting something into the books. I always feel yeah. like that, that's the closest I would get to fishing that, you know, and mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the action. I miss the action. So anyway, I had a little bit of action today and it felt great and it completely bored my mood. But yesterday, oh, wow, was I in a horrible mood. And I'm not a moody guy. I'm a very consistent, emotionally consistent person. But, oh, I was in a bad place. Bad place. And I felt badly for my family because, you know, my wife and child have to deal with this. But it's not our fault. It's all around us. But there's a dishonesty Everybody's putting on a brave face, a game face, instead of acting like my my life doesn't exist. You know, you turn on the TV, it's one big distraction from this global pandemic. Look, I think the one thing I can't stand hearing is when people run into me somewhere, somehow, and say, how are you? I can't stand that question. Even before the pandemic. Well, I never liked it anyway, but that question anyway. But now, what can you really say? How am I? How am I? Really? You know, my sister had multiple sclerosis. I don't know if you knew this, if I ever mentioned this to you. This was the family tragedy. And she was much older than me, 20 years older than me. And then she got multiple sclerosis. And um, she, people would say, how are you doing today? And she would say, quite shitty, thank you. Uh, my sister. So so but, um, you know, quite shitty. Thank you is really the answer. Yes. I, I'm sick of practicing face. gratitude. That's the other thing. Yes. That's the other thing. Well, I've been practicing gratitude for a year. And? I'm, I'm done practicing it. Oh, now I oh. now I have it. And okay. uh, I want more <laughs> than gratitude. I don't blame you. We do that when we sit down to eat. Um, my wife and child and I, we talk, we each have to mention a gratitude. Um, and um, I guess that's a good ex- exercise, isn't it? We do something different. My, I would we'd sit with my kids when I had a family and small kids. We would hold hands. I would look up to God and say, do better. Do better. <laughs> yeah, don't blame me at all. Don't blame you at all. But it's not, it's not going to get better for a while. And we know that, right? Uh, We're here indoors for a while. I'd say till the spring for sure, summer maybe. But what about the jabs? You're having trouble getting the jabs out. Here's Here's what is pissing me off about Canadians and Europeans. You're making us look good. We're, we're, you know, American exceptionalism. We're supposed to be 
the, the lumbering giant that can't accomplish anything. We have been taken over by this moron. We're the idiots. But you're you can't get the jabs into the arms either. No, it's been terribly organized. Um, and, and I would be angry about it, angrier about it, except that I know that there is nothing that it's completely unprecedented. Um, so you can't get really, really too upset. Uh, and yet my sister got um, my older, older sister, who's 92. She she got the jab. My brother in law got it, who's also 92. They're in a nursing home. And my nephew, who is 60, 62. You have a 62-year-old nephew. Um, my nephew is 63 years old. That's my oldest nephew. Um, he got it, too. He wasn't supposed to get it. But he was over there when somebody didn't show up for the jab. And they said, well, we've got the dose. Do you want it? He said, yeah, I'll take it. And he got the jab. Yeah, because apparently they have to throw it out. There's only, I think, there's That's like, right. a, they can't. It has a very short shelf life when it's out, out of the, right. you know, the freezer or whatever. So they gave it to him because they knew him. He was coming and visiting his parents. Um, and he's, he's a lucky guy to have gotten it. I won't, I'm, I'm still ahead of most people because I'm diabetic and I'm almost 70. Um, but I still won't probably be able to get the jab till the summer. And what's the first thing you're going to do when you realize you can't catch? I know what I'm going to do. Okay. What are you going to do? Throw myself into a moving car, just right in front of a just ruin somebody's life by just jumping in front of a moving car. <laughs> you can do that now. No, I know, stop. but the irony, I want it to be, oh, Henry. Like. No, the real irony is that you actually get hit by the car and don't want to be hit by the car. Yeah. The real irony is that you walk out of the clinic and get hit by the car. Mm-hmm. The real irony is you walk out of the clinic and get hit by the piano that is dropped by Wiley Coyote, kind of, uh, Wiley Coyote <laughs> um, and it falls on you. Right. And the sound that comes out of it is the exact chords of the ending of a day in the life. <laughs> uh huh. <laughs> I I had your day yesterday. I yeah, could no. not. Well, you know, it, we're also addicted to adrenaline. That's the other thing. Yeah. The action. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but you know, David, I don't have to do stupid things for adrenaline. I don't have to go mountain climbing. I don't have to go snowboarding. I don't need to do any of those, you know, extreme sports. To me, my life, just practice the way I do, um, practicing the way I do is a kind of extreme sport anyway. Comedy can be an extreme sport. Yes. Just try being funny to a waiter. Right. You know, you risk, uh, you're right on the knife edge of having somebody walk away and go, well, oh, he's an asshole. Or getting right. s- saliva in your soup. Yes, that's right. right. But if you do it just right, works. Well, so what's the story with America? If you guys you are screwing up. If, well, no, hang on. But if you guys are screwing up the COVID, where does that leave us? We're not we're not we're not even first place in screwing up. We, we're, we, we can't lead the world in anything. Although we are in terms of, we're, really? we're did you watch the news last week? Right. <laughs> what would you do if you were Joe Biden? In all seriousness, if you had to tamp down, how, first of all, how big? I think, I think it's ironic that if there's martial law to be declared, it won't be declared by Donald Trump. It'll be declared by Joe Biden. I think that's a bitter pill for him to swallow. It'll be easier 
for us to accept Joe Biden declaring martial law? Well, you know, um, there was a time when uh, the War Measures Act was invoked in Canada. And the War Measures Act is kind of the equivalent of martial law. And it was invoked in the 60s, no, sorry, early 70s, by our current prime minister's father, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, um, because uh, the FLQ, the radical... Uh, Quebec separatist movement were planting bombs in mailboxes, which now seems so quaint, doesn't it? Ooh, there's the mail. It's gone. Oh, no. What will I do? My JQ catalog was in there. But at the time, it's like it was really, that society was going to fall apart. And when he invoked that, um, and it was martial law, and there there were soldiers in the streets with guns, no one said much at all because he was Pierre Elliott Trudeau. And everybody trusted him and everybody liked him and everybody thought that, you know, he had the best interests of the country at heart. And I'm wondering if and when Joe Biden has to do that, whether he has the personal uh, charisma to be able to get people in the country. And I don't mean the the crazy right wingers, but I mean, just the rank and file, the people who voted for him, whether they'll be able he'll be able to get them to accept this, because I think that the. I think that the right wants this to happen because for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction. And if they can get uh, Biden to do make that move, then there's more reason for more people to hate him. So, so what, what does worries? This is what worries me. What, what does the right want? I, I was the best coverage uh, that I've read so far is in the New Yorker. And they had a reporter who was there with the mob and he videotaped it. And I saw that it was and his writing. I, I forgot his name, but the writing was superb. Basically, these people yeah, I read that piece. too. Yeah, they want yeah. Trump. They want anybody who isn't white. To go away, they they they, they just, the people who stormed. The Capitol hate black people they hate arabs hispanics jews women the lgbtq they hate everybody except trump and then they they just want them to if you're different go away but there doesn't seem to be any policy behind any of this right i don't i don't think so either it's just it's it's an emotional visceral reaction to changes that have happened in this um in your country over the past 40 years, changing demographics, all kinds of stuff. But, you know, I just had a, a thought and it was a good one. And it just, well, while you're trying to remember, I, I, I am a, uh, I'm being woke to far, far left thought, you know, I'm open to, uh, I, you know, I voted for Bernie, but I could even go further left than Bernie. Uh, that being said, racism, misogyny, homophobia, anti-Semitism, bigotry, they're perennials that don't need uh, economic, uh, uh, a bad economic situation to, to inflame it. I, I think just... And this is what you were talking about with Jim. Yeah, I think... Like you, the uh, argument you were having with Jim. I think, um, I think some good orator like Donald Trump can do it uh, even with the economy doing, doing well. 
Yeah, I think so too. But there's something else. I did remember my thought. Yeah. I wonder how many of these people that we're talking about that were in that, you know, melee um, at the Capitol. I wonder if part of this is a kind of um, big city small versus small town country split. I wonder how many of those people were from New York City or from uh, Miami or from uh, you know, Los Angeles or from San Francisco or from Seattle. I, I have a feeling most of them were not. I have a feeling most of them came from places which have nothing to do with um, our incredible urbanization that we've experienced over the past 50 years. That's, I mean, that's one of the biggest changes that has happened to our society in 50 years is, is just the amount of people moving from small places to big places. When you live in a big place, it's harder to be racist because, well, chances are your dry cleaner is from another place, right. for instance. Right. It's harder to do that. Um, you know, I remember my father once saying many years ago that many years ago, if he wanted to live in Toronto and only meet and see and talk to Jewish people, he could do it because everybody lived in their own little community and you didn't really have to go outside of it. Um, that's different now. That's a major change. But it hasn't changed in small places. Right. I don't know. I, I think it's uh, a bundle. Why I support the idea of forced migration of Jews to small towns. <laughs> well, it does put us on our best behavior. Um, and it might put them on their best behavior. <laughs> I mean, the, the term in Judaism is tikkun olam, which you might know. Do you know that term? To, he, to heal the world. Yes, to heal the world. It's really a reformed Jewish concept. Um, but I think it applies a lot. And um, it's, uh, of course, I'm joking about this. And it's also the, pl the, the plot of The Plot Against America, the Philip Roth novel, which was made into a wonderful miniseries this year. Did you see it? I, I saw parts of it and then it was disturbing me. I, I read half yeah, the book and it was disturbing me. What? I'm sorry? Yeah. And amazingly prescient that he wrote that book 20 years ago. And so much of it was exactly, exactly like what's going on right now, including the storming of the Capitol. And he really, it. yeah, there's a, there's a, yeah, there's a whole section on there about, about insurrections and, in in the Capitol and demonstrations and, oh yeah. So uh, I love Philip Roth. I'm a huge Philip Roth. Is it, so it's not over. I mean, we were talking earlier. Over? It's just beginning, but here's what's going to happen. I don't think that um, there's going to be any problem, big problems on inauguration day. And two months later, somebody's going to pull a Timothy McVeigh. And then two weeks later after that, somebody else will pull it. Timothy McVeigh was not a suicide bomber. He walked away from his truck. Right. And he you was know? an ex-soldier. And he was an ex-soldier. You have to, I think you have to have some knowledge of this stuff to be able to do it. I mean, if somebody said to me, okay, go make a bomb, go put it, I would have, I would have no clue, even even following something on YouTube. I wouldn't know right. what to do. No, these people know what to do. And they're kind of see as a soldier, you're kind of taught to see life as, um, as a conflict. So you, that's your default, sort of your default way of looking at the world. So I'm more worried about, um, you know, bombings and uh, somebody going in and a bunch of people going up and shooting up a mall. This is what people were afraid of from all the Islam uh, when there was all that Islamophobia. Right. Guess what? It turns out that that script is really more dangerous for people who are 
you know, native born Americans. Mm -hmm. We have 25,000 guards, men, guards, women in the nation's capital. They are being vetted right now before inauguration to find out what their their leanings are politically. They, they are worried. All it takes is one guardsman. We, you know, this is, it's amazing. Well, here's what you have to do to make sure that there's no, that the, nothing bad happens is when the inauguration starts, just before, send in a ton of pizzas. <laughs> and then they'll be so busy you know, eating their pizza that they won't be, you know, they're supposed to uh, aid an insurrection. Soldiers love pizzas. They love pizzas. National Guard, they love pizzas. So just send them some pizzas. How powerful is Trump? At this moment, uh, he's still the most powerful person in America. Because, you know, um, 70 million people voted for him. I think 40 million of those people voted out of Republican out of habit. Because if you're in Montana, it doesn't matter who the who the players are. You're voting Republican because your father voted Republican and his father voted Republican and blah, blah, blah. Then there's 30 million people left. And you figure 20 million of those at least are sort of moderate Trump supporters. But if you can get 10 million people to do whatever you want to do and jump off a cliff for you, that makes you very, very sadly, very powerful. What would you do with that power? I would probably get them to jump off a cliff. Cliff, exactly. Thank you. (laughs) Let me put my call into Howie Klein. And I lost 10 minutes with you today, which. uh, Well, that's your own fault for caring. I I know. I get you know what I got into country and now we've let everything go to rat shit. uh, are, Are you reading yet? Nope. I will. Don't worry. Okay. let me do what happened. Oh, damn it. Hang on. This is. Here we go. Do they they don't mark uh, Martin Luther King Day, correct? Here? Yeah, they don't. It's not a holiday. No, not even close. Well, (laughs) this is one of those. It's it's a miracle that this show is. However, I should I should mention this. Yes. My friend's father civil liberties lawyer and he brought in martin luther king to speak at temple probably 64 65 and there were rocks thrown through my friend's house through the windows of the house in canada yeah oh yeah all right thank you mark breslin i believe howie klein is here are you there howie i'm here mark breslin founder president of yuck yucks we'll talk to you next week I feel cheated. I only got 10. You owe me 10. I owe you 10 minutes. Thank you, Mark. You owe me 10 minutes. Okay, thank you. I wanted to talk about Phil Spector, but okay. Oh, briefly. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Before you go, Howie Klein, in a previous life, you were running reprise, and did you know Phil Spector? Yes, uh, I hired him to work on the project. So I did know him. I spent some time with him. I got to know him a little bit. And, uh, you know, I admired his work very, very much, but uh, he was batshit crazy. He was either batshit crazy or trying really hard, as I just said on Twitter, 
to come off as batshit crazy, but he was out of his mind. I mean, I, I literally never saw him, even even at a formal occasion where, where I where I saw him, I never saw him without a gun. And he would swing it around like he was, you know, out of his mind. And I believe that he was out of his mind. Mark, did you want to say something about Phil Spector? I don't, I don't, I never met him. I, I have sort of six degrees of separation to him. I dated um, a girl in Los Angeles, a woman in Los Angeles, um, who had dated Phil Spector seriously, and I had the same car, she told me, as he did. I, I was driving a Rolls at the time, um, and she said, he had this car, you know. Hmm. The, the, the exact the, car? Uh, you, the yeah. girl who he killed. Sorry? I didn't hear that. I thought you were going to say you dated the girl that he killed. No. No, I never knew. I never knew Lana Clarkson. Um, but I know people who knew Lana Clarkson. And um, I think Cannibal Girls was her best work. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Okay, thanks. Bye. We'll talk to you next week. Okay, sounds good. Uh, you, you so, yeah, he did uh, Turn of the Century for the Ramones. In 79. Right. Uh, and you and hired him nice. for that? Well, I mean, Seymour Stein hired him, but yes, I was involved with that too. That was his last, That supposedly that was the last album he produced, right? Nope, Star Sailor in 1983. Oh, okay. It was a band that never went anywhere. I don't know why he would pick them. Okay. Yeah, well, he was, uh, you know, he, he was pretty insane with the Ramones. Uh, they they called and complained uh, several times. It was their choice. I mean, Seymour suggested it, but they they uh, they picked. They, they were into it, and uh, they realized uh, very quickly that they were dealing with a, a psychopath who would literally take out a gun and hold it to, to them and say he was going to shoot them if they didn't do what he told him to do. And I don't know that he would have shot them, but he didn't do it in a joking way. And, and they all told me the same thing. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, just one of them said something. So, you know, that was fairly rare among the Ramones for everybody to to agree on something. And it's, so Lana Clarkson ended up dead because nobody had the temerity to say, I'm calling the cops on Phil Spector. Well, I don't know that. I don't know if anyone called the cops on him or not. I just don't know. But, uh, you know, it was not, it was like not, <laughs> let's put it like this, everyone in the music business knew. I mean, at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame parties, he would come into the parties like dead drunk and uh, swinging a gun around. And I would assume back then that was not legal. Is it legal now? Uh, and I, I think in some states, probably, I think you're probably allowed to be drunk and uh, carry a gun. I, I think you. Okay, well, uh, it, this was the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, um, dinners that that I was at with him were uh, in New York City. So I, I, I don't. I would guess that they weren't. They weren't. That wasn't legal then, and it's not legal now. And I don't know if people call the cops on him or not. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they did. And uh, probably one of your your listeners even knows if, if they did or not. Right. Probably 
on the record. But uh, yeah, he was he was a crackpot. He was very very crazy. He, he you know his work was great. I loved it. I loved the Ronettes. Uh, uh, oh, I mean, all that early stuff was part of my growing up experience. And, and so, what was uh, his... a lot of garbage on the top forty, like there is now, and it was I found it unlistenable uh, until his songs came on, and when his songs came on, I thought, wow, they're really good. Right, right. All right, let, let's talk about what happened. Was it two weeks? It's about two weeks ago, almost two weeks. January. It'll be two weeks. Today. Right. What? What? Now, looking back, because I would assume you've been doing what I've been doing and just looking at all the videos and watching it. And I haven't watched it, yes, you're right, and it's horrifying. What, what do you see? What, what, what? I see, uh, I see, well, I see like a large crowd of morons being manipulated um, and feeling like... Uh, they're patriots and that they were, the, they're the, you know, they were yelling 1776, like they're supposed to be freeing the colonies from the British or something. And they have been uh, hoodwinked and fed a line of nonsense. You know, David, uh, I, I was part of uh, several very serious actions in the 60s to end the war in Vietnam. And I will tell you that th this does not have any relationship to that, let alone to 1776. The these people are complete imbeciles. And the ones who are crying now that their commander-in-chief told them to do it, I, I love that idea. Let's have IQ tests. And anyone who w had an IQ of below 70 who was caught inside of the Capitol, be, go, go easy on them. Give them like, uh, you know, four, five, six months in jail. Easy. And anyone who had over a 70 IQ, just shoot them. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I just posted a picture of a German general uh, in the last seconds before he got shot. I posted it on my Twitter feed. So, you know, you can see the expression in his eyes. And he was, you know, in, I don't know it was it's literally a minute before he was about to meet his maker. And, and what I posted was that, wow, these are the days when Americans knew how to deal with fascists. You can't, David, and I insist on this, you cannot negotiate or compromise with fascists. Fascism is a kind of totalitarianism, and you, there's no way that you can do anything with these folks except exterminate them. I'm sorry to say that, and I know there are a lot of people on your uh, among your listeners who you know loathe the death penalty. And I'm not a big fan of using the death penalty. I'm a fan of it in theory, but because, and I've said this before, because the um, uh, this uh, the justice system and our whole society is so riven with classism and racism, I don't believe that you can uh, fairly use it. So, I, so I, I, I'm all for it, but I oppose using it. And I know that sounds a little weird, but it makes sense to me. Except in, in the case of fascists. Fascists, sh just shoot them. There's, so, no, there's nothing else to do with them. You, over down with Cherney, you talk about... But, but like I said, you know, I, I do want to emphasize that if they did, you know, the ones who with the 70 IQs or lower... Uh, don't shoot them. They're too stupid to be able to make up their own minds. And looking at that crowd and hearing them talking, I'd say probably a lot of them did have lower than 70 IQs. 
But we also have people like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz, who are graduates of Princeton. And they were. They didn't break into the building. That's another story. What to do with them? I think for people like that, uh, you know, the hope, the most we can hope for, the most we can hope for, and I don't even think we can hope for this, would be expulsion from the Senate. I, I don't think that that's going to happen. Uh, I think the only way to get them out of the Senate would be for their, uh, their constituents to make that decision. So no, I, I'm not. I'm not saying that. I, that I think that uh, people like Josh Hawley and Ted Ted Cruz, who who inspired them on on, on a certain level, should be <clears throat> should face a firing squad. I don't believe that. Well, what what are you making, by the way? I am making. Uh, can, well, can you stop for twenty fifteen minutes, please? Yes, I can. Thank you. What what are you making? Uh, well, I'm making. Um, like a, uh, a, 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 cab- a, a cabbage and um, Japanese sweet potato and Japanese eggplant dish uh, smothered in Thai uh, peanut sauce. Wow. And the, the last part of that is, is what I was just working on just now, which is uh, tofu. So what I'm doing is coating the tofu in a, in a, in a rub I made, and then I'm going to bake it. Or you're going to bake the tofu. Okay. Yes, I'm going to bake the tofu and then add it to the uh, to the dish with the peanut sauce. It, it, it's it's wonderful. It's my own little concoction. I made it up on my own, and it it never uh, it never fails to please. Okay. So, Bo Brooks, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gosar, Paul Gosar. Jim so, so okay, let, let's get to, let's get to Bolbert first. She's in a, a separate category. Who? So there is uh, now an eyewitness that has her. Uh, showing these uh, fascists around the Capitol. Uh, so, s- assuming that she has an IQ that is higher. Who, who are you 70, talking about? Uh, I'm talking about Lauren Bulbert, the uh, uh, from Colorado. Colorado Congress from Colorado. That's right. So, yeah, so she would fit into the um, uh, the firing squad uh, uh, end of this thing. Well, treason is it treason? Uh, well, it could be, but I mean, she was, it's definitely sedition. I mean, she was following, she was showing the people around who then went and broke into the capital of the United States. And I, I'm not talking about the, the British. I'm talking about uh, these moron uh, Trumpers. So, uh, you know, she should, she needs to, uh, she needs to be expelled from Congress, of course, and then she needs to face uh, justice after that. Ariana now, Presley's office. I'm not, I'm not a judge, so I, I, you know, I don't get to say uh, innocent or guilty. I don't get to say what the punishment is going to be. I'm just giving you my opinion. Everyone has an opinion. Okay, and an asshole. So, uh, Ariana Pre- Congresswoman Ariana Presley's chief of staff says the panic buttons were removed from her office. Okay. Do Do you think that Biden's going to get? sworn in there's going to be a blue ribbon blue ribbon commission that looks into it it'll be bipartisan of course will we will they reveal that there was this conspiracy or will they do what the 9-11 commission did i don't don't know that that's the way it's going to go there are already uh, if i remember correctly either five i think five House committees, and I'm sure there'll be a Senate committee or two, five House committees that are already looking into this. So it's not just going to be 
some blue ribbon, bipartisan, whatever, that's going to cover it up. These, these House committees are extremely serious about this. This was their lives in danger. And they, this means a lot to them than if it was our lives in danger. And you write about the Republican amnesia. You're going to have people like Jim Jordan, Louis Gohmert, Matt Gates saying this is nonsense. It was just a mob that got out of hand. Well, those are the people, the ones that you named, are among the people who don't get a say in anything. Uh, I'm not worried about what, uh, you know, Jim Jordan and Willie Gohmert say about this. They're culpable. The, you're, you're talking about the ones who um, should lose their seats in the, in, in the House. And will corporate America, are they, how, are they pulling the plug? To some extent, they are. I mean, yes, they they don't. They're a little bit nervous about being associated with this kind of extremism. So, lots and lots of companies over the last two weeks have said either they will no longer fund Republicans who were among the ones who did blank, blank, and blank. I mean, uh, you know, most of them saying that they they will no longer fund Republicans who voted to not accept the uh, the election results. That seems to be the main thing that they're complaining about. Others are saying, um, you know, others are saying two other things that are completely different. One is that they have, they will stop donating to any Congress people at all. The, the, I mean, no Democrats, no Republicans. You know, we're, we're finished with uh, donating money, which is kind of good too because the idea of getting them out of politics is kind of something that we've been uh, hoping for. Uh, and then the other, uh, another batch is, is being, you know, they're looking at it much more closely. They're saying, well, we're not going to give any money to, uh, you know, Mo Brooks and to uh, uh, Lauren uh, Bobert and to Marjorie Taylor Greene because they were inciting the riot and, as well as uh, uh, Josh Hawley and, um, uh, Ted Cruz and uh, and Ron Johnson. Oh, by the way, there's a funny thing about that. And it, when they, uh, you know, uh, I forgot the name of the chain. Um, Lowe's, Lowe's, Lowe's is a, not just a hardware store. There's also a Lowe's uh, hotel chain. And uh, Hawley had been having for a long time. He had been planning, and I, I know he had been because I sent uh, Alan Grayson a note about it a few weeks ago. He had been cha- uh, planning a big fundraiser in. Uh, Orlando at a, at a Lowe's hotel, and and Lowe's pulled the plug on it at the last minute, and freaked Hawley out, and he was very angry, and he's suing everybody, and he's you know pissed off about it. Uh, the interesting thing about that, when you think about it, it wasn't like they were paying Hawley. Hawley was paying them to use his facility, and they had already paid half, I, I guess, and they said, "Here's your money back. We don't want your business." And that's that's more than, in some ways, uh, just uh, telling him we're not going to give you any more contributions. So, yeah, they're getting in trouble from corporate America, at least for now. We'll see how long that lasts. None of these people are up for uh, re-election this year, right? Uh, and how powerful is the money spigot? I mean, if you don't get the money spigot, if it turns off, then... Yeah, it's it's very powerful. You know, each of these corporations, not each and every one of them, but many of them, were, uh, you know, had given 
uh, you know, um, literally millions of dollars, like a million, two million, three million to, to, uh, to all these candidates in aggregate. But when you take all of them together, all of these corporations together, that's millions and millions of dollars that's not going to be uh, spent on the corrupt political system. So I love that. The fact that most of that, that money is, you know, by far is going to be taken away from Republicans, I love even more. But I'm, I, I have no problem with that money being also withheld from Democrats. I just don't think corporate, corporate money should be uh, in politics anyway. And I think if the Democrats, if I'm sorry, if the Republicans uh, start getting the feeling that any of these corporations or that many of these corporations are going to keep up the boycott, they will uh, join with the progressives and ban corporate money. And that would be the best thing that could possibly happen out of all of this. No, the best thing would be Ted Cruz's head on a pike in front of the Capitol. But other than that, uh, the best thing would be um, banning corporate money. Do you have any sympathy for Kamala and Joe Biden going into this? It, it, it reminds me of 2009, you know, the country suffering and instead of taking care of the 99%, we instead have to save the economic system, the rest of us be damned. And now we're all suffering. Everybody's broke. And conveniently, uh, we have to save the soul of the country. Democracy is at stake. You know, the evictions and the... Of the country, I mean, it is that's part of it for sure. I'm sorry, but remember, they also, you know, have to deal with COVID, which is a very, 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 very real thing. Uh, that's got to be first uh, their first priority. There is a, uh, you know, Trump managed to bully the Fed into keeping the um, uh, ke- keeping uh, uh, an economic depression from happening, and that's going to end now. So, they, and they're going to have to deal with an economic depression. You mean they have a lot. To- it's a, it's a very. I, I feel sorry for them in a way because they have to deal with it. Uh, but you know, I'm not really sympathetic to them as politicians because they're both terrible politicians. Uh, I mean, Biden much, much, much worse. No what do you comparison. mean? What, what do you mean that Trump forced Powell to keep interest rates low? Yeah, that's right. I mean, he kept pressuring him and pressuring him, and although Powell would often push back. He, he, and on the overall of, of uh, he didn't he didn't push back. He pushed back uh, here now and then, but he kept doing what Trump wanted him to do overall, even though he knew it, it was uh, probably a mistake. So you're saying Biden is. Biden- it wasn't just keeping interest rates low. That was part of it. It was also uh, buying back um, uh, bonds, to, you know, billions and billions and billions of dollars worth, which which helps to prop up, um, you know, the, the, the top 1%, top 5%. I don't think it's 5%, but definitely the top uh, uh, families in America in terms of economic wealth. And, and because they still believe in trickle-down. If we just save the top uh, families and, and, and their corporations, it'll trickle down to everybody else. They, they, they actually really believe that. And because they never see anybody else anyway. And so Biden... And unless they made comes in and they talk to them, which I doubt. You're saying Biden comes in and starts dealing with some of the reality that Trump wouldn't yeah. touch, and that's going to spark 
a depression or are we just going to acknowledge a depression that uh, it, you know i don't think biden wants to spark a depression but uh, what what trump was doing is not sustainable and uh, you know biden will try as best he can to uh, to acknowledge that it's unsustainable and to get out of it but i and i i can't see that there's any way to do that without um without starting a depression. Hopefully I'm wrong. But what do you mean? How, how does he start a depression? by the? No, I don't think he is going to start a depression. I think that the economy is is on uh, the verge of a depression. Uh, uh, Trump knew that. I don't know what he knew, but Trump probably knew that. Certainly the economists around him knew that. And they were just doing everything to make it appear that there wasn't a depression, even though more than half the country is living in a depression. They're already living through a depression. Right. Uh, unfortunately, what I see Biden doing, I mean, they're, they're already talking about things that, that are going to help the richest. They, they, they made up this uh, bullshit about uh, the $2,000 checks. I mean, the reality is, is that the U.S. should be doing what Canada is doing and what the EU is doing. People should be getting checks, whatever the amount is going to be, uh, 2000 would be great, uh, but they should be getting them every month. And instead, Biden wormed out of even giving one $2,000 check. The promise that the Democrats made, certainly uh, during the Georgia campaign, no one ever said the word 1400 Everybody said 2000 over and over and over and over. And Biden himself said, if uh, I get these two seats, the $2,000 checks will go out immediately. He said the $2,000 checks. He didn't say the $1,400 checks. So that gives me the idea that we have some really uh, low expectations coming up here. Okay. Before you go, back to the insurrection. Uh, we, we're... The, the jo- jobs in America suck. We have working poor, but unemployment, it, it's spiked, but it's it's down now. It's what is it? Six percent, six point seven percent in December, which is horrible and, and heading up and heading up. And the jobs that people have don't pay. And I understand that. But when you look at the insurrection, many people have multiple jobs to right. keep uh, to you know, keep their family uh, fed and, and housed. Right. So how much of that insurrection was about unemployment and uh, economic insecurity? I, I, I don't think very much of it was, uh, to tell you the truth. Did you see uh, many African-Americans and uh, Hispanics in that crowd? No, I did not. No, I didn't either. Interesting. And, and they're the ones that have the uh, the worst situation with unemployment. So who, I didn't see them. So I, I, I believe that these are brainwashed people. I am praying they do what my suggestion about uh, giving them all IQ tests, everyone who they uh, take into custody, because I really believe that most of them, not the leaders necessarily, but most of the, those people walking around the Capitol were really, really low IQ imbeciles. Uh, borderline imbeciles who listen to hate talk radio all day or uh, or watch Fox News and they don't know any better. They that's why I said we got to we sort of to be humanitarians. 
those people, you know, the real low IQ people who can't put, you know, don't know that one, one plus one equals two, I don't think they should be shot. I don't think I don't think they should be dealt with harshly. I, I, like I said, six months in jail is enough to maybe teach them a little lesson. And so what is Biden up against in terms of quelling this, quote unquote, insurrection? What's the oh, price? Is it, is it, is it? But we'll see. We'll, we'll see uh, uh, this week, you know, uh, if, if they I mean, the Proud Boys have put it out to their members. Uh, don't go to any of these um any of these events don't you know it's a trap don't go don't go don't go don't go to the national one don't go to the state ones but yet it's all set up for all these uh poor schmucks to go to them and i mean do you think that they're going to be using live bullets and be shooting people i mean that to some people that's the goal they want to start a civil war they want to start a race war they want action they want they want some of these uh, you know, this cannon fodder to get shot. That's what they're looking for. Right. This is like the war on terror, and it's got to be conducted in the shadows and done smartly and tamped down. And it never ends. It is like the war on terror. You can't put an end to this overnight, but you can connect the dots and you can uh, root it out in our military and, uh, our police force. police force yeah but it, it's never going to go away it's baked into it's baked into humanity everybody uh, there's a little racism and fascism in all of us and certain certain radio shows certain leaders activate it in some of us so what are your thoughts yeah, about I don't, I don't know that any american leaders actually uh, you know, Nixon a little bit, and and then of course Trump uh, were really into into doing that kind of thing. I mean, historically there there have been, but I don't think there have been in our lifetimes. What are your thoughts they, about shutting down Trump's Twitter account and Amazon making it harder for Parler to exist? They are saying they are saying that once Twitter shut down Trump's account, misinformation. The, Drop precipitously. False, you know, fake yep. news suddenly disappeared. All that chatter has disappeared. Well, it didn't disappear, but there was much less of it. Yeah, I, I agree with you uh, that 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 happened. But you know, I'm I, I'm not comfortable, and, and, and I'm not I'm not I'm not. It's a real problem, and, and I'm I, I have I'm, I'm split in how I feel about it. On the one hand, I am not comfortable with uh, corporations uh, shutting down uh, elected officials. You know, they shut down Trump, who I hate and I'm glad. I, I, I mean, if it was up to me, he would have had his head chopped off. And they shut down uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene as well. Um, and and I, I have like, I have a funny feeling about that. You know, I mean, wh what happens if they, if they start shutting down uh, progressives also at some point? All right. To be continued, Howie Klein is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America Pack. Who do we have next week? Next week, we have, I think it's uh, Colin Bird, who is running against Denny Hoyer for Congress. Colin is a uh, is the mayor of uh, Green uh, Greenbelt, uh, Maryland. I, I suggested last week that everybody look up uh, Greenbelt. Did you? No. 
Look up Green Belt, David. You're going to be so inspired. So uh, he's he's going to be our guest. And then I have uh, lots of guests lined up, incredible people, just amazing. I, I spoke to one guy today uh, who Blue America is about to endorse. He's running for the Cedric Richmond seat uh, in uh, Louisiana, uh, a guy um, who's just like phenomenal he's like amazing gary chambers jr is his name he's a, he is such a star he literally this you know there aren't many candidates who, you know there are many candidates who can be great in, in certain ways but there aren't many candidates who can dance into congress and change the way congress does business aoc cory bush very 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 few others this guy is one of them this guy is like unbelievable. I mean, a Bernie guy, an activist in Baton Rouge, and you know we're going to do everything we can to help him to win the seat. Right, uh, Cedric Richmond is going into the White House to do Jared Kushner's job, which and, and well, no, I don't think so. Cedric uh, Richmond is a moron. He's was one. He was a terrible Congressperson, uh, useless, completely useless. And uh, the only thing he ever did was uh, help uh, to round up the establishment black vote for uh, Biden. And he's a new damn, you know, conservative owned by uh, oil and gas. It's such a great thing to get rid of him. And almost anybody would be better than him. And before but, you go, we're, we're out of time, but Jamie Harrison is going to be the new head of the DNC. You upset me before we go? <laughs> yes, Jamie Harrison. Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, a lifelong lobbyist, corporate lobbyist for his whole life. That's all he's ever been. But he raised so uh, much money in his race against Lindsey Graham. He, raised, he didn't raise any money. All the money that was raised was raised because people hate Lindsey Graham. That's why the money was raised. He'll he'll just be another in a long line of just disastrous D- DNC chairs. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Howie Klein, follow Howie on Twitter at... Down with tyranny. Thank you, Howie. Thanks, David. Talk to you next week. Thank you. Let us now. We have uh, Ethan Hershenfeld and Dave Cyrus together for the first time. Uh, we we uh, are very excited. Ethan Hershenfeld is an actor and a comedian, and Dave Cyrus is a screenwriter. Dave Cyrus. Yes. Your microphone isn't working. Jesus, really? Yeah. Oh. Tap on it for a second. Ethan, hit your microphone. Is mine working? Blow into it. Yes, yours is working. So while Dave is working on his microphone. Oh, I could hear him. I don't know why you could. Well, he's using his computer microphone, but that's okay. You're just hope. No, no. I mean, you sounded okay. It just wasn't coming out of your microphone. You have to check all your preferences and your privileges. And now we can't hear you at all, Dave. Yeah, we can't hear you. Ethan Hershenfeld, while we're waiting yes. for the brilliant Dave. I do a really good Dave uh, Cyrus impersonation, so you can just. Uh, all right, sorry. Tap the microphone. Okay, Dave Cyrus. I'm here. Okay, well, we'll ch- I want to ask you the first question. Since I've known you, you've always studied. You've paid attention to the basket of deplorables and i always yes. thought why listen to alex jones why care about QAnon? They're, they're intellectual lightweights why why should they take up your time but you 
to your credit, have stayed on top of these people. You've been fascinated by them. Physically, yes. You, yes, as, as one of your characters, you've gone out and interviewed them. Brickstone, mm-hmm. I believe. Yeah, no, I've done a lot of conspiracy, crazy people type stuff. And that was before QAnon. And yet a lot of them just sort of ended up as QAnon, which is oddly predictable. All right, here's the, the people- question I'm asking today. And I'd like both of your responses. I see things through class struggle. I recognize the importance of identity politics, but I pushed, you know, I thought it was more important to have Bernie than Elizabeth Warren. And because I think class struggle is more important than seeing a woman in the White House who's going to betray the 99%. But when it comes to these people who stormed the Capitol, is there mm-hmm. any amount of free education and health care that could cure them? Uh, it's not. Well, I mean, it's not free education and health care that can really have the uh, opportunity to fix these people. It's a cultural shift. It's a complete change. And while education and health care might help because, you know, you can teach people what's right and you can help them with their mental illnesses. That is a very big part of why people fall into these conspiracies. You're not going to change the fact that we live in a society that weaponized attention and it's better to be known for horror reasons than be nobody. As long as that's the dynamic, we're screwed. And I think that, yeah, healthcare and education will help. That's definitely a big part of this. But we have a bigger worldwide problem because the whole world doesn't have an education or healthcare problem, but the whole world does have a right wing strongman problem. So it's not about us. We may be worse, but it is clearly a cultural global problem. Ethan? I agree. Well, thank you. But that's not a show. So somebody has to take the other side. Get a hot take, Ethan. Yeah. If you agree and I agree, then we don't have a show. My hot take is you look at you look at the march. Just say it. Just say it. But hang on. Hang on. You're doing great. But just direct it towards Dave accusatorily like he like he missed. Yeah. Just say what. Repeat what Dave said, but throw it back in his face with a lot of anger. Yeah, when you say cultural shift, Dave, I mean, come on. Thank you. Cultural shift? I mean... You've made a powerful enemy today, Ethan. (laughs) (laughs) Now, now, this is good. Good. Okay. That's fireworks. No, what I was going to say was that uh, I agree with everything Dave said, but I... I, I, Is it okay if I call you Dave? Please. Okay. Um, I'm going to call you Dave also. David, can I call you Dave also? Sure. Okay, good. Um, so I believe that there's a, a, a part of this whole uh, brouhaha that people aren't discussing enough, which is a, aerobic fitness. I feel like these capital storming guys, if you just look at them, people are commenting on when you look at them, they're, they're homogeneous in certain ways. The other way they're homogeneous is they're really out of shape. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even the point. Olympian, there was an Olympian gold medalist and he was out of shape. Yeah. I feel like if we could get these guys some calisthenics, some old school like gym classes. If we could get physical education back in the schools, they would have an outlet for some of their aggression. They can have a sense of achievement, a sense of belonging to a team that's not just happening on a TV. And they they might be able to put all that energy uh, towards something productive. And I feel like that would be more fun and, and dare I say, more American. 
I'll tell you this, all the people, I mean, the, and this will be a bigger discussion, but like the lie that they're going with right now, that those thousands of people were undercover Antifa. Now that is one, even for Trump and MAGA, that's one of the weirdest, most easily disproved, easily provable lies that it's so crazy that it's one of those avalanche ones where like you're pulling the Jenga piece that should not be pulled and a lot of other stuff is going to collapse because people are going to realize that's just ridiculous. But one of the most obvious ways of proving it is when was the last time you saw that many fat Antifa? <laughs> All those guys were overweight with big gray beards. That is not what Antifa looks like. It's the, it's really simple. Those guys looked like the average age was about 50. The average weight was about 250. <laughs> and I'm not even trying to be petty about it. I'm saying literally, that's how you know, for one of many reasons, these are clearly actual Republicans. So yeah, we know a couple of comedians who didn't show up, but were dismissive of these people. Because, you. Yes. Huh? <laughs> well, no, I just mean that you and I had the discussion where you were like, he's just going to leave. Nothing's going to happen. Right. But we I'm not going to mention any names, but there's some comedians who thought those guys were right and were harmless. And in the end, really didn't do anything all that bad. That was me. I was that was my mistake. I thought that these guys were just clowns and buffoons when and I was wrong that day. Yeah. You, you thought they were clowns and buffoons. Yeah, Before I thought you they, saw were, all they were tantruming, tantruming idiots. But in fact, uh, they I guess they do they do post some threat. And that was obviously before I knew that people were actually killed and before seeing video footage of, of yeah. violence. Brian, Brian Sicknick, uh, my age, grew up in my hometown. Uh, people I know had his mother for their kindergarten teacher. Uh, people I know. He's the police officer who got hit in the head by the fire. Yes. People I knew knew his father as a police officer in my town that I grew up in. Um. And he's a guy who was just doing his job. And uh, what about know, the story that the cops let it happen? The video I'm looking at that, I think, is on. Oh, I think it's unfair. It the happen. more video is, I look they at, were gonna get, they would have been murdered. They would have been slaughtered. Right. They were trying not to get killed. And I, I, I am not going to go tell any cop surrounded by 400 people that he should have just started swinging his billy club. Right. Because th- it was not the cop round. This was not the uniform officer's fault. Right. This at the beginning, at the beginning, and I, I have to apologize. At the beginning, I said what a lot of people said, which was if if they were black, they would have been mowed down by the Capitol Police. And I was wrong for saying that because the videos I look at, the cops were overwhelmed. And even the cop who took the selfie there's a picture of a cop taking a selfie. They were placating. They were outnumbered. And their primary concern was making sure, as I understand it, that the senators and the Congress people were out of harm's way. Exactly. And they did a fantastic they job. They did do that. a fan. They did. So we talk about those cops. The cops on the ground, the cops in that building did an unbelievable job. The leadership are the ones who made sure that they were outnumbered. The leadership are the ones who did not prepare for this. But the cops on the ground, that one police officer shoved a guy who wanted looked like he wanted to kill him and led a pack of them away from the Senate chamber. That guy is such a hero. You're talking about the African-American who got chased upstairs. 
And we have to assume that that man, that man knew these people want to kill senators, but maybe they look at me and they want to kill me more. So follow me upstairs. He made himself bait. That is, that guy was such a goddamn hero. And that really, honestly, that got to me Uh, to see that guy. He knew what he was doing. He knew what might've happened to him. And he still did his job better than anyone could have imagined. Yeah. I want to apologize because my because I said something and I was wrong. My knee jerk reaction. I'm just no, going to work. But, but you were hang on, hang on. Let me just get my apology out because yeah. I, I, I want to admit that I was wrong. My knee jerk reaction the next day was they let these people in. And had they been black, they would have been shot. When I look at all the videotape and I am trying to see, look at as much as I can. I see police officers doing their job, trying to stop these lunatics, these yeah. insurrectionists from getting in. And the the selfie there, there's there's video in the the New Yorker magazine has some really chilling video of these five lunatics in the well of the Senate sitting in Mike Pence's chair and one cop comes in and he's saying things like, you know, you're really crossing the line here. And like, this is the sacredest of all sacred places. Can you leave guys? And somebody said, well, why aren't you arresting us? And the cop goes, well, it's one, two, three, four, five and me. I'm outnumbered. So can we just... And I thought I have no problem with what that police officer did, but you are correct. The, if it was a Black Lives Matter protest, they would have been mowed down because the leadership would have had way, way more armed people ready for them. They would have gotten these reserves. They would have treated it like an attack. So I think the leadership deserves all the blame you're talking about. But the, the, those poor cops on the ground, that was not their decision. And I agree that cop telling them he was literally saying as much as he could to try to do his job without dying. Right. You and that I, guy wearing, that guy was carrying fucking flex ties. Right. He you, was there to take hostages. Right. You and I, Dave traveled around the country La- last year, around this time we were down in Washington, DC, getting into trouble with the Capitol police. Yeah. Uh, I was uh, almost arrested for doing something. Mm-hmm. And it was a little kabuki dance with the protesters. I, this is one of the things I noticed with the Capitol Police. And this is really important. The the Capitol, I don't know if it's still going to be, but the Capitol is like a shopping mall. Everybody is welcome there. You're allowed to wander around and you're allowed to knock on any senator's door, any congressperson's door. And ask for an appointment, as long as you're not carrying any weapons. There's a metal detector. We were doing, Dave and I were doing something, and we were kind of taking advantage of it. And I interrupted Lindsey Graham's press conference. and Great moment. Great moment. And the Capitol Police knew who I was. And they gently threw me up against the wall and put my arm around my back. And... And it was a kabuki. It was it was they knew that I was disrupting Lindsey Graham. They knew I was a goofball. They didn't arrest me. And there's something beautiful about that. The same way when a code pink 
interrupts. There's a little theater involved. And they, didn't you get a sense that that is something they, the Capitol Police respect, Dave, that, that, that people are allowed to heckle and scream in our Capitol? That, that yeah, I'd agree with that. I think that, and I think it's a very important thing that they understand that, that, they're, that these people are there to be yelled at. Yeah, sometimes. And that, you know, people have to have a right to it. Obviously, this is not what that was. This was a riot. This was a, you know, a very different situation. But yeah, that did definitely affect the way the police sort of reacted to them. Because it's not like they were breaking into a bank. They were breaking something more important than that. But the rules were just very different. And an argument is going to... Now, what are you going to do? Are you going to try the seven... How many people? 7,000 broke through? 5,000? Who stormed well, we there? I mean, there should be consequences. Most there of that's going to be misdemeanor be. trespassing, though. If that's what all we have, and if they get, but I mean, if you get caught stealing something, if you if you have the guy who so took stupid, the lectern, yeah. What do you think I'm he's sure going to do? Time. Well, let me ask you this: If I stole forty dollars from a post office, that is theft of government property. I'm going to get I'm going to get in a lot of trouble. You really think you're going to go to prison? Do you think the guy are, Oh, maybe maybe I wouldn't, but there are a lot of people in this country who are in prison for stealing from the government because they stole some from the post office. There's plenty of people out there doing real time for that kind of crime. And I think that it would be great if we could use them as an example of showing them that a white person breaking into the into the White House should get treated as badly as a black person who stole a stamp. You know, that's here, here. I agree to, with you. I, I don't see uh, the guy who took the lectern doing time. I, I think he is going to do some time. And uh, I think he's in Florida, that guy. Um, and uh, I think uh, the people who had some high profile photo of them that is unavoidable and they're unmistakably the people who committed those crimes if it's theft or if it's vandalism i think they are going to do time and they should I'll tell you what that woman who tried to sell a laptop to russia yeah. that's got to be a very very serious crime and she was that was that looked like her whole plan like she was on a mission to get a laptop and sell it to the russian intelligence i mean they already know what's on that laptop i mean that's what's so sad about it is watching these people but i mean that's what honestly i don't want to talk a little bit is like this was a window into a world that I think a lot of people did not really understand. And when you see these people crowding around uh, pieces of paper that are on the desks of the Senate, thinking that they're going to unravel a mystery is that's how you under these are not human beings in the way that they think. That is something that everyone listening right now, everyone in this, you know, Zoom right now, you would maybe at eight, nine years old think that that made sense. But by the time you're through puberty, you would not think it's even remotely possible that there are just random pieces of paper on the desks of senators that are that are so incriminating. It's going to unravel the whole mystery. I mean, they were literally saying there's got to be something on here. We can get. Oh, they they, they misread the Ted Cruz statement. There was one guy who thought Ted Cruz was going to certify the vote. And literally, the guy reads, I'm I vote to not certify the vote. He sold us out. Oh, wait, not certify the vote means no he's a good guy he he's a good guy they are the simplicity necessary to think the way these people thought 
is mind blowing. I mean, they, their attitude was we overran the Capitol, so we're in charge now. A lot of these people really thought that it was like they would be able. I mean, the plan was they thought they'd be able to physically force the senators to make Trump the winner of the Electoral College and then go home and Trump stay. Pre- and it's like, think about how simplistic your mind has to be <laughs> to think that if you occupied the Capitol building, you are in charge of the country. Well, Dave, Here's what it problem. is, it's, it's football fans. Because that's yeah. really what it is. When you cross that line, you have now won. You don't have to do anything when you get to the end zone. That's right. the mentality. Think of it this way. What would have happened if that was true? If all those people overran the Capitol building and then we had to say, well, they get to make the law. <laughs> what would have happened to those people the next day? A hundred thousand people would have slaughtered them, would have walked up and said, oh, I guess we could just take over. And you would have had everyone on the other side say, well, all you have to do is get more people and we're in charge now. Like, it's so stupid. Are they just stupid or do they want anything? Can it be both? Well, they're being led by people. They're also being manipulated. You know, there's the yahoos and then there's the people who are trying to aim them at what they want to do. And let's not forget, you're 100% right. Ethan's right too. These people are yahoos. These are crazy people. These are a bunch of people without really a plan. But that's what the beer hall push was. Hitler got a bunch of drunks together and said, let's go steal a bunch of weapons and take over the mayor's office, you know, for the, essentially. That's what the brown shirts were. History has a lot of examples of stupid, drunken it's being used by others. Mm-hmm. And that's what could have happened. We, we came really close to seeing famous senators hanging in the rotunda and people being forced at knife point to declare Donald Trump the Electoral College winner. Now, obviously, that wouldn't have actually taken into effect, but it could have happened. And it, may, and it probably would have happened if not for a few cops directing them away from them and doing the really amazing job of they never gave those congressmen, they never gave those people access to them. All right, let me ask you. Can you even imagine what would have happened if Nancy Pelosi or Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez? Let me ask you. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Because the answer terrifies me. I'm watching the videos and I see these men, these incels going, Nancy, I'm home. Oh, Nancy. And they Let's kill her. Let's hang her. What would have happened if she said, hello? Now, let me propose something. Well, no, I won't. But do you do you think it's unimaginable to me? I'm sorry to have killed her. You think they would have killed her? I have absolutely no question in my mind. I think a lot of people there would not have wanted to kill her. But you don't need everyone to agree. You only need maybe a small percentage for it to be uh, unavoidable. You know, none of those people wanted to kill Roseanne, uh, that, that Roseanne woman. I forgot her last name, uh, her, her, who was trampled. It just happened in the, in the moment because that's what happens when people act crazy. I think what would have happened if they were completely left carte blanche, if the Capitol Police did not do a better job, we would have seen a few dead congressmen and then they would have done whatever they said. And then you would have seen thousands of people 
arrested. But I mean, that's not unreasonable. That's what they were there for. They were there to kill people. Maybe not everyone, but enough that people would have died. We saw, how many people did you see in those videos talking about, let's make a list. Where's Nan? Where are they? Where are they? They kept saying, hang Mike Pence. If they're going to hang Pence. Okay, now let me just push back a little. We only have six minutes left. Uh, They are the worst of the worst. They're the basket of deplorables. But if Mm -hmm. Gosar, if these QAnon Congress people were giving tours of the the Capitol days before, showing the escape routes, wouldn't it make more sense to, uh, if you were in on it, would, there are other ways to, I don't even like saying the words, but to do these deeds against Nancy Pelosi. And there are other ways to uh, eliminate your enemy than the the messiness of an insurrection if you if you're on the inside and you wanted to do damage to these congress people there there are much more elegant ways of doing it than a mob well i i'm not going to sit here and say that the that the QAnon congressmen were literally trying to get nancy pelosi murdered I think it was more like they just they're it's like Trump. They just wanted chaos and they wanted to let just let chaos take over and see what happens. And then because then it wouldn't be their fault. They don't want to be responsible. They wanted to just kind of let a fire get out of control and hope it kills who they wanted to kill. Ethan, do you think it was so we agree that it wasn't some monolithic block that stormed the, the Capitol with plans to take Nancy Pelosi hostage. It, I, I, it, right. I think it's, a, I think it's a, yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's a minority of people who, for example, would actually pick up a fire extinguisher and conk someone over the head, even though they were bent on this idea of kind of forcing the outcome that they wanted. Not many people, I think have that level of actual physical violence capability within them. But exactly as Dave said, you don't need a lot of them in a group of 5,000 people. Five of them is enough to do some killing. And there are definitely five, 50, if not a hundred who came to, who came to kill. Yeah. 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 Right. That guy was beating a cop with a a broom, with a a pole, you know, he wanted to die. He what? He wanted that cop to die. In the moment he wanted it. Yeah. Did he want it a day before? I'm wondering how I'm wondering what we're going to be seeing in 16 months when the trials start. You know, Rick Snyder, the governor of Michigan, poisoned an entire city, is guilty of ethnic cleansing of killing, giving like 15,000 black kids lead poisoning. He's facing one year in prison and yeah. I think like a $10,000 fine. If this were China, he would be literally beheaded. Or or be the head, depending on... Uh, anyway. Well, it depends who they wanted to scapegoat. Yeah. But yeah, he should be he should be in prison for life. Obviously. So how, how, many, how many of these people are going to... It might Plead be a lot. guilty to, you know, misdemeanor trespassing and 
they're not ex-governors. Poor but white they're people. white. Yeah, but poor white people often do get screwed by the justice system, too. Certainly not as much as non-white people, but it's not like it doesn't happen, especially when they want to make an example of you. There's plenty of poor white people who have been, you know, railroaded by this country, too. It's just they have a lower chance of it happening. And do they want to make an example? I mean, we're talking about unity now. We have Garth Brooks, who's going to be singing at the inauguration about healing and unity and Joe Biden is going to give a message of healing and unity and tell us this is not who we are. Is it is now the time for healing and unity? Is this the right time for healing? Uh, I mean, no. sorry, go on, Ethan. Oh, no, absolutely not. I think that that's a load of hokum. And that's been a load of hokum for at least six months. People have just been yapping away about unity. And it's a meaningless concept. We don't need unity. We have a country that's based on argument and two parties and you're allowed to disagree you're supposed to disagree and you should disagree and when you win you should fight your ass off to enact the policies that your people voted for you to enact it's not I'll about say this. the other side in that's my belief that's that makes a lot of sense but i will say this if i were hell-bent on revenge and we're in the moment trying to get revenge i would never stop talking about hey i'm just this is about healing i'm just trying to heal everybody right uh, the swift brutal revenge i want is part of the healing process and uh, look it's just not that's not who biden is but biden doesn't have to be the one to do it biden's kind of the kind of guy who wants to be the magnanimous you know grandpa who uh presides over all this but he's also i don't know if he's necessarily the guy who's going to stand down and say hey 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 be nicer to them he's kind of the guy who wants to be able to let other people do that he stays as the nice guy at the top, which doesn't really bother me um, in, if, it, if it happens. I feel like a lot of people want the people who broke into this building to get punished really bad so that it is not something that happens every year. Right. Because then it will be. Ethan Hershenfeld, will we see you at office hours? I, uh, when, when? You mean Friday evening? Yeah, yeah. Well, for sure. But maybe you might see me th- before that. Even. Oh, Thursday. I'll see you at 7 o'clock. Yeah. And Dave and Cyrus. Turn around, if you turn around right now and look out your window, you'll see me right there. Oh, my That's God. Nice. That's Dave me. Cyrus, thank you so much. Follow Dave on Twitter at Dave Cyrus, right? Yeah, S-I-R-U-S. We'll be right back with Dr. Harriet Fraun. I'm going to get some water. Thank you. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy, too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show to get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Thank you. 
that was good, right? We're learning after effects. Joining us is Dr. Harriet Fraud, host of When Capitalism Hits Capitalism Hits Home, and it's not just in your head. If you have any questions for Dr. Fraud, please raise your hand because I often get accused of being uh, a pig. So I haven't really had time. I got to say that I do Capitalism Hits Home with Juliana Forlano, and it's not just in your head with Max Golding. Great. The the people we've had close to well, uh, two weeks ago, was it two? It's not even two weeks. Yeah. First off, is is Trump going to leave? Are we the next time we talk? Will we have a new president? That's the first question. Well, he probably has something else up his sleeve. He doesn't have much time. He has two days. But he probably has something else disruptive up his sleeve. But the most important thing we have to look at is not the sort of keystone cops element of the latest invasion of the White House, but who made it possible. We have to look at the collusion. Yeah, how was it? How was the? How was it possible? Was was it an inside job? It had to be in part an inside job. There are two thousand Capitol Police. Only five hundred were on. Others were told they were needed, and then told they weren't at the last minute. The National Guard was told that they didn't need to be there. The Trump sat in his tent, gleefully watching the destruction, and didn't answer phone calls for two hours. And because the National Guard in D.C. is a federal guard, because D.C. is not an independent state, they would have needed the president or somebody from the federal government to let them in. Hmm. Who led the tour? It turns out Bobert, whatever her name is, the gun-toting from Colorado. Yeah. From Colorado was one of the people who did the reconnaissance tours for people. That's an inside job. Who pulled the panic buttons out of Ayanna Presley and other Congress people's offices? Hmm, that looked like an inside job. So this looks like a combination of a beer hall putsch of ignorant Trump followers who want to belong to something and felt great doing this and thought that by executing electors, Trump would win. And some real smooth inside operators probably from the military, who figured out how to make this possible, how to do the reconnaissance, how to make sure that the cops were outnumbered, how to, you know, you contrast that with what they did with Black Lives Matter's totally peaceful protest, where they were terrifying phalanxes of armed people with shields and helmets. Many of these cops were beaten badly, And were it not for the heroism of um, Eugene, what was his name? I think Gordon. Or he led the protesters away by guarding a staircase as if it was important. And then when they were beating up on him, running in the wrong direction so that he took them away from where the electors were actually being elected. Right. Who are these people? Because according to the 14th Amendment, Article 3, 
aiding or abetting the overthrow of constitutional processes like elections is sedition and they should be arrested for sedition and people and the Congress people who supported sedition should have to leave and be tried all of them as well as the senators that's the law and I think this was a great example of how race works in the United States that they had a wild military presence for the peaceful Black Lives Matter, and a quarter of the Capitol police force only and without riot gear for this. Because I think the police and the military are supposed to keep the peace within the status quo. And they're supposed to basically beat on those denied people that might disturb the status quo. And who is more denied en masse in our society than black people and brown people? And say, so they are automatically suspect. And so the kind of police presence and National Guard presence they had was one thing. What these people had who were clearly seditious and who had declared their violent intentions on parlor and storm and other set sites were left on to, to ransack the White House. So also, who is it who decided at the FBI to ignore all the footage from the hate mail white supremacist groups and the report from the Norfolk, Virginia FBI and New York FBI? So when, you know, there's collusion at the top, as well as these drunks, there are people like Ginny Thomas, Clarence Thomas's wife, who helped finance 80 buses, to go there and gave them her blessings. That's aid and comfort to the enemy who is committing sedition. And I think that all the people who participated in sedition should be arrested and tried. But the real, really important thing is to figure out, okay, who are the fascists who did the planning? Because Hitler's beer hall putsch failed the first time because it wasn't planned it wasn't done right. He had some fascists who were committed in on it, as they did, but then the rest were undisciplined drunks. Luckily, we have a president who is a narcissist and not an ideologue. So this was not a full fascist thing, or he would have trained the fascist in the army and in the police force and had a highly disciplined force doing this thing. But we have to look at the collusion of those forces within who are well organized with the beer hall putschists. So America has no persistence of memory. We want to put these things behind us. To me, this is very reminiscent of the Kennedy assassination, where let's let's lock up some low hanging fruit, kill the people who are going to talk. It's better for the country if we move on. I cannot imagine. I think it's naive for anyone to think that Joe Biden and Merrick Garland, the new attorney general, supposedly are going to come in there and want to get to the bottom of this. I, they're not going to be willing to look into the abyss. They, they, that's just not the American way. Don't you think it's unrealistic for this government to say who was behind this? Better we should, you know, arrest the idiots the same way with Russiagate. Of 
we arrested the idiots. They they got Roger Stone, they got Manafort, and they got uh, the National Security Advisor. What was his name? Uh, Flynn, who's uh, like certifiably insane. Those are th- they. That's what Mueller knew to do. Former head of the FBI, go in. Where's the low hanging fruit? Get the get the nuts, lock them up, and move on. But they'll do. They'll get the low hanging fruit and move yes, on. That's what they would do unless they were pushed. So it's really up to us to push, to say, okay, where where's the military presence? Where's the colluders? Who did the inside job that made this possible? And why is it possible? And why isn't there a whole terrorism, domestic terrorism unit devoted to white supremacist? terrorism. And partly the FBI had a black identity terrorism unit for a long time. Didn't have any white terrorism unit, even after Tim McVeigh. They they asked, the FBI told Martin Luther King to commit suicide. That's right, because they, anyone who disturbs the status quo, the class status quo of America is suspect. And black people are more suspect there because of the enormous number of white supremacist terrorist acts, there was pressure on the FBI and the Homeland Security to start a white supremacist terrorist espionage unit. But what they did was made a racial terrorism unit so they could combine the well-developed black identity terrorism unit with some white terrorism people. Because their idea is the army and the police keep the capitalist status quo and those who might disturb it should be accused of sedition. We have great precedents for this. In the 50s, they deported and tried thousands of communists who had not done anything at all. But they said anyone who's a communist part of the Communist Party is advocating the forceful overthrow of our government, therefore you're deported, therefore you're jailed. So people have been arrested en masse. For all Was it Emma Goldman or Rosa? Who got sent back to Russia? Rosa Luxemburg? Emma Goldman? Rosa Luxemburg was way before that. Emma Goldman. Was sent back and Chaplin was told mm-hmm. to go back to Great Britain in the 50s. And But is it naive? I have a lot of questions I want to ask you, but... For for me to say, oh, my God, I can't believe that there are insurrectionists who have been elected, uh, people who uh, don't believe in democracy, who are racists, who want to overturn an election. I can't believe we have Congress people. I can't believe Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz in the Senate uh, would would vote to overturn an election. They have been in the room since the beginning they've been in those rooms since the beginning and this isn't some brand new conspiracy so i'm trying to empathize with joe biden and merrick garland and trying to get inside their heads i don't see them touching this there's a third rail that they're not going to go near they don't want to they'd have to be pushed look Biden's state is famous for giving corporations a big break. He's hardly been on the forefront of anything progressive. He was in on the grilling um, that 
destroy, you know, that got Clarence Thomas in and destroyed the woman's credibility. Her name escapes me, but everybody oh, knows. Uh, Anita Hill. Anita Hill's credibility. He was for the three strikes and you're in jail, jail, you know, laws. He's not intuitively anything progressive, but he could be pushed. That was his great asset. And so it really depends on what people demand. And right now, a lot of Americans are still in shock that our capital can be so porous to terror, white terrorism. So it it brings me to the the question of income inequality and, and an argument that came up earlier in the show. So it's very convenient. We have it. We it's almost identical to Obama becoming president. There's the 99 percent. The country has bottomed out economically and. He has to save capitalism, not the 99 percent. Right. We are on the brink when when Obama took office he had to save the system, the, the, the language of money. That's Otherwise, right. it's gonna, there's going to be a complete breakdown and we're going to be ruled by warlords and eating rats. So well, let's save the, the banks. banks. And now mm-hmm. we've convened. We'll be a better country. We'll be Iceland, which put the banksters in jail and took a vote whether they wanted austerity or they wanted to buy local. And... They recovered. It wasn't necessary to save the banks and not people's mortgages. That wasn't necessary. Right. Of course not. And now we're conveniently, you know, more than I I would say 75 percent of this country is staring into economic oblivion. And we're conveniently worried about the soul of our nation and can democracy survive and ra- you know the stubbornness of racism and uh, prejudice. Uh, it's very convenient for the neoliberals to to have this moment when Biden becomes president. They don't have to address. They can go back to their their old standby. That's right. But the debate that was going on earlier. And I'd like your take on it. Those people who stormed the Capitol, I've asked this of everybody, how much education, how much free tuition and health care and job security and paid maternity leave is going to make them less racist, less xenophobic, less... Give them two fewer guns. You know, yeah, I think that that will do a lot. I think if okay. there were a jobs progress administration like there was under FDR when we had the big government everybody loved, and uh, there were um, 11 million jobs created at this point in our population difference, there would be about 22 million well paying government jobs black and white together, I think it would change it completely. And if people belonged to America, they could believe in, they wouldn't have to belong to that sect. I think it would transform this country. And because I think these men are dispossessed. 
and one of them that's possessed at work because they no longer get a family wage that could support a decent living and support dependent wives and children. And they no longer have their marriages because women have to work now and don't want to serve them full time when they get home. And women, because we work, have more independence. These are the same people that are in what's called the men's rights movement, trying to repeal the 19th Amendment that allowed women to vote and therefore vote for social programs that allow us to have some security outside of some guy. You're a psychoanalyst. Uh, People see what they want to see. The idea of accelerationism. These people call themselves accelerationists, the people who stormed the Capitol. But there's a, a philosophy that we've talked about with Professor Ben Burgess about the accelerationists who believe that if things get so bad, people will finally learn their lesson and embrace socialism. And people, as a, as a psychoanalyst, have you discovered that people learn the lesson they want to learn from events? They also learn the lesson their society tells them to learn. Right. One of the things that these yokels, these guys that invaded with some women too, learned is they learned it from Trump's fascistic interpretation that the problem in their lives are uppity black people, uppity women, and refugees, poor Guatemalans who made it over the border, are taking their jobs. And they've learned it on Fox News, and they've learned it through what is fascistic propaganda. That's what Hitler did. He blamed it on Jews, gypsies, and other homosexuals, other undesirables. Because you take the hatred that the capitalists have created by starving people for their own profit, and you shift it on to some other group. And and we haven't had a strong left as a countervailing force. Trump is helping us organize one, but they have what's called a hegemonic block in Antonio Gramsci language, which is they have the evangelicals, they have the racists, and they have um, the Brahmins who want more money and who got the best tax cut in their imagined lifetimes. And and who never have to be around these people. Never have to be around those people. And even those guys who were doctors and lawyers who were there at the Capitol busting in dressed like they were motorcycle riders. So because they wanted to fit in. But you, you know, they have a block. If the left gets a block, because we have so many people who care about either the climate or union rights or Black Lives That Matter, or early childhood education, or after-school programs, or free college, or some kind of Green New Deal, you would have the vast majority of people organized into a block that could analyze and have our own newspaper and our own voice. We haven't had that. The right wing has had that. And they've had internet sites totally unperturbed by Facebook, who was making money by putting all this on, and others, and so that they proceeded. And we'd have to fight back, create unity between us, 
and make a struggle to change this and also to hold those people from high places who determined the FBI's non-interference and the National Guard not being told and the maps of the Capitol being disseminated and the panic buttons being ripped out. We'd have to really figure that one out, all those things out and hold the people accountable. And it isn't hard to find out who did it. On that level, it would be harder. But on a simple level, it's easy. Um, There's a woman I know who decided she's going to finger some of these monsters. So she put an ad on Christian Mingle that said, I'm ultra conservative Mm -hmm. and I want a real man. I want the man who's tough and smart and strong. Send me your photo. Then she matched him up with the footage and she got at least 22 people because partly it's because they're stupid. But they're not the ones that are more important. Right. The ones who allowed it to be possible. Those are more important. Like Trump with his tweets, like Cruz, like Josh Hawley, and like the people in the FBI who quashed those reports, and like the people in the National Guard who didn't insist on coming out, and the people who plotted the layout of the Capitol, all those things. So the left can learn from the Capitol invasion to form one block and agree on one thing. On many things as a unit. You know, the women who won abortion rights in Buenos Aires, the first big country in Latin America, won abortion rights because they combined with the indigenous movement, with the movements against femicide, with the, the socialists, Cristina Fernandez, the wife of Fernandez, who is the prime minister, and together, and with the socialists, and they made a force that won. And they, didn't, they couldn't do it by themselves, even though the, the Pope came out and condemned them for it. They still won, but they had a coalition. That's what we need. Right. If you have any questions for Dr. Fraud, raise your hand. We have six minutes left. Professor Adnan Hussein is in the room. Let me bring, I, I saw him pop in. There he is, yeah. Did you want to chime in on anything before I take questions from our listeners? Oh, no, I think we should open it up to the listeners. Um, let's hear what they have to say. Uh, I saw somebody's hand raised and then they they lowered it. So... Okay, people sometimes get shy here. So I, uh, mob, the mob, is there, does some, what happens to people? Do they change from the time they arrive at the mall and then the, 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 the mob takes over and gets them to do, to do what? To, to act out, to smash things? to rush in even though they're trampling each other. I think that they started getting high on violence on the bus. Buses Ginny Thomas helped to finance. Right. And then when they got there, there's a surge of power. The capital, the untouchable capital, we're getting it. Wow. I mean, it's really heady stuff. Right. Steve. 
Steve in Canada. Hi, David. Hi, Dr. Fraud. Hi, Adnan. How are you doing? Good. Um, I was just about actually to ask the same question that, that David just did about, well, what is it about a crowd that would make a, let's say, normal person turn into you know, a monster um, would, you know, start smashing windows and stuff. And then, and I guess like, what would the other line that would, cause it's clearly like other people had, had crossed that line even further towards like swinging um, fire extinguishers at people's heads. Like that, that, that represents a, an additional, even more dangerous line that some people clearly decided to cross that one too. And, the, and then the majority of, of the, those persons didn't cross that line. And given your background in psychology and all that kind of stuff, if you have anything to say, why is it that some people, you know, get murderous and, and, and others just decide to remain kind of violent and, uh, and, and uh, a vandalizer kind of? Well, I think that first of all, people, everyone who's there, comes with an agenda and varying amounts of free-floating rage looking for an outlet. And when you're in a mob, you who have been powerless, you who have lost your job, you who are nobody, you whose wife left you are suddenly empowered and want to exercise that power that you cower and don't use for the other parts of your life. You could see it if you go to a hockey game. These timid little people are screaming things at the hockey players because there's permission and suddenly you're not a little person alone. Right. You're everyone and it's empowering. And if what needs to be empowered in you is murderous rage, it comes out. What the defense attorneys are going to claim is nobody fired their weapons. There were must have been hundreds of these people inside the Capitol. Do we have any reports of gunfire? Well, no, no weapons were allowed in the Capitol. I'm sure many were smuggled in. And yet because they didn't shoot people, if you club people over the head with a fire extinguisher, your best defense isn't, well, I didn't shoot him, did I? Yeah, I, I, I see 16 months from now this going a whimper a couple of people tried the low-hanging fruit rounded up and no congress people no senators disciplined it won't be good for the country we have to put this terrible chapter behind us and move on well we'll see i mean i don't care if they get the individual mobsters but those who colluded at the top to keep that capital police force small and vulnerable and who kept the FBI reports squashed and who held back the National Guard and made the maps of the Capitol, the left would have to pressure reasonable people to demand that that's accountable, that those people are accountable. Not all these regular guys and few women too, right. but those people who were the organizers, like Ginny Thomas, Clarence right. Thomas's wife. So you're saying we should do what we did right after 9-11? That's right. <laughs> sure. Let we- them all the Saudis fly back. 
compliment of George Bush right. and uh, invade countries that were not responsible. That's always a good idea. Because we've succeeded so well there. Yes. Losing both of those wars, it's been wonderful. Yes. Dr. Harriet Fraud is the host of Capitalism Hits Home, and it's not just in your head. Thank you so much for stopping by. I appreciate it. Now let's go to Canada, where Professor Adnan Hussein joins us. And please introduce your guest. This is exciting. Hi, David. Um, and welcome, uh, Dr. Gerald Horn, um, who is a U.S. historian, but in a very broad uh, sense, somebody who is uh, very interested in U.S. connections to world history. He is um, uh, the Moore's Chair uh, of History and uh, African American Studies at the University of Houston, and also the author of an astonishing range of about three dozen books. Um, and so we're absolutely delighted that he could join us today. Welcome, uh, Dr. Horn. Thank you for inviting me. Well, um, today is uh, Martin Luther King uh, Day. Um, we know that uh, this holiday has uh, been appropriated in various ways, um, and the legacy of uh, Dr. King is uh, contested. Um, and I'm just wondering, as somebody who uh, writes a lot about the radical tradition, uh, radical traditions in African-American history, what you think uh, we should really be remembering about Dr. King's life, work and legacy and um, what we should really be commemorating about his about his career and his politics on a day like today? Well, for a figure like Dr. King or anyone who is no longer the land of the living, we should try to draw lessons that will help to guide us going forward for the future. And I would say that a number of the lessons that we need to extract from Dr. King's legacy, amongst those lessons are an attempt to reject anti-communism, which has been a kind of secular religion in the United States of America, helps to account for so many disasters. I don't even know if we have enough time to go into the disasters that it has accounted for, including drawing a linkage with January 6, 2021. Uh, Dr. King, you may know, had as a top aide Jack, the late Jack O'Dell, who, of course, passed away in Vancouver, British Columbia, choosing self-imposed exile in Canada over residing in the United States of America. Uh, Jack O'Dell had been a leading trade unionist with the National Maritime Union during its left-wing phase, the Union of Seafarers. Uh, Jack O'Dell had been a member of the Communist Party of the United States by his own admission. And it was John F. Kennedy, the U.S. president in the early 1960s, who took Martin Luther King into the Rose Garden of the White House to escape the prying eyes and ears of the Federal Bureau of Investigation and his bulldog leader, J. Edgar Hoover, in order to twist Dr. King's arm and try to entice, if not browbeat him, into getting rid of Jack O'Dell. Uh, Dr. King said uh, that he would seek to do so, but he tried to maintain an underground relationship uh, with Jack. And, of course, his phones were being tapped, his hotel rooms were being bugged, and so this then led to a further rift uh, with Washington. 
I should also say that uh, Martin Luther King passed away in, on April 4th, 1968. However, in February 1968, he was appearing at Carnegie Hall in New York for a fundraiser for Freedom Ways magazine, a left-leaning magazine of which Jack O'Dell had played a preeminent role. And during his remarks at this event, he praised W.E.B. Du Bois and said that we should not reject this great Pan-African leader and great human rights leader uh, simply because he joined the U.S. Communist Party a few years before his death in 1963. Certainly, that kind of rejection of anti-communism helps to shed light on his rejection of the war in Vietnam, uh, which led to his demonizing. In fact, even though there's a kind of saintly image today of Martin Luther King Jr., the fact is that when he passed away in 1968, he was being reviled by broad sectors of the Euro-American community in particular. And I think that the lesson there is that uh, once you're safely tucked away six feet under, your image and your legacy becomes fair game. And you see that with regard to some have called the Disneyfication, the Santa Clausification of the radical legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah, you could even say the commercialization. Uh, uh, David showed me a, an advertisement for uh, a special uh, taxi cab rate for Martin Luther King Jr. that was using his image, you know, so we could say the commercialization even of 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 that image. Well, you're, that's a very interesting point. Uh, you're one of the preeminent scholars of uh, black Marxism and black Marxists and radical uh, labor. Um, that legacy of Martin Luther King is one that's really ignored. And in fact, he's seldom characterized as um, a socialist. So even if he had uh, very positive relationships with and was willing to associate rather bravely or courageously with somebody who was a, an avowed communist, um, he himself also had a pretty radical political agenda um, that we often don't remember. I'm thinking in particular of a speech, the three evils speech, um, and wondering if you might comment on not only did he identify, it seems to me, um, evils in his time that are so relevant if we were thinking about our own time, the three evils being the evils of racism, of poverty, and of war. Um, not only that he's identified those three, but whether, you know, these were linked in his mind. How did he see these being integrated uh, as a comprehensive analysis of the problems and dangers and challenges of his time? And what do you think about that speech in, in light of our, our present circumstances? Well, obviously, it's still relevant. Uh, in fact, as you may know, uh, Reverend William Barber in North Carolina is trying to resuscitate uh, Dr. King's final campaign. I'm speaking of the Poor People's Campaign in Washington mm -hmm. of the spring of 1968, where he sought to engage in massive civil disobedience on behalf of the poor and involving not only black Americans, but Native Americans involving the First Nations people, as you may say, in Canada, uh, people from Appalachia, the Chicano community, etc., and with the aim of redistributing the wealth. And now, of course, redistributing the wealth remains a primary goal, I would imagine, of progressive forces here in the United States of America. And I would also say that 
the question of militarism is inseparable from redistribution of the wealth because uh, the United States just passed a $740 billion so-called defense budget. And what's interesting is that in the same building where that measure was passed, it's apparent that they can't even protect that building, that, speaking of the capital, even after <laughs> passing a budget of $740 billion. Obviously, there's something wrong with this picture. And, and likewise, there was a very interesting uh, visual metaphor even today in Washington. Uh, you may know that there was a rehearsal for the inauguration mm-hmm. of Joseph R. Biden that was abruptly canceled because they saw smoke. But apparently the smoke was coming from a homeless encamp- encampment, mm. not far distant from the Capitol. And so it's very interesting that uh, the inability to deal with homelessness and being flummoxed by a homeless encampment uh, leads to a cessation, at least temporarily, of inauguration uh, procedures. And certainly you cannot begin to address poverty without talking about moving the money from the Pentagon to healthcare, to education, to people's welfare. And that is the preeminent struggle or one of the preeminent struggles uh, of our day. And it obviously ties into militarism and war because speaking of January 6th, historians of the future will probably say that it's no accident that uh, many of the vanguard of January 6th, these neo-fascist groupings, the Proud Boys, the Boogaloo Boys, the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, uh, many in the leadership of those groups are military veterans. That is to say, they are young men who were sent abroad to resolve political disputes through the barrel of a gun in Afghanistan and Iraq, and then come back to Washington and apply those lessons with chickens coming home to roost, trying to resolve political disputes through the barrel of a gun. So certainly uh, these are some of the lessons we should draw. And speaking of January 6th, since I'm on that point, uh, I I should mention that uh, you may know that there are some amongst our left-wing friends Mm -hmm. who do not necessarily see the profundity and significance of January 6th. Uh, In fact, uh, they call it uh, a, quote, riot, unquote, uh, in some ways, uh, comparing it implicitly to what might go on in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, during spring break for college students, uh, for example, uh, totally uh, eliding the point that uh, these men, mostly men, although not exclusively, had with them uh, gas masks, uh, riot helmets, shields, pepper spray, bear spray, fireworks, climbing gear, explosives, metal pipes, baseball bats, handcuffs. Uh, They constructed a gallows with a noose on the Capitol grounds, and you may reference here their fictional Bible, the Turner Diaries, which envisions breaking into the Capitol and lynching uh, willy-nilly many legislators. They had homemade napalm firearms, of course, semaphore flags, hand signals. They marched in ranger style with one with on the shoulder of another. 
You may also know that uh, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, uh, one of the more progressive members uh, of the U.S. Congress, a black woman from Boston, says that the panic buttons were stripped from her office. Recall she had panic buttons installed because of threats against mm-hmm. her life. And somehow they were stripped away mysteriously before January 6th. Uh, Congresswoman Mikey Sherrill has suggested that there were reconnaissance tours by either congressional aides or congress persons themselves on January 5th, showing complicity uh, with uh, January 6th. Uh, It's very curious that before January 6th, former Pentagon chiefs led by Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld, Uber Hawks, kept warning the military not to get involved in these events. The Financial Times of London editorialized, what do they know that we don't know? After January 6th, the head of the military, the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, uh, warned again <laughs> the uh, tens of thousands in the military uh, not to get involved in this domestic crisis. We find out yesterday that of the thousands who are now patrolling the streets of Washington, D.C., that they are vetting them because they're worried uh, about uh, their allegiances. We already know that uh, white supremacists have infiltrated uh, the highest levels of U.S. police departments and certain levels of the U.S. military as well. Uh, Press reports indicate that before January 6th, there was 500,000 dollars worth of Bitcoin cryptocurrency transferred into the virtual wallets of many ultra uh, righteous leaders. We also know that Ali Alexander, a former aide to leading Republicans, uh, claims that he worked hand in glove with Congressman Mo Brooks of Alabama, Congressman Andy Biggs of Arizona, Congressman Paul Gozar of Arizona, the cook-up this scheme. And so uh, this is a a very serious turn of events. And rhetorically, it's interesting uh, how my friends on the left approach this. They'll they'll, they'll take a position. They say, this was no coup. Well, okay. And then they define coup as involving the military, uh, even though, of course, uh, the record shows that there have been coups without the military. And in fact, they ignore the specificity of the United States where white mob have overthrown governments, admittedly local governments, such as in Wilmington, North Carolina, 1898, uh, such as Reconstruction, post-1865 governments throughout the South. Not to mention, I guess they would not consider uh, the storming of the Bastille regime change since, uh, you know, it was just mass action. Mm -hmm. Um, And in any case, uh, once again, I would have to uh, point uh, to... Uh, these curious statements coming from military leaders. And I would like to think that this may have been one of the last scenes of the Cold War. What I mean by that is, is that even though this term is absent from the vocabularies of many of our friends on the left, speaking of settler colonialism, Mm -hmm. uh, this is a settler colonial regime here in North America, not unlike Australia, New Zealand, Israel, former Rhodesia, former apartheid South Africa, et cetera, whereby Europeans invaded, dispossessed the indigenous, and then in the case of the United States, uh, brought enslaved African labor kicking and screaming across the Atlantic. But settler colonialism involved class collaboration. 
between poor and richer Europeans. If you look at my book on the 16th century with the first effort to establish, London's first effort to establish a settler colonial uh, node in what is now North Carolina, it involved class collaboration. There were people of different classes. Now, interestingly enough, if you look at those who participated on January 6th, people, it's a multi-class formation. Uh, you have CEOs, you have people flying in on private airplanes, you have small business persons, you have military veterans, you have Olympic swimmers, uh, you have uh, police officers, you have firefighters, you have transit workers, you have lumpen elements, D-class elements, etc. And uh, it was a, a typical sort of, and then of course, uh, overwhelmingly of European descent. Uh, oftentimes our friends on the left, somehow they, they, they still look at the United States through a white lens. I mean, for example, uh, they'll oftentimes uh, say that these Euro-Americans, the reason they vote for the right is because the Democratic Party is, does not present a viable alternative. Now, obviously the Democratic Party does not present a viable alternative, but they should ask themselves, why does not the black working class vote for the right? They never ask that question because they're only looking at it through a white lens, so, so to speak. And, of course, the, the black working class is voting defensively. <laughs> We're trying to keep these people out of power who we know uh, are, are up to no good and want to liquidate us uh, as a final solution, if I may use that term. Mm -hmm. And certainly, speaking of which, I don't think we're out of the woods yet by any stretch of the imagination with regard to this ultra-right threat. Um, presumably, the inauguration of Mr. Biden will take place, but I had predicted as early as November after the election, where I used the term, and you can check this on SoundCloud or YouTube, that the Republicans would be engaged in a kind of parliamentary guerrilla war. Uh, hmm. To my discredit, I did not envision that they might be engaged in an actual kind of guerrilla war, uh, which I, I'm afraid to say uh, might unfold sooner rather than later. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, you're... Um a lot of your your perspective on this um, is informed by a sense of the long history of white supremacy and um, its consequences on contemporary politics. I do have a copy of your book, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, um, that goes. I mean, it's very interesting. I mean, you had a, a book a couple of years ago called The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, that was mostly about 18th century. 17th century. Uh, sorry? 17th century. Yes, yeah, 17th, 17th century. Um, mm -hmm. uh, that's right, the 17th century. And you went even further back uh, in, yes. in this, uh, into, the, into the long, what you're calling the long 16th century. Uh, if you keep this up, you'll end up in my territory in medieval, uh, medieval history. Um, mm -hmm. But... Um, I'm wondering what you think, why did you go that far back? I mean, obviously the issues were interesting and you were seeing patterns, but so much of what you do in your historical work is about connecting it with, with the way we narrate our history so that it can serve some useful, it seems to me, role in our contemporary politics by reimagining, you know, history as a resource, correcting some of the myths that, you know, disable us from really grasping the problems as they exist. So 
Why did you go back this far? And what do you think was at stake in really retelling in these two books and also in um, the counter-revolution of 1776, um, another of your important books uh, on this kind of a a subject? Uh, What did you... Uh, think was uh, at stake in going further back? Why would going further back be relevant to the contemporary uh, period? Well, as you know, oftentimes when you visit a a physician, one of the first thing a physician does is take a medical history. And a physician oftentimes suggests that the further back you can go in recounting uh, what were the maladies and ailments of your grandparents and parents and great-grandparents and so on, Uh, the easier the doctor or the medic has in coming up with a diagnosis and a treatment plan. And likewise, my perspective is the further back you go in history, the easier it should be to come up with a diagnosis and treatment plan, which of course brings me to one of the critiques of many U.S. historians. Um, They're very um, Anglo-centric, for example, Uh, I mean, even with regard to enslavement of Africans in North America, we know that in St. Augustine, Florida, as I say in my 16th century book, you had enslaved Africans in 1565, but history does not begin (laughs) until Mm -hmm. the Londoners established the settlement of what they call Virginia in 1607. And I keep going further back because I keep finding Uh, I'm looking for the roots and the sources. And so in the 1776 book, I was really trying to explode the myth of the the creation myth of the founding United States of America. I mean, it's very curious, these so-called U.S. patriots. When it comes to those who have helped black people and people of African descent uh, survive uh, colonialism, for example, or Jim Crow, U.S. apartheid, I'm speaking of the socialist camp, for example, they're very one-sided. They, you know, nothing good about it. It was, a, it was a waste. It was a tragedy. But when it comes to 1776, which leads to an increase in the African slave trade, further dispossession of Native Americans, the U.S. nationals ousting the Spanish as early as the 1790s from the slave trade control of, in Cuba, mm-hmm. as early as the 1840s, Uh, controlling the slave trade to the biggest market of all, speaking of Brazil, Mm -hmm. uh, somehow we have to look at that with nuance. We have to look at this process with sympathy. And and then they they don't seem to understand the concept of of, of whiteness, which is uh, amazing because, you know, these Euro-Americans in particular, they have this concept of identity politics. As as a matter of fact, (laughs) I was in an interview uh, just a few weeks ago with a so-called leading Canadian scholar, and I won't mention his name unless I'm pressed. And I use the term white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And he rebuked and reprimanded me, saying that that term was divisive. It it splits working class unity. And then (laughs) he began to give me a lecture that didn't have anything to do with his own particular so-called Marxist tradition. He began to tell me about how in the 1930s in the United States, you know, the Communist Party uh, forged black and white unity. Not to show you how ignorant it was, I've written more about that than any person on mm-hmm. planet Earth. Mm-hmm. And so this is a supposed scholar at a leading university, speaking of York University. Yeah, and, uh, well, it sounds like he was, he was a socialist scholar who I think recently passed away, it sounds like. Yes. Yeah, right. And I, 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 was, I was gobsmacked. 
it, it's not, I don't mention his name because it's not just him. It, it's, it's a larger uh, political trend. And for example, if you look at the, the concept of whiteness, for example, in my 16th century book, and by the way, uh, in the 16th century book, as you know, uh, even though I, 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 I make a glancing statement about it, I, I, I try to connect the construction of white supremacy Mm-hmm. Uh, with the Crusades, yes, and th- that's that's definitely something that I would I would endorse. Yes, yes, in 1095 and the othering, so called, of the Muslims, mm-hmm. and the how this helps to unify Western European Christendom on a common platform, the existential fear and threat that emerges in 1453 with the Ottoman Turks, Muslims ousting the Christians from Con- Constantinople. And as I suggest, that in some ways that in 1492, as the last precincts in the Iberian Peninsula are liberated, quote unquote, from Muslim rule, uh, this uh, leads many of the Iberians to start fleeing westward mm-hmm. um, where they encounter the Americas. But what's interesting is that one of the plaudits <laughs> that's oftentimes festooned on the United States is that it's so-called constitution, which is treated as a thing in itself. I mean, you, you would think that this is some sort of magic talisman, this magic document, which of itself, irrespective of people struggling, can deliver rights, I mean, which is lunacy. And in any case, then more impetus is placed on the First Amendment, guaranteeing freedom of religion than is necessary, because freedom of religion is just a device whereby Catholics and Protestants who had been at each other's throats, particularly Catholic Spain and Protestant England, are able to reconcile in North America for the common purpose of looting and plundering the indigenous population and enslaving the Africans. And they even go so far as to have a kind of historic compromise with the Jewish population. Uh, Because, as you know, the Jewish population has been expelled from England as early as 1290, but somehow they're inducted into the hollowed halls of whiteness in North America. And somehow that's because of the farsightedness and the progressivism, as opposed to needing warm bodies to confront warring indigenous people and combative Africans. And they don't even look at historical uh, comparisons. I mean, for example, in the 1930s, Rafael Trujillo, the dictator of the Dominican Republic, was one of the few leaders and countries that welcomed Jewish people fleeing uh, fascism. Now, Rafael Trujillo was no progressive, but he was a racist. He was a white supremacist. He wanted to so-called whiten this population, not unlike these folks here in, in what is now the United States of America. And even with regard to Canada, uh, I, I think, you know, I, I, I've written a lot about Canadian history and I've traveled to Canada quite a bit. And I think that uh, our Canadian friends do the United States no service mm-hmm. when they buy into the 1776 myth. And, and, and I think it's because, as you know, part of the ethos of Canada is they're not like the United States. And that, that includes even the, US, the Canadian ruling elite. You know, they, they like to distinguish. And I think that the Canadian left, wanting to understandably distinguish themselves from the Canadian ruling elite and Canadian imperialism, uh, then oftentimes they try to take an opposing position. I recall one time I used to do a radio show on CKLN 
uh, at the, which I think was at the University of Toronto. And I recall one, one time I was on CKLN with some brothers and sisters in Toronto, and they were trying to tell me that Canadian imperialism was worse than U.S. imperialism. And I was thinking to myself, these are the only people on planet Earth who take that position. <laughs> and so we, we really need some help from our neighbors, because trust me, if these coup plotters and white supremacists and neo-Nazis come to power in Washington, I guarantee you that they're going to try to spread their pestilence north of the border and jeopardizing Canadian sovereignty. Well, that's uh, not wouldn't be the first time, of course, of course. there have been attempts, right? So it should be predictable that uh, and, and but frankly, um, you know, this is a good uh, question, really, or, or moment to think about how exceptional is America in this context? I mean, much of your work has really argued, it seems, against American exceptionalism and rather putting it in context of, you know, the Atlantic slave trade broadly, you know, with the Caribbean and South America, uh, looking at interconnections between, um, you know, anti-colonial movements in Africa and anti-racism struggles in the U.S. by, you know, the Mau Mau in Harlem, you know, so we, yeah. we think of figures like Malcolm X who said, we need a Mau Mau in this country and who, you know, also was very uh, interested in solidarity with uh, anti-colonial struggles, Patrice Lumumba and, and so on. So you've, you've, you know, definitely taken this broader look. And I guess what it makes me think about is that um, to the last point about spreading of the influence of white supremacy and far-right fascist politics, we're actually at a moment where it is a very internationalist phenomenon and a kind of front is emerging that integrates far-right extremists in Europe, particularly in Eastern Europe, along the borders of what, you know, those lands of the Austro-Hungarian Empire that fought, you know, against um, the Ottoman expansion in, you know, in, in, in the East um, to, you know, the Americas, uh, to other uh, uh, groups um, around the world. So that doesn't seem like an idle sort of concern because there's something new about the way it's organizing itself. And I wonder if its roots are, are deep in history. When you talked about um, the settler colonial context that recuperated people who were, you know, objects of extreme, you know, uh, uh, prejudice in Europe coming to the uh, Americas and being able to inhabit whiteness. Um, it seems that that's partly also and, and about the role of religion, the reason why the freedom of religion is so important is likewise the entire sovereign state system of creating a kind of secular state was an attempt to resolve the wars of religion in part because you needed a united front to confront the Ottomans, you know, in Europe. So it seems like there's some uh, deeper pattern or paradigm in some ways uh, that's connecting these movements over a long period of time. It just keeps becoming relevant yet again, over and over again. But maybe that's one of the reasons why you've gone so far back in history is because we're seeing today a kind of neo-crusader sort of mm -hmm, mm -hmm. white, you know, whiteness front that's, that's emerging. 
Well, first of all, I caught out of the corner, corner of my eye this comment that C.K. Lind was at Ryerson, not University of Toronto, so a thousand pardons. <laughs> uh, second of all, I, I think your point is right on. I mean, first of all, in the, in the contemporary sense, it, it's remarkable that the incoming Biden regime has appointed and promoted Victoria Nuland, uh, mm-hmm. who was essential to these so-called color revolutions in Eastern Europe, where she was not above collaborating with neo-Nazis, particularly yeah. in the Ukraine. Ukraine, yeah. And she has been promoted as a result. Now, what's interesting, uh, this reminds me of the old, uh, Cuban joke, which is why is there so much uh, political instability in Latin America and Africa and not the United States? And of course, the answer is there's no U.S. embassy in Washington, D.C. Now, <laughs> what this exposes and reveals once again It's not only the concept of chickens coming home to roost, but I I would also say that, as is evident, U.S. imperialism, which has brought under one umbrella, under the rubric of whiteness, uh, Italian-Americans, German-Americans, Russian-Americans, British-Americans, etc., has been very essential to the continuation of North Atlantic imperialism. And that, uh, that, that heterogeneity of the whiteness project in, in the United States then allows uh, U.S. imperialism to enlist Italian Americans, for example, on their behalf to, en- to engage in the 1947 election in Italy and help to destabilize the Italian Communist Party, uh, for example. Uh, we all know that there is a Cuban American bloc in South Florida that is involved on an almost hourly basis in trying to destabilize the Cuban revolution. So uh, the way U.S. imperialism is constructed, it's become very important for the future of reactionary politics and world imperialism as a whole, which is one of the reasons why January 6th has been taken so seriously, because it tends to suggest a certain kind of instability of U.S. imperialism, and this obviously is being uh, considered by the economic royalists here, uh, who have had a very good program of uh, propagandizing Euro-American workers and middle class to vote for the Republican Party, which then goes to Washington and passes uh, tax cuts for the economic royalists and other giveaways. The middle class and working class of European descent have not done comparatively well compared to the royalists, to put it mildly. And so, therefore, they revolt, which indicates that they're a base as stable as nitroglycerin, which suggests that these royalists, they, they, they really need a new political base, but I don't see how they can develop one as compliant as the base that they have. And in any case, you see that the European Union is already begin, beginning to seek alternatives. Uh, what I mean is that just before January 6th, you had the massive investment deal between the People's Republic of China and the European Union. With Brexit, the British exit from the European Union, you have the U.S. agent and the higher councils of Brussels, the European Union, speaking of Britain, now removing itself, uh, which is going to correspondingly give more influence to France, which over the decades uh, has occasionally bucked U.S. imperialism, uh, for example. For example, in, in the wake 
of the Suez catastrophe of 1956 when Israel, Britain, and France attack Egypt and it collapses and Britain draws the conclusion that it has to shelter under the warm embrace of U.S. imperialism. France does not necessarily take that conclusion. So basically what you see with this investment deal with China, which has replaced the United States as the EU's major trading partner, uh, you see that the European Union, even before January 6th, was beginning to try to seek uh, alternatives. And this this deal came in the wake not only of critiques from Mr. Trump, but also the incoming Biden regime as well, which plans on continuity, that is to say, knocking together a, a new Cold War against China, but it's going to be very difficult to execute that new Cold War if the European Union is not on board. Uh, That will probably cause Japan not to be on board as well. It'll probably lead to a closer relationship between Russia and China that already exists. It probably means India will not be on board as well. And so this is going to be a very uh, compromising for the future of U.S. imperialism, which means it's going to be compromising for the future of imperialism generally, which then brings me to Canada, uh, which I'm not sure has drawn all, I'd like to know who's handling, I mean, what think tanks are thinking about Canadian foreign policy? Because it, it doesn't seem to me that it's evident, that is to say, continue to play this toady role Uh, detaining for two years the daughter of the founder of Huawei, the major Chinese uh, entity concerned at the behest of of U.S. imperialism and even suffering from the two Michaels being detained in Canada for a, a like period of time. Canada also, not least because of the limited vision of Christopher Freeland, who had been handling foreign affairs in Ottawa, and of course uh, has very suspect Eastern European anti-communist roots, Canada is now in in a very difficult position. I don't know if it realizes it in terms of not having good relations with Russia, not having good relations with China, at odds intermittently with the United States of America. And yet you have this huge territory with only 38 million people, mostly along the U.S. border. It's almost like a sitting duck. I, I hope people in Canada realize that. Well, I don't. I um, I don't think this program has had as much um, acute and insightful Canada discussion, perhaps ever. Oh my goodness! <laughs> um, but you know, this is this is well. This well. That's why I'm wondering, actually, if um, you know. Uh, Understanding settler colonialism helps us um, understand uh, why a, a, a country like Canada would find, despite, as you pointed out, some superficial nationalism of uh, wanting to say we're very different from the United States in these ways or those ways, that nonetheless, its broader orientation um is connected with the with the U.S. project in 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 some fashion, partly because, um, well, as an example, when Canada decided uh, under Chrétien not to join the United States in the folly of the Iraq War, mm-hmm. uh, it nonetheless produced a great deal of anxiety among the political class 
that, you know, understood that it wasn't a good idea to join the U.S. in this in this terrible uh, war. Um, but they were made very nervous by not going along with the United States. It was an extremely uncomfortable and anxious position for several years politically. And it resolved itself in part with a conservative prime minister coming to power who was much more aggressive about joining the global war on terrorism, continuing to stick with uh, the mission in Afghanistan. And we had 10 years during the period where Obama, you know, uh, revert, well, didn't reverse, obviously, but seemed to be a big change and a repudiation of the George Bush presidency that during that same period, Canada had conservative government that kept getting elected, winning election after election for 10 years, uh, essentially. So perhaps, you know, part of the reason is because they share a a sort of political culture as settler as settler colonies um, on, on some level that have been constructed around, as you're saying, a kind of imperial white supremacy um, that has deep roots, um, that really does have deep roots. Well, clearly, U.S. imperialism is the ultimate backstop and guarantor for world imperialism, which is one of the reasons why you'll find not only Canada oftentimes tailing after U.S. imperialism when it doesn't seem to be in Canadian national interest because it's in the interest of of a larger project, which is world imperialism. And you see the same thing with regard to Germany, too. But what's interesting is that there, to bring it back to January 6th, uh, there's been a lot of discussion about how the last time the Capitol was so, shall we say, rudely invaded mm-hmm. was in August 1814, yes. uh, when British troops uh, in, invaded. And of course, what's oftentimes missing is that that particular sacking of Washington, which by the way, sent President James Madison and his garrulous spouse, Dolly, fleeing into the streets, one step ahead of the posse, This was in response to the Yankees crossing the border and plundering and pillaging uh, what is now Toronto. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, uh, you had mentioned in passing a moment or so ago uh, how Canadian sovereignty uh, can be jeopardized by having such a bumptious neighbor due south. But I think that uh, the, our Canadian friends really need to t- take that more seriously. And when they do begin to take it more seriously, once again, I would hope that they would dispense with tailing after these liberals here in the United States who basically have suffered a major setback with January 6th. Because, of course, the liberals keep telling us how this, this democratic project had been, this sturdy democratic project had been created in the United States. Uh, backed up and substantiated by this wondrous constitution and these founding fathers, the likes of which we have never seen before or since, they virtually walk on water. Well, I don't see how that mythology can survive January 6th, although I'm sure they will try to do so, but we're going to have to rely upon our Canadian friends uh, to try to call these liberals uh, into a conference and, and break the bitter truth to them uh, that this has been a settler colonial project, that the Constitution, rather than wondrous, involved compromises between and amongst re- religious inflected factions, mm-hmm. Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, that many of the vaunted Bill of Rights did not apply to right. the enslaved African population, mm-hmm. certainly did not, not apply to the indigenous population. I mean, this right to bear arms 
a signal objective of the settler class was to keep weapons out of the hands mm-hmm. of the Africans and the indigenous population. And so once again, I, I'm hoping that uh, January 6th will be a positive turning point. Mm-hmm. But if I were to be honest, I would say it's too soon to say, too soon to tell, uh, because the correlation of forces right now still reveals that you don't necessarily have a strong labor movement in this country. And one of the reasons why I was suggesting a moment or so ago uh, why uh, this episode on January 6th might have been the last scene of the Cold War is because the Cold War and the Red Scare, its companion, uh, in the first instance domestically was an attack upon progressive unions, for example. But the attack on progressive unions then created an ideological vacuum that was filled by the kind of right-wing populism uh, exemplified by Agent Orange, Mr. 45, Donald J. Trump, which then has exploded on January 6th. And also what's interesting as well is that uh, I recall during the Balkan Wars with the breakup of Yugoslavia in the 1990s, you often had these propagandists in the United States uh, suggesting that uh, the problem with Tito's Yugoslavia, Tito, of course, was the leader of Yugoslavia in the post-war era, was that they drove nationalism underground. And then after he passed away, it exploded. Well, I think you could say the same thing for the United States of America, because when the United States decided that U.S. apartheid was an Achilles heel in terms of the execution of U.S. foreign policy because it handed a propaganda victory to the socialist camp. The United States ruling elite uh, unleashed a fusillade of propaganda, trying to tell us that the Constitution actually mandates what the Constitution had been saying the opposite of. In other words, the Constitution mandates anti-racism, even though for decades the Constitution had been propping up racism. Okay, fine. So they engage, they engage in this propaganda, but you can make an argument that they basically drove racism underground. And when I see a phenomenon like QAnon, mm-hmm. which has elected a number of members to Congress, it's this ultra-right-wing fantasy clique that says the Democrats are pedophile, satanic, blood drinkers mm-hmm. who are oftentimes in control of the deep state, which Donald J. Trump is fighting almost a one-man battle against. I I see QAnon in some ways as, pardon the expression, as a sort of creative way to talk about white supremacy without talking about white supremacy, since their white supremacy supposedly has been driven underground, Mm -hmm. so to speak. And that's not just for QAnon, because we all know that with regard to these other forces, uh, the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, the Boogaloo Boys, Uh, White supremacy is hardly underground. And in fact, if you look at their slogans, such as in Charlottesville, August 2017, you will not replace us. What they're really saying is that the United States was constructed as a project of whiteness. Right. But under global pressure, had to move away from that. Mm -hmm. And they want to go back, which is one of the reasons why I don't necessarily see the January 6th invaders as social Democrats in disguise, which mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. The, the way some of our friends on the left. In other words, our friends on the left oftentimes tell us, well, what we really need to do is just pass Medicare for all, Canadian healthcare system, and uh, they'll, they'll see the light 
<laughs> and become and, and turn to the left. I, I'm not so sure about that. I, I think right. it's much deeper than that. Right, right. I mean, it, I mean, it doesn't mean that it's a bad idea to try and pass all those things. Obviously, it would help, you know. But you're right that uh, there are exigencies and you know particular features of 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 our history uh, here. Um, that have to be confronted and dealt with. I am so glad that you mentioned the interrelationship between uh, Cold War competition uh, and anti-racism at at, at home and the pressure that the Cold War put on reform within the U.S. system. I mean, there are a few people who have talked a little bit about it, you know, Mary Dudzak's Cold War Civil Rights and Penny Von Eschen, Race Against Empire and some of their students and so on. But I think somebody like Malcolm X, for example, completely understood the connection between those two things, which is why he said, I'm not interested in civil rights. I want to fight for human rights and I'm going to take, forget about the constitution. I want to take, you know, the U.S. to the world court at the U.N. and condemn it for its racism. So he was trying to um, specifically enact the, 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 the political response that would be required if you recognize that relationship that you were just just talking about. Um, but if we if we recognize and understand that, I guess some people would would their response would be, well, where does that leave us in terms of political action now? How can that if we don't, you know, have this hopeful sort of idea of extending democracy and using the instruments that, you know, we have available discursively in the Constitution, in, you know, uh, liberal uh, ideology. What direction do we have, particularly in this moment, um, for progressive political action? If we don't feel like we could help solve the problem by looking for universal programs. You know, what do you see then as the appropriate agenda uh, for progressive political action, uh, recognizing the realities uh, of our history and the circumstances that we've just been talking about? That simple socioeconomic uh, uh, responses are not themselves enough to deal with this long history of racism, white supremacy that is endemic to the way the political system was created and worked. So what what direction should we should we be uh, looking toward? Well, I agree with the implication of what you just said, that uh, passing Medicare for all, the Green New Deal, raising the minimum wage are absolutely necessary, but they may not be sufficient Right. to deal with this nagging political problem that we saw explode on January 6th. I should also say that uh, internationalism is, is a crying need mm-hmm. here in the United States of America. I mean, we need help. A, a deep hole has been dug for us, or to put it another way, uh, we are in a deep hole right now. And it took decades, if not centuries, to create this mess that we're in, this abject threat to international peace and security. And unlike a Hollywood drama, we won't be able to snap our fingers and within 30 minutes uh, have found a reasonable remedy and a reasonable solution. And here, I think our Canadian friends can be of help, although it may inquire some advanced thinking in Ottawa. I mean, for example, 
as we speak at the Human Rights Council in Geneva, Switzerland, of the United Nations, uh, there is a debate unfolding concerning U.S. Uh, complicity with regard to police terror against black communities. The best case scenario, the best case scenario would be stiff and severe sanctions on Washington unless and until it gets its Human Rights Act in order. Mm. And in some ways, that would be a throwback to the 1950s when, once again, there was this massive international pressure uh, on Washington, which caused it to retreat. And admittedly, uh, there was massive energy from below as well. I, I think we're groping towards a similar sort of dynamic uh, today. Uh, we have... Um, the Black Lives Matter movement. We have protests that are taking place in the streets, and now we have this forum. Now, I, I would now th- th- this may sound nonsensical to the sophisticated Canadian audience, <laughs> but I would like to see Ottawa uh, intervene uh, on behalf of the persecuted uh, here in the United States. Because you know, Ottawa they they speak about Venezuela. Mm-hmm. They they speak about human rights all over the world. Mm-hmm. So. I mean, what kind of vision do they have? I mean, they can they can look overseas and see these human rights issues, and right next door, they're not able to see a human rights issue. I mean, please. I mean, that 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 pass, that barely passes the giggle test. So, uh, and, and, I, and as I said, I think that this is in the self interest of Ottawa because a a progressive force growing in the United States is good news for Canadian sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Um, it's good news for Canadians and it's bad news for Canada and Canadians uh, when you have these alleged coups taking, being attempted. And of course, as I said, we're not out of the woods yet by, by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, I, I think it's highly possible that uh, the ultra right, which once again has been driven even further underground because of being deplatformed, mm-hmm. uh, they're migrating into the darkest corners of the web, yeah. which means it's going to be very difficult to monitor these forces, which in a sense makes them even more dangerous. And I found it very curious that so many on January 6th were talking openly how they were recreating 1776. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the message from the conservative congressman Jody Heiss of Georgia. If you look at some of the video uh, coming out of the Capitol, they kept keep talking about 1776. And I, I don't think that that bodes well, <laughs> quite frankly. Well, it doesn't it bode be- well for me, and I don't think it bodes well for Canada either. No, no, it, it, it doesn't bode well. But, you know, perhaps there's some, uh, what you've been suggesting is that there's some justice to their attempts at appropriating 1776. I mean, if we think of the Declaration of Independence, um, I remember a book called Forced Founders by oh, yes. uh, Woody Horton. Uh, right. It was mostly about Virginia, but also about the Declaration of Independence and how so many, if you read against the grain in historical context, many of the complaints against the king are unique to the settler colonial context that we're talking about, that their grievances are, we don't want peace with these uh, Catholics uh, in the North, French-speaking Catholics, you know, uh, 
after the you know French um, Indian uh, War, right? Uh, that the British uh, win and they defeat uh, a New France, uh, but there's concern by the Protestant uh, you know whites of um, of uh, the 13 colonies that there's going to be papish, you know, popish influence. Uh, they're concerned about that. They're concerned about um, the crown not providing uh, enough support against the red savages who are on our frontier, you know, and we're not being protected enough and we're having to pay lots of high taxes when the British government actually does send troops and do something uh, about it. And on the other hand, also, they're worried about, you know, slave insurrection. And Mm -hmm. um, that they will be given freedom if they join, you know, the British Army and that this is essentially inciting, uh, um, Mm -hmm. you know. So if you look at it from that perspective, it's not just these abstract life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness, unless you think life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness is, you know, dispossessing Native Americans, suppressing black people and making sure that you your cultural you know and religious uh, uh identity is preserved you know against um against the french so you know maybe there's some justice to their attempt at appropriating it um but in any case i think uh we have to take these lessons of history if we're uh to develop a program of action that um is clear about um the forces we're dealing with i think well, it's, it's interesting that uh, this discussion that you broached about 1776, because once again, it exposes um, the frailties and debilities of many of these uh, flag-waving U.S. historians. Mm-hmm. I mean, for example, as we well know, you had a so-called revolution here. You didn't have a revolution north of the border. And yet, uh, if you look at something as basic as healthcare, you'd expect the revolutionary republic, so-called to have the kind of healthcare system that Canada has, for example. Instead, we have this pay or die system that's uh, redolent of the grossest and basest form of doggy dog capitalism. And then these US historians, they know that by several orders of magnitude, the black population did not stand with their slave masters. They did not engage in class collaboration unlike the settlers, which, of course, one of the still existing problems we have is class collaboration, particularly amongst peoples of European descent. But the Africans did not engage in class collaboration. And then, of course, they, they, they tried to sabotage their slave owners, or oftentimes they joined the Redcoats. Now, when you, when you raise that, then the, the flag wavers, they attack you from the left. They're saying, oh, oh, okay, so you're saying that London is a revolutionary force. <laughs> well, no, I mean, it's, it's interesting. You know, the, the, these flag wavers, whatever the U.S. elite does, they, they'll find a justification for it. I mean, for example, 1941 to 1945, Washington buries a bit of this anti-communism and allies with the Soviet Union in order to fight the Nazi Germany and Italy and Japan. Now, of course, no few people in, in, in the liberal side object to that. They think it was a, a, a great idea. They don't even object to the fact that during World War II, Hollywood tried to encourage filmmakers to make pro-Soviet, pro-communist movies. You can go to YouTube right now and watch Mission to Moscow 
and North Star, amongst the other pro-Soviet movies that are made by Hollywood during World War II. But when it comes to an enslaved population having to make a compromise to fight for liberty under the Union Jack, all of a sudden, that's, that's horrible. That's terrible. I mean, how could they do that? You see, and then they don't ignore the most they, they ignore the most basic point, which the Irish patriot Daniel O'Connell raised, which is that basically all they did with this so-called republicanism is to replace the aristocracy of lineage with the aristocracy of race. Now, admittedly, that broadens the base for aristocracy. <laughs> But it's not like they ought to be able to see the weaknesses of that project, which they hardly ever talk about. I mean, which which then helps to make them very insensitive to black pain, which is, I think, one of the reasons why we're always getting shot down on the streets like dogs, uh, because there's such an insensitivity to black pain and black suffering, because that's part of the project. I mean, as, as you know, people have made the point. That on January 6th, you know, these invaders, they ransack the Capitol and then walk out, waltz out like nothing happened. And everybody says, well, if those have been black people, they would have been shot down uh, instantaneously. Well, of course, uh, even our radical friends who oftentimes in the abstract talk about the, the interrelationship between capitalism and racism. When it comes to the leading capitalist country, they don't take the next step and say, well, of course, uh, you know, the black people, this project was built against our against our interests. So, of course, we're being treated uh, horribly and atrociously because when you fight a war and lose, which is what my ancestors did when they fought against George Washington and company, you can expect to be pulverized and penalized forevermore unless and until you can turn the tables, which we began to do with the Haitian Revolution, 1791 to 1804, which ignited the general crisis of the entire slave system, uh, pushing Britain uh, to decide that the better part of wisdom was to save investments and lives of settlers in Jamaica, Barbados, etc., by moving to stop bringing grave diggers for the system across the Atlantic, by curtailing the African slave trade as early as 1807, abolishing slavery itself in the 1830s. And then, of course, the so-called Revolutionary Republic, it takes a bloody civil war with hundreds of thousands of people slaughtered indiscriminately in order for slavery to be abolished, the so-called Revolutionary Republic. And then, after that, constructing one of the most horrific systems of apartheid yet to be seen on planet Earth, a system which apartheid South Africa felt it could learn from, a system that Nazi Germany felt it could learn from. This is the fruits, the poisonous fruits of the so-called revolutionary republic. We we have to wrap it up. Will you come back? This is so compelling. I mean, thank you. We uh, thank you, Professor Horn. Uh, we have it prof- would be a pleasure indeed to return. I have so many questions. Uh, we have Professor Harvey J.K., who, who is about to join us. And uh, Ricky had a question. If uh, you come back, I, we'll, we'll get to Ricky's question first. I, I have a million questions. Uh, thank you. Why don't you wrap it up, Professor Hussein? Okay, and, well, I just want to th- add yes. my thanks for, for a thrilling conversation. I so much enjoyed it. You've been very generous with your time. I hope you will come back sometime and we can uh, talk uh, further. I just want to point out to people that this last year, 
Dr. Horn published uh, two books. One we've been talking about, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy. This other one that you're about to mention looks really... Yes, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century, but his most recent book that hopefully we'll also hear about at some point is The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. We didn't get to talk about Muhammad <laughs> right. Ali, who I think must play some role in, in, that, in that history. And so Jack Johnson and Trump. Hopefully we can have you back on at some Next point. week, please. Next week. Oh, sure. Just email me. Great. And, Thank and you. Adnan, you. You better invite him to come on to Guerrilla History oh, as I well. Should. Yes, definitely. I will. Definitely <laughs> Thank I you. Will. Well, and Adnan, weekly marks. And, we, and weekly marks. Well, Professor, Professor Harvey J.K. joins us from Wisconsin. And Henry, you are champing at the bit. You have a question for Professor Harvey J.K. Wait, can I get before uh, Gerald leaves? Gerald, I listened to, you had a conversation with Paul Jay. That's on, right. On analysis. That, that, I enjoyed that very much, just for what it's worth, okay? Appreciate it. And good luck to you on your segment. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That was, that was breathtaking. Thank you. I'm sorry we didn't get to Ricky's question. So, uh, but uh, Henry has a question for Professor Harvey J.K. Signing off. Thank you, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, Professor Adnan Hussein. That was my, uh, I have like 10 questions I wanted to ask, but uh, go ahead, Henry, please. Yeah, and and I will mention that I do hope that he comes on to guerrilla history at some point. Uh, But yeah, hello, Professor K. How's it going today? Uh, It's okay. I'm still hoping to get some sunshine down here. Well, I've got a, since you have FDR on democracy immediately behind your head, this question is going to go right into that. So I was reading American Foreign Policy and Its Thinkers by Perry Anderson. And I, I, got I, to, I haven't read it, but go right ahead. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you a quote because this caught me a bit by surprise as somebody who hasn't studied FDR as much as I should have at this point. But I realized, yeah, I'm, I know one of the foremost FDR scholars. So who better well, to ask well, about this? Foreign than... policy is not my thing, but let's see what I can do. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to just read you this little section here. Just make see... up stuff, Professor. He's a kid. What, he'll, he'll believe it. So this is uh, right towards the beginning of the book. Perry Anderson writes, at the helm during the Second World War, Roosevelt had maneuvered his country into the conflict, not out of any general anti-fascist conviction, Though hostile to Hitler, he had admired Mussolini, helped Franco to power, and remained on good terms with Patain. And then he goes on from there. And then in the footnotes, and the footnotes in this book are even better than the book itself. I'll, I'll say that from where I am so far. The footnotes he has, Italy. Soon after his inauguration in 1932, FDR was confiding to a friend that, quote, I am keeping in fairly close touch with the admirable Italian gentleman asked five years later by his ambassador in Rome if, quote, he had anything against dictatorships, he replied, of course not, unless they moved across their frontiers and sought to make trouble in other countries. Spain, within a month of Franco's uprising, he had imposed an unprecedented embargo on arms to the Republic, quote, a gesture we nationalists shall never forget, declared the Generalissimo. President Roosevelt behaved like a true gentleman, 
France, he felt an old and deep affection, that's a quote, for Pétain, with whose regime in Vichy the U.S. maintained diplomatic relations down to 1944 and matching detestation for de Gaulle, a prima donna, jacknapes, and fanatic. And there's more from there. But But he was inaugurated in 33, not 32, right? Yeah. So that's the first mistake. Yeah, right. But I I, I was unaware of this, uh, all of these other components. Well, let me put it this way. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to argue with the details of any one of those other than to say that Perry Anderson is not exactly a historian of foreign policy and decidedly not a history of the United States. So that's for a start. And one can easily pick out those things and point to them as, as, you know, tragic, but it's also not out of the question that Roosevelt was doing everything in his power because he knew Americans didn't want to be involved in such things to keep the United States out of what he believed to be an impending European war during those years. As far as the, I mean, the the question of the neutrality on Spain, um, there again, I, I think these are mostly a matter of FDR literally trying to keep the United States out of the war. I mean, he, he wasn't going to take the side of either Hitler or of of Stalin at that point. So, I mean, I'm not, let's put it this way, I, I don't, I don't commend those decisions, but, you know, what am I going to say? Yeah, about I, I agree with you. The one, the thing that caught me the most off guard was the quote, uh, if you had anything against dictatorships, of course not, unless they moved across their frontiers and sought to make trouble in other countries. That, that particularly caught me by surprise that he would be not inherently opposed to dictatorship as such. Well, I can find other, other remarks of his that, from the very from very early on, make it very clear as to his views about dictatorship. I think once again he's trying. You know, he's literally just trying to avoid. I don't know who the friend is that he said that to, or the person uh, was that was the ambassador uh, from the U.S. in Rome. Yeah, for what it's worth, he also sent three. He sent ambassadors to Europe who would themselves keep him fully abreast of developments. I mean, some of his very closest political uh, uh, friends he sent. I'm, I'm very skeptical of taking that remark and just plugging it into something. I I find it very, very unlikely. What was his policy towards Latin America? Well, it's called the good neighbor policy, which was a decided improvement over previous um, stances. I, uh, and, and in part, he also wanted to make sure that he did not alienate certain dictators in Latin America because they, they increasingly knew during the 1930s, I mean, that the strategic thinking of the fascists was that they were going to come into the Western Hemisphere through Latin America. And, you know, they, they, had, they had the intelligence and they knew it. And the closer the war came, the more convinced they were of what the, the strategic plans were. We always learn that Hitler wanted North Africa for the sake of the oil. He also wanted North Africa because Northwest Africa and West Africa were easier, uh, easy spots to jump off towards Brazil and this South American continent. I mean, you know, so I mean, I, I'm not I'm not saying that Perry Anderson invented any of that, but not, but to take them to take them in that fashion is kind of strange 
just that to, was that was my interpretation, you know, my assumption. But I, I just wanted to get the. Uh, did you know that in 1937, a more reasoned in, in, uh, interpretation? Well, consider this: in 1937, um, the Japanese attacked American naval vessels in that were um, in China, or at least somewhere in, uh, docked somewhere in China. And Roosevelt spoke openly of it to see if perhaps you know the action could be could be taken. And Americans couldn't care less. At their own, vet. I mean, they couldn't care less. You so write about that very, in in the fight for the four freedoms. Was that? I, I I was shocked yeah. by that. You wrote about right. that. Yeah. It was I mean, as he, bad he, as in many ways, not as bad as Pearl Harbor, but it could have been a Pearl Harbor. It was certainly well, a Gulf of Tonkin. The point was that the American naval vessels were attacked, and Americans just they didn't want to do anything about it. They didn't care. So Roosevelt was very wary of trying to 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 do things that we might find unfortunate because of the the, the the spread of fascism and, and World War II. I mean, that's, you know. Let's, yeah. look, let's talk about the insurrection. Thank you, Henry. Yep. I, 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 I wish I could be more effective for you. No, I, no, that's okay. I just, like I said, I came across it while I was reading the book and I figured I would get the, the opinion of somebody who actually knows about this stuff rather than, uh, you know, my secondhand history you know, kind of picking things up through osmosis over well, the years. One thing to remember is that w- Americans were really, really, really um, eager to remain out of overseas wars in Europe and East Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, if not, you know, they, they, they had the sense that the oceans provided really a kind of fortress America. That was the, that was the assumption. And especially they felt that way because they actually felt cheated by World War One, that Wilson had taken them into World War One, and yet within the course of the 1920s, it was pretty apparent that making the world safe for democracy um, ha- had not worked, in part because of, of the nature of, of relations in Europe themselves and the rise of fascism in Italy first, and then of course during the 30s. And there were inve- there was a committee. I'm blank. It was in the Pecora committee. There were committees early on in the 30s to investigate the possibility, you know, to, to investigate the war profiteers of World War One. This was a Senate committee. American attitudes about World War One were, were were really filled with disappointment. I mean, the numbers of Americans killed was not, you know nearly what they would be later or before in various wars. But it was the case that Americans were very hostile to the idea of going to war in either Europe or East Asia, which also was a bit naive given the place of the Philippines in East Asia, but yep. nevertheless, and, and the numbers of people that, that, that Americans killed in the effort to suppress the Filipino um, rebellions. But they just, they just didn't want to go to war, and Roosevelt was aware of that. What is also interesting is that in 1940-41 especially, there were polls taken that showed while Americans did not want to go to war, by that time they realized the likelihood of war you know, was pretty imminent, for, even for the United States. And there were those who were, who were who, who I think the majority of Americans actually responded in the polls that, that if the only way to take out Hitler was to go to war, that, might, that, that it might be necessary. Yeah, one thing that you, you brought up that was just now that reminded me of something else I had read elsewhere relatively recently was uh, the election of 1920 in large part. So that 
uh, Harding's absolute shellacking uh, in that election. Uh, shellacking of the opponent that is was in large part due to the entry into world war one and what i found was interesting is there was two coalitions specifically that decidedly broke from the democrats in that election one was the irish population and one was the german population both of those voted for the democrats largely in 1916 but in 1916 uh wilson was campaigning on one supporting Irish independence after World War One, mm-hmm. or after you know, after all of that settled down uh, in Europe, and that he was going to stay out of World War One, and so the German population yeah. voted for the Democrats. Now, of course, he backed out of both of those. He went into World War One and then did not support Irish independence. And both of those groups then broke decidedly for the Republicans, leading to what a twenty-five point. Uh, sw- uh, victory in the popular yeah, vote for, I, I, you're, for you're, Harding. You're something probably like more that. on top of the numbers than I am, but it was clear, and it was also the case that, um, yeah, no, yeah, in terms of what you're saying, yes, right, yeah. Anyway, did Roosevelt was it was did Roosevelt run as a vice president in twenty yeah, or twenty four? Vice presidential ticket in nineteen twenty, right, um, and he learned a lesson. In 1920, and that was that they should not allow the Republicans to have to lay claim to the flag and wrap themselves in it. Right. Well, the the insurrection. Uh, I haven't really. I'm sorry. Yeah, no. Extraordinary. Extraordinary events. Uh, uh, I'm still trying to understand it. I've become somewhat obsessed with watching the videos and wondering who these people are. Yeah. The video that the further video, you saw the New Yorker video. Yes. The New Yorker. It's amazing. That was, that, that was amazing. Right? It exonerates the cops. I, I, you know, I have to keep apologizing. I have problems with the cops, but the Capitol police, it, if you look at the New Yorker videos, yeah, you get a more sympathetic view of them trying to tamp down yeah, or at least to guide it in a, in a less uh, yes. violent direction. Right. You know, I'm I'm not so sure there weren't those among the the cops who were in on it, or at least sympathetic. Sympathetic, right? Um, there was an amazing moment to me. The most amazing moment regarding the police was the African American Capitol Hill officer who was literally trying to, to slow them down. And direct them in certain ways to trick I mean, them into following him. Yeah, yeah away from I mean, the right the the, but, the senators and Congress people. But the know. news this evening is interesting. So apparently, of the the twenty five thousand National Guardsmen who are are guardsmen and women, I suppose, who are stationed now uh, uh, somewhere around the National Mall, that there are now going to be not inquisitions, but something along. They're going to inquire as to the politics of the folks who are actually there. They are concerned about renegade um, troopers who will uh, fire in the take, take aim, you might say. So, uh, well, so we're, we're not even two weeks out from this. Yeah. Can I just say something? I think I might've mentioned this last week. I'm not sure. I really want to know who was in the crowd action who was in the mob i i want i'd I'd just love to know the composition of the mob the composition of the 
you know, the invaders of the Capitol. I, geez, I would love to know that. I don't, I don't mean, I don't even mean their particular politics. I want to know their class, their social class and status. I really want to know that. Because we make assumptions about folks who do things from the right. And I, and I think it's often, it's often the case that we assume that they're working class, and I'm not convinced of that. And I'd like to have more evidence. I'd like to know. We did, maybe we did talk about that, how many were dentists or accountants or, you know, managers at Walmart. I'd like to just know more about that. And how many supporters of Trump were white lower class? Didn't we discover that a lot of that most of the people who voted for Trump were, in fact, white and pretty comfortable that they weren't yeah, I, I can't, i'm not so sure be, uh, uh, to say that generically because i do think the rural areas uh, in wisconsin that saw big turnouts for trump were not very well off farmers and, and and many of them were just plain sort of workers who live on small holdings out in the countryside so i i just don't know i i've yeah. read that the people who voted for trump by and large were white and yeah. securely middle to upper middle class. Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting. There were many assumptions. Back in the early 1950s, there was this effort among folks who wait, later became known as the neoconservatives. At that point, they were decidedly liberal social scientists. And they portrayed working class people as authoritarians, okay, based on innumerable studies that they supposedly conducted attitude surveys and other things. And yet the voting for, for example, the most authoritarian of American senators, perhaps of that day, though excluding Southern white supremacists, I'm thinking right now of McCarthy from Wisconsin, Joseph McCarthy, I think actually was uh, white middle and upper middle class Republican suburbans and not your working class voter here in Wisconsin. So, you know, there were all these assumptions made. I'll give you a really good example of how myths can take hold of this. So the longstanding argument about this authoritarian working class um, led people to presume, and innumerable uh, writers presumed that it was the working class that voted for Hitler in Germany. Okay, and and some this guy, I think his name was Richard F. Hamilton. He wrote a good book, Who Voted for Hitler. He also wrote great stuff on American politics. And he actually did. He, I think it was. I think he was the guy who went back looking for the original footnote. In other words, back, back, back. Who had the original footnote? And it was by a guy I think Franz Neumann, who had a whole wrote a book about totalitarianism and uh, Nazi Germany, something like that. And it wasn't based on any kind of empirical data. It was. It was a kind of philosophical assumption that was made. So he turned around and he, and he wrote this book, "Who Voted for Hitler," and he did studies uh, on a residential of a residential pattern in the vote on residential, you know, what do they call it? Uh, voting in, in, in districts. And most of the districts that voted for Hitler were not necessarily, were not working class. I mean, it just weren't, it turned out. So we've got to be careful about so many assumptions. And I think the media, I mean, look, let's face it. The media is filled with these, you know, nowadays folks on CNN and places like that, they talk about Trump as a monster. But for how, for how long were they the ones who spent all of their time fascinated by Trump and giving him all the airtime and giving no airtime, say, to Bernie back in 2015, 16, 
and and decidedly this time as well. And how many times did folks, whether they were white or black on CNN, say, when is he going to start acting like a president? Or if one moment, one moment Trump went on the air and made something that sounded, you know, halfway intelligible, you get somebody like Van Jones say, oh, hey, you know, you know, he's starting to sound like a president. I mean, you know, you know, we're not talking about Biden. Biden has announced he's not going to support the Keystone pipeline. But instead, we're talking about the the fight for the soul of our country. Yeah, Uh, he's not going. Trump isn't going to go away. This is much easier to talk about than climate change. But if you were to discover that a preponderance of the people who stormed the Capitol were comfortable, what would that tell you? It would tell me that they really enjoyed the tax breaks that they had. It would te- probably tell me that that republic that the whole that the Republican ideology of low taxes and limited government had really turned people into in, into fanatics who into hate fanatics. Washington. Right. They, they okay. hate the administrative state. They hate the IRS. Yeah. They hate the Capitol. They hate federal spending. Yeah, a friend of mine who taught public administration, he used to say, from, he, he was from Michigan, he came here to teach for a while, said, you know, what was it, the, the damn government, right? That, that was an, that's the way he would phrase it, you know, damn government, damn government, right? And is it disingenuous or stupid? Very disingenuous, given the fact that upper middle class people, not quite as much as the top 1%, Sent, but you know, our middle class people enjoy the privileges. Of no, is it disingenuous not, to, to for us to ask where did these people come from? You're a scholar of Roosevelt. These yeah. people existed. They, yeah, these, they, they, they never they went away. Oh, a- absolutely. I mean, absolutely. Look, the Republicans then came after re- Republicans and the, the most and the richest people in America who formed the American Liberty League. They went after Roosevelt. I think I mentioned this one time. One week they called him a fascist, the next week a communist. Herbert Hoover, who he had defeated in 1932, wrote a whole book in which he basically charged that Roosevelt wanted to regiment Americans. Um, Al Smith, the Democrat that Hoover beat in 1928, who presumed, by the way, that Roosevelt would be such a failure that as governor, he'd never become a candidate for president, that Al Smith would once again run in, in, in 32 and the Democrats turned their backs on him. Al Smith talked about, you know, fearing that the new dealers were going to raise the red flag, you know, the, the red flag over the White House and the Capitol building. I mean, that's the opposition was strong and, and there were serious, serious counterparts. You know, you had the Klan. OK, and very prominent people who were part of the Klan down south, especially Democrats. But, Okay. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And you also had, I forgot the names of many of the groups there in every part of the country you had these groups. And then in the Boston area, you had, um, uh, again, it's a sort of Christian organization uh, generated by the Catholic Church, not by evangelical churches. Coughlin, I mean, Father Coughlin. You know, Coughlin was the primary figure. And then he had a, a, a sort of Boston area figure who sort of took over from his, him as well. No, I mean, you had the, the divisions in America were, were fierce back in the 30s. But, and that brings us to how do you transcend these? Well, you don't do it by talking about the soul of America and that we should all go looking in our hearts and souls as to, you know. For unity. For, for the evil, uh, you know, and don't try to create a conversation 
on race because the conversation isn't going to get any, anywhere because everyone's going to get all the more angry and the only people maybe taking part in it are going to be upper middle class people who, you know, who, who just, you know, literally want to sound nice to each other, live in a nice white neighborhood and have Black Lives Matter on their front lawn as a, you know, as a, as a sign. No, I think it's the case that really what you need to do is not talk about the soul of America, but actually I've, I've said over and over again, massive national infrastructure projects that gives people jobs, makes them work together despite their political differences, ethnic differences and racial differences. And in the course of truly building back better in a national effort, you, you cultivate solidarities and you got to make sure that those solidarities include the right to organize and the right to bargain collectively and all the other stuff that, that came out of the thirties and the struggles of the thirties. And, and you treat whoever, stormed the Capitol the same way you would, sh we should have treated the people who took uh, the World uh, Trade Center down. You find out who did it and you quietly, surreptitiously round them up in the shadows. You don't go to war. You do well, you, you know, find out who's, yeah. you, you trace the money. I mean, th you, the get rid of the, this, you get rid of the, the spigot of money. Been, this has been going on now for, for quite some time. I mean, what the, these folks, whether they're they're quite as extreme as Timothy McVeigh and the other fellow's name I'm forgetting, who, who blew up the the federal building in Oklahoma City, I mean, it's not exactly. I mean, people have to realize this has been going on for some time, and well, it's just a matter of how often they they take place. And it's fascinating to consider, fascinating to consider how how over and over again the violence emanates from the far right. OK, the far right and how truly peaceful, other than perhaps some damaged property, OK, left marches and struggles have been. And even Black Lives Matter, which was, you know, masses of numbers of people relatively. I mean, you couldn't get much more. Could you imagine that number of people out in the streets re resulting in, in so few injuries and deaths? I mean, it's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, to be continued, Professor Harvey J.K.'s latest book is FDR on Democracy. Follow him at Twitter, on Twitter, at Harvey J.K. And what are you reading? I'm actually reading about Lincoln as much as I can right now. Um, I'm, I'm reading a big book by, I think his name is David Reynolds. He did a big book one time on Walt Whitman and his times. This is a book about Lincoln and his times. Um, I think there's a lot of a lot of reason to be interested in Lincoln. I, I actually have an idea for a book on Washington, Lincoln, and FDR. Okay, because I think we've lost touch with the with the radicalism of of all three of them. I've already done it with the four freedoms, but I'd like to do something like that for Washington and Lincoln, despite despite the questions that people seem to be eager to uh, repeat over and over again, and the answers they want to give over and over again. Okay, I'm going to play the Harvey J.K. love theme from Professor Mike Stein. Yeah, can I just say one more thing? Sure, I please. Someone coming in. And I want to say that I know people tend to scorn inaugural speeches in this, in this age of ours, but I do think that they're very telling, okay, very telling. If, if I, I can tell you that Obama's – I knew from, from, Car, from that Carter – well, Carter's too, but from Clinton's inaugural address first – and Obama's inaugural address, I knew what we were going to get. I knew we were going to get neoliberalism. 
And I urge I urge actually people on the left to pay very close attention to Biden's speech. It's possible that it will surprise and it's possible it will be everything we fear it will be. Soul of America and unity and blah, blah, blah. But what if he starts talking about what if he starts talking about labor and encouraging people to join labor unions, which I'm hearing apparently from this guy, Marty Walsh, who's going to be the secretary of labor, which surprises me. But who knows? So pay attention to the his inauguration is being paid for by one of the top union busting law firms in America. Yep. And he's got John Stewart in the parade and john stewart i know in the when, parade in the presidential parade and john stewart hired one of the top union busting law firms when i went up against him yeah well pay attention that's all i can tell you to okay. parades and to words thank you professor harvey you. jk harvey jk he's got a lot to say about Thomas Paine and FDR St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go Harvey J.K. is on the show today Harvey J.K. J.K. wants you to be radical. He ain't dogmatical. Won't take a sabbatical. St. Peter, don't you call me, cause I can't go. Harvey J.K. is on the show today. I have a feeling that's the only reason... He does my show. Let us. Oh, there's Professor Mike Steinel. We're going to go to Professor Marianne Cummings in. There we are in Aurora, Illinois. There she is. Well, we lost her. Do we have her? Yeah, she's back. Nope. Uh, we we can't see that picture of you with Donna Brazil. Uh, who are you with, Donna Brazil? Is it that? Yes, I was with Christine Pelosi, um, Nomiki Konst. I was talking to the two of them. And then I swear to God, I remember like the Jaws music playing. I mean, something (laughs) like like twitched on my side. And I looked to the side and there was Donna Brazil coming upon our little group. That was at the Democratic, that was the meeting for the uh, Democratic Unity Commission. And that was the big meeting they had in Chicago. And I was one of the people that the uh, progressives on the committee had asked us to come and be kind of the rabble-rousing cheering section for what they wanted to do. Um, Anyway, I was about to tell Christine Pelosi in the most polite way possible that she was completely full of crap when uh, Donald Brazil sort of um, interrupted. And I guess the expression on my face kind of said it all. But, uh, you know, 
Christine Pelosi was telling us how, oh, it doesn't matter that, you know, the Democrats are accepting a fossil fuel money. It's, it's not going to affect anything. And it's just a ploy. And we really aren't. And I'm going, how did anything that you just said even make sense? But anyway, that was we didn't get to finish that conversation. Well, so. let's talk about it's Martin Luther King's birthday, or right. Martin Luther King Day. And there's a new speaker of the Illinois House. His name is Representative Emanuel Chris Welch. He replaces right. Mike Madigan. I think Mike Madigan mm-hmm. was there for 40 years. Right. Uh, Representative Emanuel Chris Welch. Are mm-hmm. we are we happy with him? Is he a Democrat? Oh, he's a Democrat in the finest tradition of Illinois Democrats. Yeah. And is he, uh, I would assume he's, you know, like Jamie Harrison, an ultra left, I'm joking, an ultra leftist. Uh, No, he was, he was on the commission um, to investigate this latest scandal of uh, Madigan's, which was how over the years, like a hundred close Madigan aides have gotten jobs or put on board, some of them getting hundreds of thousands of dollars for doing absolutely nothing for ComEd. And we have some of the highest rates in the country. So it was just basically the, uh, so the basic story, the basic accusation, uh, accusations are corruption and that basically Mike Madigan um, always ruled very gently and favorably for ComEd and it, and particularly when it came time to turn to the uh, rate setting and the rate regulation portion of the legislation. So he, uh, Chris Welch, Welch was on that committee and then he decided, okay, we've heard enough. And then they just kind of like ended it. All right. <laughs> Nothing to see here. So, yes. Uh, Did you hear but, the conversation that Professor Hussein had with Professor Horn? That was you know, kind of like listening to Irritable and Henry get into the weeds about immunology, like trying to take a drink from a fire hydrant. That guy was, was yes. amazing. Amazing. The amount of information. Right. That kind of, um, that, that kind of poured on for me. But, uh, you know, but the idea that race, racism went underground, man, I grew up in Detroit and in the Detroit area. You know, it's northern Oh, the racism is rampant around Detroit. People forget that uh, uh, Malcolm X's dad was not lynched in the South. He was lynched outside of East Lansing, Michigan. And Indiana has one of the biggest KKK chapters. And uh, yes. Michigan, there was a map in Harper's Magazine uh, 10 years ago. It was a map of the United States in terms of all of the four major, at the time, the hate groups. It was the American Nazi Party, Aryan Nation, White Christian Nation, which were all the racist dominionists, and, of course, the Ku Klux Klan. And uh, number one state in terms of the numbers of chapters they had in the four groups mine was uh, Michigan. My understanding is that segregation was invented in the North, that, that, the, that, the, that Southerners would travel with their slaves to the North and be stunned that they had to then be segregated from them in 
Uncertain. Oh, you know, I don't know that. That would have to be a historian. That would be very I interesting. I think I read that somewhere that but, the segregation, the North invented segregation. I wouldn't be surprised at that concept because here's my own experience from visiting dorms of my older friends in high school and then going to school in at University of Michigan and visiting dorms in Michigan State and Iowa uh, in the uh, late 70s and 80s was that in every single dorm, and I went to many of them to eat, you know, they, you had one meal card and you could go to just about all of them to have dinner. Um, there was always one black table. I mean, it, it was almost like the black kids felt they had to self-segregate. I'd never... When I went down to Tallahassee, Florida, uh, as a graduate student, I was the only University of Michigan person on my experiment. They were all Florida State people. I was amazed to go into the student union. And it was in this, okay, we're talking late 80s. And it was like completely segregated, uh, completely integrated. I, I mean, we, we just didn't have this polarization or tension at all. Partly because I think in the North and Northern universities, the uh, African-Americans were a rather small minority. You know, to this day, they are. And in the South, they're just simply more of them. People are used to interacting with each other. Whatever the underlying historical tensions or the you know, residual um, structures, racial structures are done. Racist structures are done there. I think that, um, yeah, somebody once told me that the racism of the North was way more vicious than the racism of the South, despite some of the more, you know, spectacular uh, events that happened. And I, I would tend to agree with them. Well, Trump supposedly leaves Wednesday. The next mm -hmm. time we talk, we're going to mm -hmm. have a new president, supposedly. Well, we're going to have a new president, and it doesn't matter what happens on Wednesday. Whether they, ha I, I mean, I think it's really not a good idea to have an in-person inauguration with COVID raging. Uh, I mean, the rates for COVID are four times in, in D.C. are four times those of just this the summer. So, I don't know what they think they're doing, but well, now they have to matter. prove to themselves that they that they can continue and not give in to terrorists. So they, well, have you know, I remember. Look. The Constitution, Biden is president, unless he dies, and then there's all these other provisions to who succeeds him to become president. But Biden becomes president at 12 noon, period. If you don't need inauguration. You don't need to Did, Didn't uh, Roberts have to re-swear in Obama because they flooded? They didn't. No, look, I watched that because in 2008, I was over at our roundhouse preparing uh, the one area for our big Obama party, inauguration party that night. But in the front, they were playing Fox News. And that was delightful. They were all drunk. All of them were drunk, except for uh, Juan Williams. He wasn't drunk. But, you know, uh, Chris Wallace kept giggling. I mean, he was giggling, going, oh, we may not have a president. We may not have a president. And, and Mike Wallace is, or Mike Wallace. Why do I want to say that? It's, uh, the sober person, uh, Juan, was telling him, excuse me, Chris, we do have a president. He's president as of 12 noon. 
you know, in, in the same when when Kennedy was shot, the instant that Kennedy died, Johnson, because he was uh, a fit, able person, immediately becomes president. They grabbed a local judge and had a swearing in ceremony, like right there, just so that the press could take all these pictures and assure the nation that we had a president. You know, that was all publicity. So, uh, you know, whatever happens on Wednesday, as of 12 noon, Biden is the president. Okay, so Biden becomes president, and the first thing he's going to do is bring his COVID-19 stimulus package down Uh to uh, Congress, and he wants to raise the minimum wage to $15. Already, there's going to be pushback, and... So then we go into the weeds, trying to mm-hmm. unpack this $1.9 trillion package. Not as interesting as an insurrection, not as insurrection, uh, interesting as, well, as the president in exile down in Mar-a-Lago. The media isn't going to let go of Donald Trump. You can take him off Twitter, but... He, People are not going to tune into Rachel Maddow if she's talking about policy. <laughs> talking yeah, policy. I mean, it's, well, look, you know, it's what Matt Taibbi had described in his book Hate Inc. and he, that he came out with about two or three years ago. And on the cover, on one side is Sean Hannity, but on the other side is Rachel Maddow. And what he was looking at is both. Now we've always known that. Um, that talk radio has been a haven for right-wingers, and it's just been like a bunch of people, a little siloed information. And Fox News was basically, uh, was discovered that, hey, uh, you make a lot of money telling people what they want to hear, but dressing it up, you know, in some kind of authority. Mm -hmm. Well, MSNBC is now playing the same game. So you just have two separate silos of information or disinformation, depending on how you look at it. And people are living in two different worlds and they make money off of, off of sensationalism. I mean, Rachel Maddow's crowd really picked up. She was getting close to Sean Hannity's numbers when she was day on day in and day out shopping this Russiagate story. Right. And now, now they're shopping this Congressman Gosar, the dentist, and yeah. interviewing his brother or sister and that he's a seditionist. And yes, I do believe that Josh Hawley should be thrown out and Ted Cruz should be thrown out and they should get to the Ted bottom. Cruz, that would, yeah, for a lot of other reasons. Uh, uh, but we, we have Josh Hawley was, he's getting thrown out because he gave the thumbs up to the marchers as he went into uh, his office. Right. And he didn't acknowledge that Trump won. And there are, you know, 140 Republicans who are guilty of sedition because they wouldn't certify the election. And by the way, realize all of that is completely legal, (laughs) completely legal and constitutional. I mean, as we discovered, many of us to our amazement back in 2000, there's at least four steps between people voting and a president being sworn in. And uh, one thing that Michael Moore's movie made clear to everybody, Fahrenheit 911, like, how did we get here? We had this, like, you know, 
idiot psychopath basically installed by his daddy's Supreme Court. And nobody had ever, alive, remembers anything even approaching that, you know, a real coup. And there was one point where uh, the House members could have objected and then raised, you know, a ruckus on, on the floor of, of, of Congress. They only needed one uh, senator to sponsor them. And not a single Democratic senator would have gone up. Now, to be fair, if I had been in a mob outside the White House with this going on, I would have, yeah, I want those guys to, I would have got, want these guys to be pissing their pants and scared of us. I think a healthy society is when the, our, our congressmen, our politicians are actually afraid of us. And unfortunately, the only way, the only place where really this kind of serious kind of pushback comes, and I don't even think it was serious. I think this was, I still think this is largely kind of staged political theater. And again, you know, when I find out now that they, that the police, we now know the police weren't riot outfitted. They did not prepare for a possible riot. They you know, what Harvey J.K. say is absolutely right. The big protests of the left are largely peaceful. I think part of it is that, you know, part of it is just the nature of the people involved. But also, like, all of those peace marches down in, in Chicago area, I mean, you had almost shoulder-to-shoulder police presence there. I mean, there was not going to be any rioting or any serious rioting that didn't immediately get squelched with the police there. So... You know, I, I think that's one part. Um, the police surrounded the protesters down in downtown Aurora. They let the looting go on. I mean, there were just a few, a, a couple, it turns out a few dozen looters, and they weren't armed. They were just breaking into stores, stealing stuff, and the police didn't stop them. So there was a lot to answer locally. So, you know, when I hear all this, and, yeah, I saw some of the video. I saw the video of the black guy, like, in um three weeks ago, who was a, one uh, uh, police officer who was basically telling the crowd, no, no, please, you don't do this. I'm going, wow, that guy's pretty brave. So obviously it wasn't, I don't put it on the individual policemen, even the guys that, you know, were kind of giving high fives and selfies and going, this is a chain of command issue. Right. I mean, this is a, the, you know, the, the selfie photo through well, more than one, huh? <laughs> but yeah. There was more than one, but yes. It it looked to me like they were trying to calm these people down. It didn't look like they were that guy was the cop was complicit. It looked like Yeah. Let's let's tamp this down here. Yes. Okay, take- yeah. That might have been, which tells me this wasn't a real insurrection. I mean, if you had a serious militia trained, you know, they wouldn't have been behaving like this. Although I did see But now it is conceivable. That not everybody who hijacked the planes and flew them into the World Trade Center knew that they were going to fly. You have your ringleaders and then you have the followers. So it is conceivable that, and I do believe, that there were some ringleaders there who were financed. And then some people who thought, yeah, well, you know, we'll storm the Capitol. But I don't think they were planning on kidnapping Pelosi. 
I don't think they had the capacity to do it. Look, there was a very interesting video that emerged on Katie Helper's show because she had this she had this guy John Sullivan who managed to get on Anderson Cooper's show, who claimed to be Black Lives Matter. Antifa was like a making a, a documentary, and he was in the crowd. He was among the people who quote stormed the Capitol. Yeah, the Intercept like, wrote about him. He's yeah. he's problematic. He's like a Lee Harvey well, he's Oswald. Really problematic. He's like I a mean, Lee Harvey Oswald. He's like 22, 23, mm-hmm. and he's claiming to be a liberal, but he no, he's a. So he was claiming to, to be a be, journalist hung out with Black Lives Matter in Utah and a whole bunch of and he was claiming to be a documentarian going undercover, and, but then encouraging, you know, let's take the. Ca- yeah, he, he was OK. Like so a reality the, TV producer. The, the interesting thing, because I never saw that film of the woman who was breaking into that. It, it was uh, breaking into the offices of Mitch McConnell and the leadership. And I thought it was outside for some reason, but no, they were inside. There was like about, in this film, there was like maybe about 30 people outside these offices with glass doors. And this guy, John Sullivan, is telling the police, please leave, please leave, you know, we don't want to hurt you, you know, like, and then he's whipping up the crowd like a, a agent provocateur. And the crowd is all, uh, you know, just getting all whipped up. And they're mostly young men. And a uh, uh, a few guys were like brown and black, but you know, mostly white men in this crowd. And um, Sullivan is, and did, but, but Sullivan this, is what, what color is Sullivan? Oh, he's black. He looks, right. he's, he looks dark. I guess he's and black. Allie Alexander. What color is he? She's white. She was the gal that was like his emotional support. No, no, no. I, I, I'm thinking. No, there's somebody. Oh. Go ahead. Uh, go ahead. But anyway, what I was going to say is that this film. Um, was taken moments before. Well, they were. They, you show them breaking the windows, and there's these there's these guards on the other side, and they do not look worried at all. These are like the real professionals, and apparently they had to stop the video because Katie Helper said she was worried since she was showing it on YouTube. If she showed the next portion of the video, she'd get taken down. But what had happened was the girl got shot. I mean, the guy, one of the big, you know, seriously armed people the other side of the door after they broke the windows he gets up and he shoots and he said at that point you saw everybody scatter and uh this is this is ali alexander and yeah he's the stop he's the stop the steal guy and he says he was meeting with gosar and mo brooks andy biggs right but what I'm saying is that, and, and by the way, um, so the other person that uh, Katie had on her show was Max Blumenthal, who was there. So he was actually present and watching this stuff and talking to the people afterwards. And, uh, you know, and he was talking about what happened afterwards. And he was watching this woman being carried away after she had been shot. But he even described after people heard the shot, people just scattered People carried away. That was it. One one shot, and these guys were fleeing. It was getting all too real. But, that occurred to me too. Yeah. That that when she was shot, nobody whipped out their guns, and there wasn't. Uh, you would think yeah. that would have that would have started a bloodbath since they were all you know carrying concealed weapons. Now, there's two points about this. One is that they had been talking about this a good week or two on Parler, on social media. Oh, 
where are our vaunted like 17 intelligence organizations? Like nobody was nobody was like scanning Twitter or her parlor or any of these social media platforms. Um, and two, when people get what I think is blown up histrionic about something, this is a serious, I mean, this is a serious offense in anybody coming in. I mean, the guy that flew the plane into the White House, remember, when Clinton was president? Well, that was like a serious offense. But it isn't the guy who flew the plane in. It's like, how in the world... This should be like one of the most surveyed, fortified places on earth. And how did this guy manage to do that? So that's the other. So that's the question. But also when you have and ever since I was a kid, when everybody in the news media or everybody's wanting to point to this hand, this hand, watch what this hand is doing. My instinct is always to look, you know, 180 degrees. What's what's the other hand doing while everybody's attention and. What's happening? I mean, I was just watching, a, 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 was scanning through the news, and CNN had a little blurb where they're talking about um, a, a joint power agreement between um, Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer. And I'm like, what do you mean joint power? Democrats have the lead. You're the leader. No, they're going to, like, acknowledge that's a 50-50 split and that um, Democrat uh, Republicans can bring up bills too, so it won't be the chair. But the Democrats will be the chair of the committees. But apparently, they if it's a fifty-fifty split in their committees, they won't have the, the overriding vote. And I'm going, what? What the hell are? I mean, this. And so, yeah, I mean, it's it's frightening to see something like this happen. This is what Trent Lott. And Tom Daschle did because when Bush became president, it was split. And then he had Jeffords, Mm -hmm. who became a Democrat. Oh, yeah. People forget Tom Daschle, the lobbyist. uh, Jim Jeffords, senator from Vermont, had had it with the Bushies. I mean, he was disgusted with the party for a variety of reasons. I can't remember. I think he was a moderate Republican. So he decides to become independent. So the Senate is no longer 50-50 with, uh, with uh, Dick Cheney being the sided vote. And, but Daschle coexisted yeah. with Trent Lott and the Republicans yeah. and agreed to the war authorization. That's what, that's what uh, yeah. reaching across the aisle gets you. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's like there's, a, there's this uh, flare-up, you know, it's like an infected finger that's you know that that people are paying attention to and there is just this big tsunami of a virus heading our way which is going to be massive unemployment and a raging covid virus i mean the covid isn't going to go away uh we we're not deploying the vaccines fast enough and there is no talk of anything approaching like a world war ii scale effort to do anything and that's, you know, far more than a $15 minimum wage hell, like Illinois already has that and so do many states. I mean, it should be more closer to 25 at this point. Right. It's $15 getting a little obsolete. But, you know, just when you think about the vast amount of infrastructure we need to do just to install, like, just to ward off the worst effects of climate change, I think right now 
it's almost getting too late. The insurrection was a gift to Wall Street and the richest 1% because, like you said, look at my left hand. Now Mm -hmm. we have to look, instead of looking at the 99%, we now Mm -hmm. have to unite and tamp down the vitriol. And they're even talking about like a Patriot Act too. I mean, look, look. Schumer introduced it, yeah. This is crazy. Well, uh, there's another story today, and Jordan Sheridan was, um, you know, he's he was the guy that broke the story that led to the um, the governor of Michigan finally getting busted after the uh, Democratic AG and governor decided to vacate the charges, and there wasn't really much to see here. Oh, well, we're going to work on it, but nothing happened. So he goes, and he and his um, comrades are. Are, are covering a rally that was done. It was a it, it was a pro gun gun rally, but very peaceful. And they're going and they're talking to the people. You know, what do you think? You know, what do you guys are? What are you guys here doing? What do you fear from Biden? This and that. And they were uh, streaming it on YouTube. They were just streaming it on YouTube. It was a because they're a genuine news organization. YouTube shut it down. YouTube shut it down, and all the the only explanation was this does this violates our standards on guns or something. But it was you know there it wasn't about guns so much. It was a pro gun crowd, but it was covering their rally and talking. It was about it was just outlandish. But that's what's ahead for us. I mean, if you if you're not allowed to cover things, if we let two billionaires decide what is reasonable. What is, you know, allowable? I mean, people forget that when they've been deplatforming people for a while, yes, the, the left was applauding Alex Jones being deplatformed, but they didn't realize that there were many independent journalists that were also deplatformed. A couple of them have been reporting from Syria, people voting from Yemen. They get deplatformed because they're showing uh, pictures of dead children, which obviously offends everybody's community standards children being killed by us or by our surrogates is always pretty offensive. And, uh, you know, this is, it always goes bad for the left when you, when you talk about censorship, it always goes bad for the left because the people in charge of the censorship do not have their values at heart. And the only antidote to all this misinformation and all this, you know, the, this propagandizing, which, by the way, happens in the Washington Post and the New York Times as much as any other source, is more news, is more voices, is, is more people telling. And when people see the stories, people's minds can change when they see a story and they actually see pictures. And it's not like you get all the information. Sometimes the most important thing to get across is that there even is another story. Many people watching Fox News and even MSNBC can't conceive that there's another, who is it? Who is that old radio guy? Uh, Harvey. Paul Harvey. Paul Harvey. And now the rest of the story. Guy. And yeah. now they never even page two. <laughs> but anyway, that's. By the way, uh, uh, by the way, Rachel Maddow pretty much ripped off his structure. He, Paul Harvey had a brilliant structure. Start your story at the end. And that man was my Uncle Maury. And, and that's how Rachel Maddow tells her stories. Mm-hmm. 
Well, 40 I mean, minutes to get to a nuclear power plant has blown up in Massachusetts and 50 million people are dead. I get that. I mean, she came out of like a morning drive. She was an Air America host. And, and I gave her credit that even when Air America wasn't paying its its hosts at one point, she went in on Christmas and did her show on Christmas night. So I gave her props. I think, I, I was, I, you know, she's I, I listen. Ra- Rachel Maddow's great at what she does. She's no Chris Hayes. But if it just in terms of her writing style, it's. Anybody can do Rachel Maddow, take a story out of the Associated Press and start with the last paragraph and work your way up to the top. Well, and the, know, reveal is, is <laughs> the reveal she, is the reveal is we have well, five minutes left to live. Okay, the, the Simpsons did a great takedown of her on other shows. But um, the thing is, she actually used to break news. They, she used to do some stories that at least weren't being reported nationally. She was the first one to make Alec sort of a national when she and flint well well, she was the first she was the first one to take the flint story national now uh jordan sheridan was one of the first reporters to actually go in there he was working for tyt at the time and he was like doing in-depth reporting on that and then he went out and was doing some data reporting on dapple he was going to go back to flint and then he got fired from tyt and uh, but now he seems to be doing some really excellent um, breaking news type coverage. I mean, real boots on the ground that his he's got a long, uh, lengthy article in The Intercept now about, you know, how they track down uh, how, how they track down the memos, the phone calls, the emails to and get the timeline constructed for which is the basis of of uh, Snyder's indictment now i hope he goes to jail i hope i mean his second in command is facing a bigger yeah well yeah yeah but he's a billionaire you know snyder i my my sister and brother-in-law actually took me uh in ann when i visited them in ann arbor they told they they showed me his little penthouse in ann arbor you know he's he's uh he's got the kind of money that can buy your way maybe out of a lengthy prison sentence yeah But I would hope not. I mean. Steal a little money. They put you in jail. Steal a lot. They make you king. Bob Dylan. uh, Jim Earl's on. I mean, I was watching. So I think Jimmy Doris done one last, took one last phone call from Mike Pompeo. And I was, uh, I mean, I remember seeing those like starting about a year or two ago. I think, Jim, you might have written some of those. But it's like, I can't look at Mike Pompeo and not think of the phone calls to Jimmy Dore, which are hilarious. So, uh, uh, Mike McRae does the, uh, yeah. all the Pompeo ones. Oh, do you, he writes all the, does he also writes the Pompeo ones? Well, yeah, I, I, I write most of the other ones. The, uh, oh, those are brilliant. I mean, thank they you. make people funny. I, I couldn't conceive of being funny. So That is the curse of being a comedy writer. When people know that you write on a show, they always cite the one bit that you had nothing to do with. So well, I've been writing the stoned Chomsky ones. The stoned Chomsky are brilliant. Oh, my God. That David is actual ones. <laughs> All right. Professor Marianne Cummings, Parks Commissioner, Aurora, Illinois. Thank you. 
we're going to go down to Professor Mike Steinel at Mike's Club. Hello, Professor Mike Steinel. Hello, David. Are you calling from? I'm in the cave. You're in the cave. I'm in my club. I love your new jazz club down there in Denton. Nice, isn't it? Yeah. I always like finishing up the show, checking in with you. Did you send me something to play? I did, but you don't have to. I mean, you're kind of running along here. No, no. uh, Let me just load it up. Hey, you know, we lost some really important uh, Americans this week. I just wanted to pay some tribute to some people. Um, you know, <laughs> yes. What are you laughing at? Well, Sheldon Adelson. I, I think I, I think. Oh, oh yes, 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 yes. Sheldon Adelson. Bornstein. Look, what do you think? I could do, I could do like Bornstein, uh, the, the Trump's doctor. And then of mm-hmm. course that's, uh, there's that guy down there with the makeup. We got Adelson, you got Borstein, and you got Phil Spector. Phil Spector and Sheldon Adelson. Yeah. Yeah. May they rest. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Of the three, who's the worst? Sheldon Adelson, I guess, right? I don't know. I think it's. He didn't. Uh, I don't think he's killed anybody. Oh, I would. I. I think funding <laughs> being the. Uh, okay. The, and the newspapers that he runs in the Middle East, he's pretty bad. I'm looking for your thing here. Uh, um, there it is. Yeah. Okay. Good. All right. Let me download. You want to play it? The Middle Sea song. The Middle Sea song. Yeah, you're gonna. Uh, you're gonna have to give me like three minutes. To okay. load it, so while we're doing that, hey, I, I did a three three. Um, I'm on that Noom thing with my diet. I've told you about that, right? You're trying Noom, to lose weight. El- yes, and it's kind of they ask you these questions like, um, "What is your main? What's your main goal? I want to lose weight." And then you have to type it in there, and what's your motivation for that goal? Says I don't want to look fat anymore. <laughs> And they don't, they, they don't, they, they want to, they want to go deeper into some sort of, you know, like, uh, what the motivation for eating is I eat cause I'm hungry, but I hear it. Anyway, uh, I took a three, I took a three mile walk today and I, I burned off 350 calories in my walk. So it was, uh, hello, Mr. Heineken. <laughs> I'm uh, keep going. I'm almost, yeah. uh, uh, I'm almost there. Hang on. I have to jump well, out. It, the Noom thing is pretty interesting. It's actually working. You know, I feel a little better. Okay, it's loading. I've also been working on uh, a song for office hours. I might run f- a few ideas by you. Okay. You want to do that first? Sure. I haven't yeah. played <laughs> your new theme songs. I love your old theme song so much that I haven't even gotten to the, it's an the one with hairyless. You haven't done the one with hairyless yet. No, I'm going to have to load. Well, somebody them said they wanted a, by the way, piano? by the way, yes, sir. Office hours with the yeah. overhead shot of you on the keyboards, teaching musical theory. That I thought that worked pretty good. I, I, I thought, thought it was really hard great. to make that work. And well, I'm glad you liked it. I hope it wasn't boring to people. I mean, no, that can get it, pretty in the in the weeds. No, and it, and it came on at such a perfect time. It was, it's the end of the week, and you were—I think you were the first one. And after you, after you monologued, yeah, but it was just very soothing and relaxing. So, 
Well, you might find this 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 is an office hours theme that I've been working on. It's okay. kinda Feldman will take your call. Pants are optional. <laughs> How can one describe it? Nothing can compare <laughs> to office hours. You don't need to bring any flowers. <laughs> when you're feeling kind of down and you got the blues and you're at the end of your rope with nothing else to lose, come to office hours. Bring some whiskey sours. <laughs> there ain't a darn thing that rhymes with hours. Powers? Yeah, if I, 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 I sours. I, I, I thought about if you're in one of them Trump towers. <laughs> yeah, right. Bowers, but, uh, bowers you know, bloom in the sun. Somebody said we need an office hour. Uh, yes. Thing. Well, let's play Middle C. You're teaching like musical theory. Of my children's, this is one of my children's songs for teaching your kids how to read music or just understand music. Fantastic. Middle C. I couldn't find Middle C. Where did it go? Thank you. 
Professor Mike Steinel. Professor Mike Steinel is a jazz trumpeter, composer, and educator, and he is the author of the highly acclaimed Essential Elements for Jazz Ensemble, as well as Building a Jazz Vocabulary. Buy it. Buy those two books wherever great music books are sold. And download Song and Dance, the Mike Steinel Quintet featuring Rosanna Eckert. I listen to it on Spotify, and I'm hoping you put out another CD for for your your grandkid, who you yeah, still like, right? Do... What's that? You still like your grandkid? Oh, he's the best, man. He saw his first snow, and he lives in Austin, Texas. So we got pictures of him out playing in the snow and eating it. Not wow. the yellow snow, but he's just, he's a, he, that was really neat. So he, he's amazing. I just want to get this, these children's songs out on vinyl. And then I'm looking for an animator. So if anybody out there listen to this. The Invisible animator, Ninja. I have to figure out how to play. I, have, I emailed him. He hadn't got back. Okay. I have to figure out what to do with Invisible Ninja's animation that we showed at the screen. That was, ama- it was, so it was amazing. Funny. It was amazing. Well, can't you just put it, just put it up on YouTube? I could put it up on YouTube. Maybe we should just start playing it over and over again. It's, is he here? I don't know if the invisible ninja is here. No, that was so funny. And it's all your words. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like the inflatable Feldman doll. That's yeah. It's me making love to an inflatable <laughs> David Feldman doll. It's really great. And this is a podcast. It's visual. It's not visual. I mean, we do have a Zoom room in YouTube, but so I don't yeah, know what could, to do. Maybe we'll do a special. Maybe we'll do a special on YouTube and Zoom and just show his animation because it's definitely worth looking at. What are you reading? Oh, well, uh, let me see. What am I reading? New York Times. That's a lot of stuff. What are we at now? Like uh 36 hours, maybe 36. Hours. What's the countdown? Well, by the time people are listening, it'll be about Less 30. Than yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I don't know. You know, if he goes gently, he still went out with a bang. So you got to hand it to him. I listened to, um, when I was walking, I listened to, um, Chris Hayes, you know, um, mm-hmm. why is this happening? And I'm not sure I can say this. Tanahasi Coates, he had Tanahasi Coates, you know that writer. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said something interesting. I just and I wrote it down. I listened to it again. Wrote it down. <clears throat> and he was saying, if you believe that Barack Obama was not a legitimate president because he was somehow not born here or whatever. By mm-hmm. the way, you don't have to be born in America to be an, a citizen. If, you're, if your parent is a citizen and you're born, you are automatically a citizen, I believe. But anyway, I, think, said, but uh, believe I that, think McCain was born overseas. Go yes. Ahead. And, and Romney. Nobody called, him on, nobody called him on that. But anyway, Romney's and father. if you happen to believe that... Um, he was a Muslim sleeper cell kind of guy. And if you suffered under eight years of what you thought was, um, you know, a stolen presidency. And then if you believe Hillary is an occult, if you really believe this and that's, you know, child pornography or worse, and um, that she almost won by nefarious means and that 
this presidency right now was stolen due to some, he said, some incredible conspiracy of such level of sophistication that uh, fraudulent votes were stolen from Biden for Biden, but not from other people who were elected. He said, if you believe you have an enemy capable of that level of sophistication, then, yeah, storm revolt. He said, if you're of that mind, then what they did on was that week ago Wednesday was a logical choice for them, you know, and that's what's frightening. We're up against a lot of stuff. But anyway, yeah. I thought that was, that's, uh, I recommend that, uh, what is this happening? There's been some really good things on Chris Hayes. He does a nice job there. Great. Listen, thank I you. Run. Thank you, yeah. Professor Mike Steinell. I hope to see uh, you Thursday. Uh, Mike, Mike, can I, you were talking about uh, Phil Spector. Uh, I think you guys were talking about Phil Spector. Yes. And uh, I, I came across some interesting facts about Phil Spector in uh, Wikipedia that I don't know if you know. He, he scored his first number one hit when he was still in his teens with the Teddy Bears, a group yeah. he formed with two high school friends he later shot in the head. <laughs> <laughs> some of, his, uh, some wow. of his earlier hits were uh, You've Lost That Loving Feeling and Feeling <laughs> Throughout Your Body. Oh, that's a, I, yeah, I remember yeah, that. And, and today I met the boy I'm going to get shot by. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then he shot me. That was another big hit of his. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then he. I and thought that was Carol King, but that's a, that was then yeah. he hit me. That's right. Yeah, that's and, fantastic. And other good things, Jim. That's good. Yet. That's what I call solid journalistic research. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I do all my own research. Uh, yeah. my research. That's good. I do the search, but not the read part. That wasn't you're, funny, was it? You're jazzed up on on hops. I think you got the weird music in your head from the music from the what? Why? Why are you picking on poor Phil Spector? Because uh, <laughs> jazz is evil. Jazz oh. is jazz is cor- corrupts our young young people. You know that. You know what? I I once did a uh, presentation about jazz. I used to teach at a Mennonite college. It was like. Uh, you know, I, it was sort of like being a Presbyterian in Israel, I suppose. But uh, it was, you know, I felt like the, the goy. You can't say that, I guess. But anyway, um, and this one little lady goes, is it true that the jazz is, is evil and dangerous? And I said, only when it's done properly. <laughs> Swear to God, I did say that. And they all went, hee, hee, hee. Well, all right, I'm going to go have I'm going to give you again. my uh, neoliberal take on phil specter okay he, he was a mixed bag <laughs> you had to take the good with the bad all right i want to thank ev- thank you professor mike steinell jim earl you get the last word i would just like to uh you were talking about this the other night uh the amount of total val- uh, value of uh military lethal weapons to uh local police departments through 2006 through 2015 uh 2008 it was uh 33 billion dollars 
2009, 25 billion, 2010, 91 billion, 2011, 227 billion. See where I'm going here? 2012, 151 billion, 2013, 291 billion, and 2014, 787 billion. And what was going on? We were bringing the troops home, weren't we? Just like that's an excuse. And 2015, when it was supposed to be nipped in the bud, 459 billion. So nothing happened except that Barack Obama pretty much uh, increased it by 24 fold, I believe, from the previous presidents, more so than any previous president, actually, colluding and especially George W. Bush who is by far the worst president we've ever had, including Donald Trump. Who was the worst president we ever had? George W. Bush. Worse than Obama? Yes. Who was worse, uh, LBJ or Obama? I think the person, the family that is implicated in the deaths of over four to five million uh people in the Mideast from the 1990s on, I think, I think they should be in the category of the worst people on earth at the moment. You're talking about the Bush family. The Bush family. But who was Bush. worse, Obama or LBJ? Well, that's a good question. Who was worse, Obama or FDR? More wise. Well, Obama dropped more... Uh, Bombs on brown-skinned people. Who was worse, Obama or FDR? I don't know. I was just talking about the worst president in the world in the history of modern politics, which you and Alan Grayson seem to be jerking off a lot to lately. You know, who was worse, Lincoln or Obama? Who killed? Who killed more Americans? Trump is the worst president. Who killed more Americans, Lincoln, Lincoln or Trump? Who was worse? Who was worse for America, Lincoln or Trump? I'm also <laughs> non-citizens of this country don't matter to you, I guess. Their lives are, are, don't matter. No, how many? You know how, how, saying? I'm talking about I'm the war, the Civil War. Were you for or against people, the Civil War? I, I think, I think were you for the Civil War count. or against it? Yes or no? I'm, <laughs> yes or no? a stupid question. What do you mean it's a stupid question? Would you have supported the Civil War or would you have said, let them secede? Are you are you talking? Are you comparing American imperialism for the for the oil industry? To I'm asking the, you a simple American, question. It's the 18, American Civil War. It's eighteen sixty one. Do you think five million people dead is worse than you're talking about Syria? Than anybody in this century, in the last century? Half, half, how about six hundred thousand Americans dead from the Civil War? How about we stick to these, this century and the century before last, this century, as many people have been doing in comparing, oh, this is the worst president of our lifetime in the history of this country. Who's worse? So, Who's a worse human being, Obama or John Stewart? <laughs> John Stewart killed probably three million people, so it would have to be still Obama. <laughs> he's marching. Do you know he's going to be in the inaugural parade? I, I'm not surprised. 
that should be aspiring. Yeah. He's a great man. Jim, if you hate this country so much, why don't you come back Thursday? (laughs) (laughs) How is it in Maine? Are you getting fresh air? Yeah, we we have good air quality for the most part. You know, just uh, we got the same amount of percentage of people ignoring wearing masks as pretty much anywhere else, except maybe Los Angeles. Yeah. California. Good job. I, great job. Those were the best shout outs you've done, by the way. Well, we got three more. I can't wait. Poss- poss- possibly a shout out from uh, Nancy Pelosi coming up. Oh, is Nancy Pelosi going to be a guest on this show? Wow. Well, the shout out. Yeah. Wow. I like her. I like her. <laughs> Don't you like Nancy Pelosi? She's from our hometown, San Francisco. Oh, she's from Baltimore, isn't she? Yeah, but she relocated and she was just, you know, a housewife who suddenly became speaker. It's, it's amazing. All right. She does a, she's a, does a great uh, job for this country and uh, she's the most effective. She stood up to, uh, she impeached him twice. What do you say? Should I wrap it up? Wrap what up? The show. I'm going to wrap the show up. Yeah. All right. Next time we meet, we will have a new president, supposedly. Remember to follow me on Twitter and Facebook. If you'd like to attend a live taping of this show through Zoom, go to davidfeldmanshow.com. Hit attend a live taping. I will see all of you for our recording session on Thursday. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy too. Now tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show to get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way.